Greetings, lore seekers. Welcome to our next lore lesson compilation, encompassing over seven hours of lore from our show. We will cover many topics relevant to your gameplay in ESO, including Maik the Liar, the Elder Scrolls Schools of Magic, the Five-Year War, the Wrathstone Tablet, the Daedric Prince Sheagorath, Dragons, Necromancy, and a number of topics surrounding Elsewhere and the Khajiit, to complement your gameplay in the Elder Scrolls Online's latest content release. Prepare yourself for a deep dive on each topic, coupled with some funny banter between myself and Jibs. We apologize in advance if your ears bleed for listening to my voice for that long. Without further ado, let's seek some lore. This one's going to be controversial, my friends. Hope everybody's okay with it. Good lead. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Um, yeah, Lore Lesson 33. Is Elder Scrolls Online canon? Hmm. Mm. So, when you dive into the world of Elder Scrolls lore or research... Right? You got all these places you go to get some of the information that you need. Every once in a while, you run into something that talks about whether or not it's some nerd ranting someplace. And when I say nerd, I'm fully included. Hope you all realize that. <laughs> I guess we're kind of ultra nerds yeah, huh? because I mean, we not only play video games, yeah. but we religiously research the story behind said video game. Yeah, and do a weekly podcast. We talk on it. about it. Yeah, that's definitely ultra nerd. That's us. Oh, jeez. Well, anyway, <laughs> I really don't. I really don't care. So there's that. All right, but anyway, when you go to all these different sources trying to find this lore to present in our show to our folks, you inevitably will run into somebody raging about something, however big or small, about why. The Elder Scrolls Online is not lore-friendly to the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. So I've seen it several times before. And to me, I was like, I don't even care what the answer is because it's not going to stop me from playing ESO. Right. I don't ever think that story should dictate the life of a game. I think it should, it's, it should be the opposite way around. You build your game around your story. Right. Now, granted, there's other established lore that's out there because Elder Scrolls was born from the single-player game. So always, when you add a multiplayer component in any way to a game, especially a beloved series, people flip their crap. Yeah, they do. Mainly because there are a ton of people out there that are still pissed off that Elder Scrolls Online was not the next single-player Elder Scrolls experience. Because yeah. they don't play online. They don't want to play online. There's a lot of people out there that don't want to pay a monthly fee for their entertainment. Right. I am not one of those people. I would prefer to pay a monthly fee for my online entertainment because I think it keeps trolls away. Anyway, that's a totally different Oprah show. What we're going to talk about today is 
basically a mating call for bridge trolls everywhere to <laughs> climb out from under their rocks and strip their friggin' teeth over these minor little baby bear issues that might cause their breakfast to regurge. Mm. So, I was quite surprised at going through this stuff. Let's explore some of the issues that true Elder Scrolls lore hounds have with the Elder Scrolls Online. You might be surprised. Okay. So, in order to do that, I think what we should do first is define canon. Because there might be people out there that don't know don't know lore very well. They don't know what it means, what canon might mean. The definition of canon in with respect to what we're talking about is the authentic works of a writer or sanctioned or accepted group or body of related works. So particularly to when we're talking about lore, canon applies to the consistency of historically written lore within the Elder Scrolls universe, which includes all written works, all stories, and all game lore. So there could be minor inconsistencies here and there, and those are what we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. So ESO storyline as compared to the rest of the Elder Scrolls series. We've always, when this kind of stuff comes up, I've just looked kind looked past the whiny rants of other nerds and found the information that I needed and just kind of moved on. But this time I figured let's start fresh and let's go through some of this stuff. It is very intriguing. The fact to me that some of these folks have flat out decided not to play ESO just because of these issues, especially after I found what they were. So let's find out what the hubbub's about. Okay. Now, as my disclaimer, I will present this information to you as I have found it on on the line. And we all know everything you read on the internet is totally true. Absolutely, 100%. That's right. I mean, Reddit's the source for all good things. (laughs) It is, oh God, it's just a freaking cesspool. <laughs> anyway, as I was just going to say that, a lot of this is from Reddit. It's a total non-opinionated cesspool. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. quite opinionated, actually. This, a lot of the sway you're going to get is my own personal opinion because of the way I feel about this stuff. Just know that my retort to the inconsistencies that we're going to talk about is nothing but my opinion. You draw your own line in the sand. You plant your own feet, stand your own ground, do whatever you want to do when it comes to stuff. I'm just presenting the information with my kind of skew on it. Um, and I, I really don't care if people call me a fanboy of ESO and Zoss because I totally am. Um, but anyway, we can still be friends. Everything will be all right. Okay, cool. Okay. So, is the Elder Scrolls Online considered canon to the rest of the Elder Scrolls universe? varying opinions on this exact subject. Almost every single thing that I researched was laced with incredibly crazy rhetoric and opinion, kind of like mine's about to be. So, like I said, draw your own. However, know this as fact. Both Bethesda and ZeniMax Online Studios have jointly determined and stated publicly that the Elder Scrolls Online and Elder Scrolls Legends, for that matter, because they're the same product, or they're products of the same universe, 
they are indeed considered canyon, can, canyon, canyon. canon to the entirety of the rest of the series. So Bethesda itself works with the lore masters at Zenimax Online Studios to approve all content for written game or all content written for the game for the game zoo. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there is a collaborative effort between both studios. Now, interestingly enough, one of my sources for this information is a YouTuber by the name of Camel Works. And it seems like a pretty decent dude. Does his due diligence on a lot of the research he does. And he actually interviewed Matt Fyror, the ESO's uh, game director. And I have a clip of that, and I want you to take a quick listen to the clip. One of the most common questions I get about the Elder Scrolls Online is whether it's more considered canon than your the Elder Scrolls. Yes, it absolutely is. We we have full time. We have one full time lore master that does nothing but uh, work with Bethesda Game Studios to make sure that there's a consistent timeline. Uh, the characters are consistent. Naming is consistent. Um, the timeline is super important, of course, and to any lore. Um, but this is why we picked the time that we did for Elder Scrolls Online all those years ago when we started the project was we wanted to pick a time where there wasn't a whole lot known about it so we could at least tell our own stories with, with our own characters and we do that but yeah when you start to bring in things like the Sigic Order and the history of the Altmer yes we're very much tied into the main lore so you do work pretty closely with the uh, every day yeah. okay so that being said there are some inconsistency claims out there. In the past, we've talked about some minor inconsistencies with the lore. You know, so like just an example, when we talked about the calendar and there were some different things included in certain games and other things not included. It's like, okay, whatever. How stupid. Maybe it's a mistake. These guys are building massive games. Yeah. So some things may be left out. So normally it can just be if there is a small inconsistency in the lore. Elder Scrolls has this beautiful thing built into it where it can be explained as different accounts from various historians telling the story from within the game itself, right? Right. So, for example, the differences of opinion on how the Dwemer disappeared. There are several different theories presented, leaving the player to form your own conclusion. And this has been described in the greater lore universe of Elder Scrolls as the unreliable narrator within the game. Many of the stories you hear or read within the games can be told by an in-game character who's describing the story as they see it or how they've experienced it and not necessarily how it actually happened. So this phenomenon has happened in every single Elder Scrolls game and it will continue to occur in the series because many of the stories are told from in-game characters themselves with their own experiences, opinions, and biases. So does that make sense? Yes. The unreliable narrator? Okay, cool. Okay, let's get into some specific examples of why some people say ESO breaks lore. I feel like I'm I'm getting ready to buckle up here. Like there's... (laughs) Say that again? I feel like I'm getting ready to buckle up. You know, we all got to get settled. Get ready. Okay. Oh, get ready. It's not going to break your heart. Trust me. Okay. Cyrodiil. Example number one. According to lore in Elder Scrolls Oblivion, Cyrodiil was described as a vast jungle. However, in the Elder Scrolls Online, Cyrodiil is a very large landscape of rolling hills, vistas, and the foliage is pretty distributed. Here's where the heartburn comes in. 
According to the lore, when Tiber Septim ascended to godhood and became Talos, he transformed the jungle landscape of Cyrodiil as a gift to his warriors. Stay with me. Okay. Here's an excerpt from his book, or from a book, called From the Many-Headed Talos. And this was from the game of Skyrim. And I quote, And after the throne of Alinor did finally break at the feet of men, and news of it came to the dragon emperor in Cyrodiil, he gathered his captains and spoke to them, saying, this is Talos speaking, quote, You have suffered for me to win this throne, and I see how you hate jungle. Let me show you the power of Talos Stormcrown, born of the north, where my breath is long winter. I breathe now in royalty and reshape this land which is mine. I do this for you, Red Legions, for I love you. Unquote. Apparently, when that happened, Talos transformed the landscape of Cyrodiil and made it into not a dense jungle because his captains and his and his legions had battled through that jungle. Right. Right? right. Following me? Yeah. Okay. So, since Tiber Septim's ascendancy took place after the Second Era, which is the, the time frame of ESO, and since the depiction of Cyrodiil isn't a vast forest in ESO, the frickin' nerds are up in arms. Right. Right? Yeah. Because they're thinking this took place after the time frame of ESO, so Cyrodiil should be a vast, dense jungle. Some people won't even play ESO because this small little inconsistency takes place. Really? Wow. Give me a freaking break, people. Could it possibly have anything to do with the fact that creating a video game world with a very dense, vast jungle that will render nicely and without monster lag? Granted, this is our PvP zone, right? All right. So having a dense jungle like that just was not in the cards with modern game engines, especially when ESO came out. So why not crucify Bethesda and Zoss for wanting your PvP experience to be relatively lag-free? You know what I mean? Yeah. So just because it's in the lore... I mean, name once dense, vast, once vast, dense jungle in any game that you know. Name one. None. Literally, I can't think of any. None. That's an MMO. You have to... Right, you have to space things out. Dude, I'm parched. I'm so bummed right now. I need whiskey. <laughs> need more whiskey. Okay, feel better. All right. That is example of the minutiae that some of these folks are talking about. Okay. We're going to get it. We're going to get hate mail for sure. Okay. So here's some that are a little bit more believable, but I still have a refute for them. The Ebonheart Pact Alliance itself, right? Yeah. Since the Dunmer enslaved the Argonians, and hence the hatred on both sides, why would these two races ever be united? See what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah. I can pick up on that one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Aldmeri Dominion. In the same respect, the Khajiit and the Bosmer have always been at war. Therefore, why would they ally together? Okay. 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 All right. Following you. Mm-hmm. The Daggerfall Covenant. 
just as the last two alliances have their lore inconsistencies, why would the orcs ever want to join forces with the Bretons and the Red Guard, who literally raised the city of Orsinium a few years before ESO's timeline? Follow? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is why. This makes sense. Take a look at a faction map of ESO. The one thing that every faction has in common is geography. Okay? Remember like when you're in high school and you met some girl at the at like the county fair or something, but she lived in a completely different county? Yeah. What did she become? Long distance girlfriend. Geographically undesirable. Oh, but- right? Well, I, I mean, I, I'd make it work, but yeah, yeah, I get you. Oh my God, you're such a girl. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, geographically undesirable. The one thing that these factions have, as I hearken back to ESO, these factions have geographic desirability, okay? Each of the regions in which the races and factions are located give them geographic access to another so to me, it makes perfect sense why these regions would want to band together, in, number one, in a time of war where their very borders are threatened and there's an outside enemy. Right. They may not, it may be a reluctant joining of their forces, but in order for the very survival of their way of life, are you kidding me? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like Nevada. I'm sure Nevada hates California. But if there were a global threat coming that possibly could affect those folks way of life. Yeah. It's happened before in the form of the civil war. (laughs) It's totally happened before. So anyway, that's my thought. It would not make, it wouldn't make much sense for the Bretons to join forces with the Argonians or Merkmire. Right. 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 Because they're all the way across the freaking map. Yeah. So getting their armies together by traveling across a giant area of enemy territory doesn't make much sense. But when you have, even if you have, you know, warring factions that are close together in a time of war and for control of a region, they just might look past their differences. Now, it certainly doesn't mean there's not going to be squabbles and stuff that take place amongst the ranks, because there will be because of that history. But it doesn't mean that those... Um, alliances could not be formed just because they've had history. So anyway, that's my conclusion anyway. Okay, let's go on to the next point. Orsinium being rebuilt multiple times. There's a lot of discussion when it comes to defunking the fact that ESO is not lore-centric about the fact that Orsinium was once raised by the Red Guards and then the Bretons had and the Red Guards and the Bretons, and that had been rebuilt not once, but countless times according to ESO lore. Some actually argue that the entire Orsinium DLC is a farce. Really? I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you guys are stupid. Wow. Yeah. So once again, the unreliable narrator is very, very relevant in this case. The story is misrepresented in several areas of the game, most likely due... um, to story inflation, opinion, and then maybe even just like flat out misunderstanding of the actual facts. Mm-hmm. Not everyone you speak to, and this is a little eye opener for everybody. Not everyone you speak to in life is going to tell the truth because the way they perceive or embellish a fact 
may not be a fact at all. It's just life. So don't let it ruin your game experience. It just makes me laugh. It's like, what? Yeah. Okay. Here's another one kind of flip people out. And I attribute this one just, I don't know, flat out mistake maybe. There is a book from the fourth era in ESO. So even though ESO takes place in the second era, it has been discovered that there's a couple of books in ESO that were actually written in the fourth era. For example, The Last King of the Aliads by Herminia Cinna, supposedly written in the third era, and Ruminations of the Elder Scrolls written by Septimus Cygnus, supposedly in the fourth era. How can this be? How can it be? It's uh, terrible. They may want to. uh, (laughs) It's a double rainbow. What does it mean? (laughs) What does this mean? No, they may. uh, (laughs) They they may want to remove those. I'll give them that. That... I'll give them that. But I I actually have an explanation for it. Okay. I got a I got a headache thinking of an excuse for Zoss, but I actually have a headache. Okay. Okay. How could you explain this? Third era, fourth era book in Elder Scrolls Online when it takes place in the second era. Well, could there be some kind of an insidious time warp with the Elder Scrolls Online that maybe we haven't heard about? Is that something you came up with? Yeah, bruh. Hmm. You, you know... I'm just saying. I, I, here's the reason why I can't say no to that. is because video games in general... Like, you just never know what's going to be added, you know? You you will never know what is going to end up being okay. Right. So, here's another one for you. Could a moth priest have read so far into the future via use of the Elder Scrolls themselves that he or she retrieved the information and actually wrote about it? There's that. And let me throw this also at you as well. Uh, is the Oblivion Plane... Does that endure? Does that? Does um, how do I word this right? Does it transcend time? Yes. I believe it's parallel. Hmm. Yes, I believe the only thing that transcends time is a dragon break, which I'm not going to go into because I literally will need a Tylenol. <laughs> I will literally need a bottle of Tylenol. I'm, I'm literally not kidding you. It When I think about the Dragon Break, and I know we have some really good friends out there that know this stuff really well. Um, uh, one of our good friends that I know loves talking about Dragon Breaks is uh, Jelos from Tales of Tamriel. Um, I'm not even... I'm not going to try and remember our lore lesson on that because I know we've talked about it before. Yeah. But... Yeah, literally, I would have to sit down and read and read and reread again to to remember all the facts. So, yeah, anyway, there's that. Hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, a couple books from the third and fourth era in ESO. I don't, I really, my heart of hearts tells me there's not, like, some kind of a explanation. It was probably just an oversight. And it's not going to bum me out when I play ESO. Just going to let you all know that. I don't... Uh, okay. I, I'm going to let you finish, and then I'll then I'll come back with my... Sometimes it's best to just let him just finish. Let him finish. <laughs> okay. 
Here's kind of a bigger one. Okay. The soul burst. Ooh, yeah, okay. Now, yeah, so some have some heartburn regarding the soul burst event. If you guys don't know what the soul burst event is, it is basically the, I guess at this point, like spoilers really, dude. It's the main quest line for ESO. Manamarco betrays the five companions and um, sets off an event known as the Soul Burst. Okay. So immediately after the Soul Burst event takes place, giant anchors litter the landscape and Molag Ball is attempting to pull Nern into oblivion. Okay. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, there's towers that were placed across Nern to prevent the melding of the physical realm with oblivion. So they were, these towers were supposed to protect uh, Nern from this very type of invasion. Okay. Now, at the time, some of the towers had been fallen and were inoperable during the time of ESO. For instance, the White Gold Tower. They just took it over. Right. So that tower was not operating. Yeah. So here's where the rub starts and stops, in my opinion. Many of the ranting nerds out there are upset because this large of a global event should have been mentioned somewhere in the lore of the game series. So they're talking previous games. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They're talking like Morrowind, Oblivion, Skyrim, all the games that happen after the second era in timeline. These folks are mad that the Soul Burst was not mentioned. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, like, why wouldn't Skyrim have mentioned anything about the Soul Burst or its ensuing aftermath in, dis- in some type of a discoverable book, discoverable book around the game world? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's because Skyrim was released in 2011 and ESO was released in 2014. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm just letting you finish. But yeah, I, uh... Okay. So like people are mad that the soul burst wasn't mentioned in any of the other games when ESO is literally the latest game to come out and... The the story and the lore of Elder Scrolls is evolving right in front of your face in Elder Scrolls Online. But people are mad that the Soul Burst wasn't written into the story when Skyrim was created or when Oblivion was released. Are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. So, okay. So aside... From these minor discrepancies, I have not been able to find many more, like like none. Because if there were any that were significant, I would have already. I, it would be in this segment. But I was super surprised that there were not more valid or poignant arguments for such a heated debate across Elder Scrolls landscape that would cause people to not play the freaking game. So if you know, I'm sure there's more out there. If you know of any other inconsistencies, write in because I'm I'm interested. To find out what they are, if there's any that are bigger than these, because I'm like, really, this is what people, gives people heartburn over Elder Scrolls Online. That's a cop out. And 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 please include sources. Please include your sources. Oh yeah, for sure. When you do this for sure. Even Reddit. Even, Even Reddit. So like, I for one can understand why some of the inconsistencies, whether you consider them big or little, would upset you know, like the most diehard of diehard lore, lore hounds. That's fine. You're, you're certainly entitled to your opinion. This is just mine. 
the single player games in Elder Scrolls is what all of us fell in love with and really what brought us to ESO in the first place for the most part. And there's those folks out there that are anomalies that haven't played an Elder Scrolls title at all, but have fallen in love with ESO. But understand one thing from my perspective. It's actually not even my perspective, it's a fact. Elder Scrolls Online is an evolving game. Zoss understands what it takes to make the lore work for your game as opposed to the exact opposite, making your game work for your lore. So if a few minor things need to be changed here and there to make the massive undertaking that is ESO work very, very smoothly, then I myself say get it done. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to, are you wanting to list your sources or do you, can I? Uh... No, no, I, I, I can certainly list them. I, I just like my final point I just, I don't get the angst and the anger over it and, you know, the, the internet rage over it. I say just pop a Tums, you'll be fine. Enjoy the game for what it is and for what it is becoming. Right. And just as Matt Firewar alluded to, it is a massive amount of brand new Elder Scrolls lore. Yep. That will be forever canon. Yeah. 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 So, so Okay. I'll, I'll just, I'll hit my sources real quick. Camelworks, I think that guy's a solid YouTuber. Um, a ton of different Reddit interviews, or a, a bunch of Reddit threads. Uh, Curry Gaming Inc. on YouTube. Mr. Matty Plays on YouTube. And then an article from GameSkinny, which surprised me. Glaring errors in the Elder Scrolls lore no one's talking about. Hmm. And I'm like, no, he's talking about them because they're BS. <laughs> But whatever. <laughs> okay, so I'm interested to hear what you think, though. I mean, that was a super long rant for me, and I apologize for that. No, but it's, man, I was just like so got got so charged well, up over it. It's you know, it's it's good to talk about these things because you know, I I feel like sitting back and listening. There's really two camps. There is the purist, I guess would be the best way to say it, where every little thing has to line up. Every dot has to, every period has to, your eyes have to be dotted, your T's crossed, pretty much everything. And then you've got everything else, everyone else. That's kind of the vibe I'm getting. Where, because ultimately, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Like, look, <laughs> look, this is, like Hash said, this game is a massive undertaking. And it has taken years, you know, well over four years of released time for this game to even get where it is now, let alone all the years they put in previously. And that entire, all, everything that encompasses that is new Elder Scrolls for you. It's new content for you. Does everything line up? No. Do I think everything should line up? Oh, man, I think it'd be awesome if it did. But look, at the end of the day, for me to realistically expect peop- this to this to happen, it's it would be just ridiculous because there is so much to this. There is such an incredible amount. Uh, Cash and I are both Star Wars fans. Go look at Star Wars lore. Guess what you'll find? I was just going to say that. Guess dude, what you'll totally. find because it's there. It is so there, and it's just... It's kind of like one of those things where you kind of just have to accept it. Or the fact that you look at lore different. 
It's no different than a Marvel comic movie. You know, for the longest time, whenever I was watching a Marvel movie and something was glaringly different from the comics, it bothered me. And then I thought, what if I compartmentalize that to where whenever I see that, okay, this is, they're taking this take as if that's its own, it's its own thing within the universe. So it's like its own comic book issue to where in the, in the released comics, the written comics, A happened, but in the movie, B happened. And the movie is its own little comic. What if that was the case? Okay, I can kind of grasp that a little bit better then. So when I look at ESO lore, like I I can I see why people who are passionately upset about it is because they care. Um, I, I I would say at least a number of them do. I don't know. <laughs> I don't people. There are yeah. people who just like to argue. But all yeah, maybe maybe I shouldn't have overshadowed that either. Well, no, you're you're fine. You're fine. And, and really, it's there, there's really just two camps that, that I see. And I would say this: we love Elder Scrolls lore. Cash and I love, love. Holy crap! I love Star Wars lore. I know that better than anything. And I know there's discrepancies, and it doesn't bother me as much because I the mass. When I look at the product as a whole, I love it. I love the product. I love everything about it. I love what it means between a Sith acolyte being trained up by his master. I love that dark, brooding passion of the dark side that they have. And and I don't. Are you stop that I dirty don't talk right this second? <laughs> I don't care about the discrepancy so much because I know there are some. But when it comes to ESO, I would implore you. I would implore everybody, because I know there's people who listen to this show that don't play ESO, but they love to hear talk about Elder Scrolls. I would implore all of you, try it. Just try it. Yes, there may be discrepancies, but don't let that turn you away from a game that people have put their lives and soul, like hundreds of people have put their lives into this game. And there is such good content. This is coming from somebody who just came back to this game who literally this is my first time ever really giving this game a chance was back when we started the show two weeks before that show started this show started was when i really gave this a chance and i can tell you from somebody who's brand new to elder scrolls for the first time like this first year there's such good content you are going to find so many things that you love and appreciate. And because of that, it's going to bring you to a place where you want to play more of the Elder Scrolls games. You want to play Skyrim. Heck, I was doing a live stream during the past couple weeks. We were off of, of Skyrim on our Twitch channel. And it was just so much fun. It was so much fun. And so I would encourage you, even if you're... I mean, don't don't put, don't just like slam the door in the face of ESO and, and you know never even give it a chance. Try it. Just go try it because it's so much fun. And, yes, there's right. going to be things that are different. And you know what? That happens in everything. It really does. Like there's always going to be something that's off. Yeah, and if you and if, if you try ESO and you hate it, then go back to your naked mods in Skyrim. Yeah. How about it? There's, you could all – gosh. <laughs> no. All right. My friends, we are going to be diving right Back into the jewel that is the Clockwork City coming mm -hmm. up very soon. Mm -hmm. So, Lore Lesson 34, we are going to talk about the life of Sothasil, also known as Set, S E H T. Sothasil was a member of the Divine Tribunal Trio, 
also known as Almsivi. I'm sure you guys have seen the A-L-M-S-I-V-I on lore books all around the world. And basically what that is, Almsivi, it is comprised of the three members of the tribunal, which were Almalexia, Sothisil, and Vivek. Ooh. I know. Sothisil himself was the enigmatic father of mysteries, a mage, a magician, a sorcerer, a master tinkerer, as evidenced by his incredible creation in the Clockwork City. If you have not already done that content, I'm only like halfway through, admittedly. I don't feel bad about it. I will be diving back in and finishing that content here within the next couple of weeks because I really want to dive in and um, try it out. I finish it. I want to finish it. I'm only like halfway through, but um, it's a neat, neat zone. And I owe it to myself and the rewards that are coming out of it. So there you go. After the death of the Nerevar, Sothisil came to rule over the Dunmer of Morrowind, along with Almalexia and Vivek. But defying the wishes of Nerevar, the tribunal utilized the tools of Kagranak on the heart of Lorcan, stealing its divine essence for themselves and propelling themselves, the trio, into godhood. And you remember the tools of Kagranak. Mm-hmm. That is what was needed to unlock the true power of the heart of Lorcan, and that is what they did, and hence rose to godhood and became the tribunal. Right. So during this time, Sothisil was known for his empathy and love toward the Dunmer. He spent vast amounts of time counseling, guiding, and protecting his mortal flock, and he was said to actually have the ability to feel the stress of his people... And because of that, he protected them by never assigning them more than they could handle. Eventually, which we'll talk about a little bit, Sothisil would become consumed by his work as an, as an inventor, and he became completely detached from the real world and the affairs, the affairs of mortals, and hence his own people. And that's because Clockwork City consumed him. In the third era, in his last act in the business of mortals, Sothisil and Almalexia lost control of two of Kagranak's tools, Keening and Sunder. He lost these tools to the forces of, uh, of somebody known as Dagoth Ur. <laughs> Sorry. Whew. That was weird. That's good stuff there. All right. Looking at my ankles again? No. Okay. Maybe. Dagoth Ur, the immortal lord and high counselor of House Dagoth, Dunmer, lived beneath the Red Mountain with his kin, the Ash Vampires, and the legions of Corpus Monsters. Corpus Monsters basically in all in Ald Chimeres, Corpus means skin blight. So basically a bunch of blistery, weird looking Soldiers and ash vampires live beneath Red Mountain with the Lord High Counselor Dagoth Ur. Well, Dagoth Ur got a hold of Kagranak's tools, Keening and Sunder, and trouble ensued. So, fun fact 
It was Dagoth who first claimed that Kagranak, the Dwemer High Priest, was drawing power from the heart of Lorcan using special tools in the hopes of creating the Numidium, a mechanical god. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Talked about that before, right before the Dwemer died. Yep. So then, it was then that the Dwemer High Priest tried to use the tools to break into the heart of Lorcan, and then blammo. All of a sudden, the Dwemer are gone. Distant memory. Bring him back. Not going to happen. So although Vivek, Lord Vivek, would come to Sothaseel and Almalexia's rescue, they were unable to recover the lost tours of Lorcan's heart, and they were forced to flee. Because of Dagoth Ur's close proximity to the heart of Lorcan in the Red Mountain, he also had superior strength and intelligence, but his mad passion for the heart, those things combined... He was able to steal the boons from the, from Lorcan's heart, depriving the tribunal of its power. Because remember, they used the tools to become to ascend to godhood, and they continued to use the power from the heart of Lorcan to power their own godhood. So odd, huh? Bad Dunmer. Yeah. Bad Dunmer. Kind of gives you a different spin on the storyline in Morrowind. Yeah. Does it not? Yeah, it really does. Or you do all that stuff to help Vivek, but really, kind of a thief, kind of a fake. Yeah. Cue the hate mail. So there's that. Well, there's, it's, you know, it, that is, that theme though, I mean, you're not wrong in that, that theme is definitely explored with some of the people you come in contact to that DLC. So it, it's not like yeah. you're the only one saying that. It's, you know, it's pretty evident. More people feel yeah. that way. Because, I mean, they feel that way, and they're not just that they feel that way, but they're mad, and they're trying to dethrone Vivek. Right. You know, for other reasons, but anyway. Okay. So late in the Second Era, the Tribunal visited the Red Mountain once again to perform a ritual and try and replenish their divine power. But during this time, Dagoth Ur was reawakened... And he ambushed the tribunal and his minion with his minions, driving them away and preventing any access to the heart of Lorcan. So this ensued. What ensued because of this was multiple battles between the tribunal and Dagoth Ur, where eventually the tribunal was able to kill Dagoth Ur and his minions despite several revivals of the dead by the heart of Lorcan itself. So Dagoth Ur and his minions would die, and the heart would revive them. So it was an endless battle. So in order to contain the revived armies and Dagoth, the tribunal erected the ghost fence around the Red Mountain. Jibs, you may ask yourself, what is the ghost fence? I've never heard of this. I have asked that question many a time. I've never heard it. Just this once. Fun fact. (laughs) The Great Ghost Fence was an enormous shield wall that surrounded the entire crater of Red Mountain. The wall contained the Blight and Corpus monsters within the Red Mountain region to keep them from reaching all areas of Vardenfell. Its pillars channeled the holy energies of the tribunal 
and the spirits of the dead, creating an impenetrable shield. That's really freaking cool. Right. So after the defeat of Dagoth Ur, the Red Mountain no longer spread the blight and the conditions in Vavavavardenfell improved. Although the ghost fence remained, the shield was kind of unnecessary at that point. Eventually it became deactivated. The ghost fence's structure stayed and kind of served as a reminder of the defeat of Dagoth Ur and also a rest place for the pilgrims that were wishing to visit the Shrine of Pride, which was a holy place erected at the site. During the first era, this is kind of moving on a little bit with uh, some more info from Sothisil. During the first era, Sothisil actually spent time on the Isle of Artaeum, teaching some of the newer mages of the Sigic Order. And Sothisil made his way back and forth from Tamriel and Artaeum via the Dreaming Cavern, which we've already heard about. Yeah, yep. All right. Stuff gets kind of dark here for a minute. Hmm. After an incident in southern Valenwood, a village by the known of Gilverdale, late in the First Era, this was where an entire village was destroyed by Molag Ball. Sothisil went to meet, after this incident, Sothisil went to meet with the eight Daedric, with eight of the Daedric princes to form a pact. The exact terms of the pact are not known. But what is known is that Sothisil asked the Daedric princes to agree to not answer any summoning by amateurs until the war between Morrowind and Cyrodiil ended. It was well known at the time that only the Sigics, sorcerers, and witches could counsel with the Daedra, but some, for some reason, Sothisil went to meet with eight of the Daedric princes to ask that mortal men not summon them for their will. At least until the war between Morrowind and Cyrodiil was over, which kind of made me laugh. It's like, it was kind of his own selfish reasons. Like, he didn't want Morrowind to be defeated by anybody getting any bright ideas about going to ask for help by the, from the Daedric Princes. Well, fortune favors the bold. It does, actually. But here's another fun fact. The reason that Molag Ball destroyed the settlement at Gilverdale after being summoned... He was summoned by the Mad King of Senchal, a gentleman by the name of Drozel. Apparently, try not to laugh. Try and contain your laughter on this one. Okay. Apparently, Drozel was, up, was upset with a Bosmeri bard from Gilverdale who had performed a very depressing song in the ballroom of the royal palace at Senchal. He communed with Molag Bal himself to destroy the town in revenge for the bard's terrible performance. <laughs> what a complete and utter D. Yeah. Like, right? v- really? He went full Bosmer <laughs> over that one. He went full Bosmer and killed a bunch of Bosmer. Yes, he did. Yes, he yeah. did. Well, let it be known. Tip your bards well. That's right. So, the pact forged between Sothisil and the Daedra in response to this would actually end up proving ineffective 
because a Dunmer witch managed to summon Mehrunes Dagon to seek vengeance on the Duke of Mornhold following the death of her child. This was not long after. Mornhold was completely razed, and Sothisil and Amalexia were forced to banish the Prince of Destruction back to oblivion. So not only did they laugh at Sothisil's request, but they came right back and did it again. Just because Daedric Princes are terrible. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds exactly like something they do. Yeah. Like, if you legitimately are going to Daedra with honest intentions and thinking they're going to be great to you, like, I just, I don't care who you are, that's kind of dumb. A little dumb. Yeah, I might have gone to the Aedra instead. Yeah, be better. Yeah, anyway. The demise of Sothisil. So sad. Early in the Third Era, to be exact, this is the Third Era, year 427, Sothisil loses his life to his longtime friend and fellow tribunal member, Almalexia. She was driven mad by her decline of power due to being deprived of the heart of Lorcan. The power of the heart of Lorcan. She killed her friend. Kind of sad. Especially because Sothisil was awesome. So to close out, you yourself, as the vestige, should go through Clockwork City, especially during the event. Because the story that is there, I will not spoil it, is good. And like I said, I've only been like halfway through the story myself. But in researching this, I've seen what the story, the full story is about and kind of how it ends. But I'm not going to ruin that for you. That's up to you. Um Next week, we're going to talk about Clockwork City itself, and I might throw in a few other little things in there. But um, you know us. We like to talk about things that are going on. And I figure if we're going to be doing Clockwork City, we might as well know exactly what it is that we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Hey, let's make a point that both of us do Clockwork during the event. Yes, definitely in my plans. Yes. I think that'd be fun. Well done. That was cool. Yeah, that's good. Right. Today, my friends, we are a day into the new event. The new event highlights the Clockwork City and brings your Elder Scrolls Online playing butt right back to that magical city. The creation of the Clockwork City. Was he a genius? Was he a madman? Hmm. I know. Don't you love my intros? Uh, yes. Thanks for saying that, because I'm totally self-conscious about them. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) My friends, the Clockwork City is a metaphysical realm built to resemble the inner workings of a clock built by the living god Sothisil, who we talked about last week. This man is a genius, kind of sinister, Is he a douche? Or is he just flat out amazing? Or was he totally all about himself? Yeah, I think he was bat crap crazy, but that's a story for another Oprah show. Clockwork City supposedly exists outside of space and time. In order to enter the famed city, you have to actually magically be shrunk. Honey, I shrunk the kids. This I'm sorry, what? You have hun- to be shrunk. Oh, 
Well, we've identified the one person in the room who hasn't gone through Clockwork City. No, I have. I oh well, uh, I have. You know, I just don't recall there. anything. I know. No, I haven't. Ever. I'm going to do it during the event. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a lore fail. That's the first episode's lore fail. Hey, you know how many episodes are we in now? I don't even know anymore. Thirty that's a, something. That's a lot of weeks to be alone. That's a lot of weeks you. with no fails. <laughs> I think I earned one. Why do you have to be magically shrunk, Jibs? Because the Clockwork City itself is a globe the size of a large crate. Did you know this? I did not. Carry on. The city was built to satisfy Sotha Seal's disdain for the direction that Tamriel had taken. It was no secret that Sotha Seal was not happy with the way that Tamriel was progressing. So... He felt that the Ager's creation of Nern was quite flawed and that his creation of the Clockwork City was his own attempt to perfect it. He saw the redemption of Tamriel as his goal. And in addition to unifying the competing forces to come together in the destruction of the Daedra. So the one thing that he was constant on was that the Daedra was evil and they should be vanquished. So... With building the Clockwork City, Sotha Seal would forge the future in an attempt to quote-unquote reshape the world. Hmm. This is a very meaty lore lesson. So strap on your big boy pants and keep up. I think it's a really good one. I was actually pretty, uh, I was exhausted by the time I was done writing it. Don't get me wrong. But I was pretty impressed with yourself. Here's the thing with me and, and, and creating these lore lessons. Yes. Here's the thing with me creating these lore lessons. I love the research and I love writing them. But about halfway through, I want to do nothing but log in and play ESO. It has been that way for 35 weeks at least the beginning of time. Cause we've not, I mean, other than our breaks, we haven't missed a week. So I guess it really would put us at like 40 weeks, but, or, you know, we haven't missed, um, very many weeks. So I, I love doing this. I get into a long one and, and like halfway through, I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I just want to play right now. Right. So yeah, hopefully yeah. that doesn't come out in the writing. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Clockwork city's location has been difficult to locate at times. Because it's described as a metaphor made manifest, the Clockwork City itself is, meaning that the Clockwork City is a non-existent idea made into reality. This is going to start getting kind of Elder Scrollsy, where okay, yeah, like there's a lot of philosophy behind it, and it might blow your friggin' minds. So, anyway, when someone tries to describe the location. The physical location of Clockwork City, it usually ends up in them just explaining how to get there. Because there's actually, there's no real physical location. But in the Elder Scrolls Online, the location of the Clockwork City is within Set's vault, Set meaning so at the seal, within the ruins of Bombs Ashend beneath the Mournhold Temple in Deshaun. Debunking the rumor that there is actually no physical location. 
So can you um, actually go there as a player? Yes. Really? Mornhold Temple, Deshaun, within the ruins of Bombs Ascend. Okay. Lies an entrance. At other times in Tamriel's history, the portable city was rumored to be located in various locations, such as the swamps of Morrowind or beneath the city of Ebonheart itself. Okay. Getting into the city was another mystery. Now, in our timeline of ESO, second era, year 583-ish, two entrances have been revealed. The first was a rift in Abenabi Cave, which is a cavern system which runs beneath Zephyrbel Bay, Zephyrbel, Zephyrbel Bay, mm-hmm. in Azura's coast uh, in the region of Morrowind. Shut up. The second was uh, to enter via the globe that represents the city itself. The actual globe that he built. Some mages were able to fashion devices to teleport them to the city, such as uh, Tellinger the Artificer. He created the Hyperagonal Location Determinator, which sounds super Back to the Future-ish. Right. It probably has a flux capacity. Probably has a flux capacitor that operates at 1.21 gigawatts. Is his nickname Doc? Because that's... It might be. It is now. Hmm. This device could pinpoint any desired location and defeat any magical defenses to teleport the user directly to the coordinates. Yeah. We're getting in the weeds here, aren't we? Just a skosh. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so let's transition a little bit. Let's talk about citizenship in the Clockwork City because this does become a factor when you start running the quest lines. For an outsider, or as referred to as a citizen, or as referred to by the citizens of the city, an exodromal, to become a citizen of Clockwork City, one must gain sponsorship from a city's inhabitant. At first... New citizens were told that there was no way to travel back to Tamriel once they arrived in Clockwork City, which is the reason why you hear people complaining about being stuck there, walking around through town in Clockwork City. However, a portal does exist in the Basilica to return citizens back to Tamriel. No doy. For those who did not know of the portal, being relegated to Clockwork City was either a miracle... Or friggin' nightmare. The other loved or hated it. I get that. Okay, the design of Clockwork City itself. Although Sothasil's design of Clockwork City was inspired by ancient Dwemeri construction, figured you'd like that part, Jibs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By the time it was completed, he injected his own style into the project. All of the city structures, the vegetation, and the wildlife were mechanical constructs created by Sotha Seal. It was rumored that the Clockwork City was constructed sometime during the first era, presumably after Sotha Seal had come to his rise or come to rise as part of the tribunal. The tribunal, as we talked about last uh, last week in our review, Omalexia, Sotha Seal, and Vivek, Omsivi. It was believed that he began construction on the Clockwork City as his life's work. After he and the tribunal harnessed the power from the heart of Lorcan, which we talked about last week. Right. They stole the power using Kagranak's tools. They ascended to godhood. 
Silthasil had this project he wanted to work on. There you go. Frank's before the beans. Hmm. Did I just say that? I just said that. Yeah, you were kind of telling your age there. Welcome to Lore Lessons by Cash. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about the actual construction of the Brass Fortress uh, and, and the Clockwork City itself. Sothaseel's creation was quite ambitious, and in order to succeed, many facilities and constructs were required. This will harken directly back to our game, because all these places are there. You can visit them. You've probably battled in a lot of these places already. The Halls of Regulation, for example, were constructed to achieve the proper humidity needed for a breathable atmosphere in the Clockwork City. Otherwise... People would die. The halls of regulation maintain the city's water cycle, the breathable air, humidity, temperature, wind currents, and potable water supply. Wow. That's what I was waiting for. Pretty interesting, huh? There's lore yeah. behind the places that you see. Love it. Really cool. Uh, the Celestia Celestiodrome. Man, I'm having sure. a hard time with the words. Don't there. look at me. I'm not even going to try that. <laughs> I didn't look at you. You don't know if I looked at you or not. You had a twitch. Over the airwaves. Actually, I cracked my neck. Hmm. Words are hard. Okay. The Celestia Drone. I think I said that right. Was created to form the topography in the realm. A gigantic processing facility known as the Halls of Fabrication. Were built with the purpose of deconstructing Dwemer machinery so the parts could be utilized in Sotha Seal's new creations. Jibs, have you run the Halls of Fabrication trial? I wish. Dude, it is a good one. I wish. I want to see that. It is a good one. Um, very, very much challenging. Super fun. So, anyway, um, fun fact the Halls of Fabrication is a challenging 12-person group trial in ESO and was created by Sotha Seal to repurpose old Dwemer constructs, which we just talked about, but we're talking about it again. Sorry, not sorry. Eventually, Sotha Seal abandoned the facility, leaving the artificial intelligence known as the Assembly General, last boss, to continue on his own. In the trial itself, minor spoiler, uh, Devate Fear had fashioned a plan to extend his Tower of Telfir into the Abenabi Cave. However, a portal to the Clockwork City inexplicably opened up and refabricants and fabricants from the Halls of Fabrication appeared. As a player, you combat the fabricant threat and enter the Clockwork City portal to battle the Assembly General himself. Now, that's a statue, right? That comes with the physical collectors? Yes. He's so gnarly. It is a very challenging, very challenging um, trial. I'm intimidated already. I'm just looking at the statue. Yeah, last boss. It is. There is a lot of mechanics in there, and you have to get a rhythm for sure. Hmm. But it's a really cool one. So, yeah, go do it with friends. Okay. The pneumatic planisphere was created as an extension of Sothasil's consciousness where his memories were stored in the form of stars. 
This facility was maintained by a caretaker known as the Astronomer. This is also another quest line in Clockwork City content. Fun fact. The Cogitum Centralis. Cogitum Centralis. You pick. Potato, potato. Was constructed as the control center of the city, and Sothesil was known to confine himself to this facility to work in private sometimes for decades or centuries at a time. It's like, where's Soth the Seal? Did he die? Nope. He's just locked himself in a room. He's playing video games. <laughs> He's playing with his Barbie doll. He's playing video games. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Almalexia's betrayal, which we kind of touched on last week, but the demise of our good friend Soth the Seal. In the third era, year 427, Almalexia had been driven mad by her loss of immortality. Remember, she lost her power um, when the Heart of Lorcan was blocked. She could no longer get the energy from the Heart of Lorcan, which ascended her into godhood, and she was driven mad by her loss of this immortality. She tricked the Nerevarine into retrieving Barlzar's maze band, an immensely powerful ring used as a means of teleportation. She used the band to find and murder Sothasil in cold blood and transported his fabricants into Mournhold to destroy the city. She also attempted to kill the Nerevarian himself, but she failed and was killed. Despite her attempts, the Clockwork City continued to thrive Minus the presence of its creator, Soth the Seal. And it's because Soth the Seal had done such a good job in creating the artificial intelligence, the thing just kept running. Like, forever. Here's why. In his secretive seclusion, all of those decades and millennia, or, or all those uh, decades spent in the uh, Cogitum Centralis, Decades and centuries, that's what I was looking for. Sothasil had created a mechanical replica of the heart of Lorcan. This replica provided power to the city and its inhabitants even after he died. Because the city remained functional, the Clockwork City Apostles remained in the city. And who are they? We're going to talk about them in a minute. But that's some pretty amazing AI that works off of an artificial heart hmm. let's talk about clockwork city's inhabitants the clockwork city houses three major groups of peach people each fostered with within their own community within the brass fortress that's brass fortress is the main area it's like the main part of the city clock it's a bad kitty yes oh razum dad is coming to my room <laughs> clockwork apostles <laughs> this is the first of three major groups the clockwork apostles which you just mentioned about these inhabitants lived in the Clockwork Basilica and had an unwavering rever reverence for Sothasil. They were like, these are his dudes. These are his, this, these are his minions. These members of Clockwork Society had great skill in magic, great mechanical affinity, or some other worthy skill set that allowed them to contribute. They often replaced their own limbs with mechanical ones of Sothasil's design to show how their own were very flawed but so the seals were divinely perfected. That is freaking bat crap crazy right there. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's like, that's some Star Wars crap right there. So this was done as an expression of faith to Sotha Seal. The Clockwork Apostles considered Dwemer constructs as inferior and even blasphemous to the creations of Sotha Seal. And they were always seen as very elitist by even the the non-apostles that resided there. So these are like the ultimate douchebags. Right? (laughs) (laughs) These are like worse than the Altmer. Ultimate douches. So, okay. So following the teachings of the truth in sequence, which is a book, the apostles devoted their work to Sotha Seal's ultimate goal to achieve something called the Tamriel Final, a new reborn nerd. That's heretical crap right there. Bro, let me throw this out at you. Elder Scrolls Online 2. It's in a new nern because of this. Yeah, or an extension of the Clockwork City. When you walk into Clockwork City, there you hear gears turning. You hear like, like, you know, metal legs. You hear, if anybody knows the reference to that, metal legs, send us a tweet. Because I'd like to shake your hand. Anyway, um, you hear the the machinations of this place all over the place. And it's really, it's pretty cool. It is a very, pardon me if you don't agree, it's very Star Wars-y when you go in there. The things that you hear and see. It's cool. I like it. Like when I first walked in, I just, I walked in today for the first time in quite a while. And the first thing I saw was a mechanical construct who was a bard. Just right outside the front gate. Shut up. That's you, awesome. You shut up. Gosh, so like excited. right inside the front gate. <laughs> He's sitting there just playing the loop. And I was like, this is cool. I, I now I remember why I like Clockwork City. So, yeah, this time around I'm going to finish it. All right. The second major group of people within the, uh, within the community of the Brass Fortress Auxiliaries, 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 mm-hmm. whichever you like, whichever you like better. Pick These citizens of Clockwork City lacked the skill in machinery or magic required to become an apostle, but they possessed other notable traits. Adventurers, that's us. Traders, crafters. These were the foundation of this particular group of citizens. Auxiliaries, auxil- up at auxiliaries dwelled within the Brass Fortress and Slagtown. Kind of a laughable name. Um, And the Chancel of Transaction was the location of most merchants selling their wares while crafters resided in the Hall of Refined Techniques. So, merchants are in the Chancel of Transaction and the Hall Hall of Refined Techniques is where the crafters were. A domicile enchantment hug. Oh, my God. A domicile enchantment hub, which is near Slagtown. Yes. Was a place for uh, carpenters to sell their furnishings. So, talking to one of our great members, one of our uh, leaders in Lore Seekers, Blood Eye, who lives down under. She was laughing at Slagtown as being a reference from Australia. So she's like, somebody from Zoss, one of the designers 
of this game from Zoss. Must be from Australia because there's lots of references for Australian stuff. And Slagtown. Dom, what are you doing? What? Dominic. He's oh, from, you don't know oh, that? Yeah, oh, He's Dominic. From... I was like, what? In yeah. the, did you just have a Tourette's outburst? <laughs> <laughs> no, Dom. Yeah, so apparently Slagtown in Australia is um, yeah I, it's a place where bad people are oh fantastic yeah so anyway live on the show kind of live I'm going to look up what Slagtown is <laughs> Slagtown is a really unfortunate name being from the UK, that name makes me laugh every huh. time an NPC says it. Yeah. So, in the game, slag is a byproduct of refining ore, I take it. And I guess that's what it's referring to. Makes sense. Could be. But, in the UK, slag means prostitute. Oh, okay. Yeah. So anyway, I know it took a while for us to get there, but I had to find a more refined way to say that. <laughs> and I have, so we shall move on. <laughs> Slacktown. That's what you Googled? Yeah, that's what I Googled. Oh, totally. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to say the images. I didn't want to say the W word. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you didn't go to images. Yeah. It's a prostitute. So anyway. Okay. All right. Tarnished. The woman of the night. A woman of the night. Tarnished. This is the third class of citizens. And these were the citizens who really lacked any desirable or notable skills. Yeah. Sorry. These people lived in the slums of Slagtown and within the Clockwork City's Outlaws Refuge. So, you know, these are the the folks that are struggling. Feeling abandoned by Clockwork City society, the Tarnished were left to rely on themselves to survive in the slums. During the timeline of ESO, an orc by the name of Razgarug took charge of Slagtown as its official, unofficial mayor and helped keep stocks of its supplies. Despite his efforts to ask the apostles for assistance, his requests went largely unanswered because the apostles are complete douches, prompting him to rely on traveling adventures for help. This is where you come in. No spoilers. Okay. But an opportunity for you to help people. So get to it. Wildlife in Clockwork City. We touched on it before. Due to the synthetic nature of the Clockwork City and the metallic soil foundation, it is inhospitable to most forms of organic life forms. Knowing this would be a factor, Sotha Seal created various types of artificial vegetation that resembled flora found in Tamriel. Here's a fun fact, my good friend Jibs. A transient fungi known as the ironstock mushroom, which can be found in the game, is one of the only organic life forms known to naturally grow in Clockwork City and its surrounding landscape. The Everwound Wellspring is also a place with non-mechanical flora which manages to grow on its own despite Clockwork City's poor environmental conditions. That kind of makes things interesting when you're running yeah. around. Yeah. 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 It kind of makes me wonder, okay, so he did all these things. 
was he just did he felt like did he feel like he couldn't truly impact Nern? Because I feel like he could have really brought a lot to the table to Nern with this stuff, but He could have, but he wanted to do this whole thing on a miniature scale. You know, okay. maybe maybe before he died that was his plan to actually create a large clockwork city as opposed to the small crate size replica functional replica. Yeah. I don't know, I guess it's technically not a replica, is it? Because there's not a real-size one. Yeah. Okay. Kind of a one-of-a-kind, really. Yeah. Okay. Several types of mechanical life forms were also built by Sotha Seal to mimic organic animals and insects found on the mainland of Tamriel. These were known as fabricants. The creatures are a mixture of organic and synthetic parts. There's fabricant beetles, scorpions, spiders, nixhounds, nixoxen, kagooty. There's a kagooty mount. Take a look. That's what kagooty looks like. And other species that roam the artificial landscape. Here's a fun fact. Very unique to Clockwork City's fauna are the venomous fabric or the verminous fabricant and the hulking fabricant. These are two of Sothasil's creations that have no other counterpart known on Nern. So he's created a couple on his own. Okay, two-legged mechanical creatures created by Sothasil are called factotums. They are fully synthetic in their construction, and they fulfill a wide variety of uses, including performing maintenance and providing security. And then as I saw walking into Clockwork City today, bards, really cool. Refabricants are ancient Dwemer constructs collected by Sothasil. He tinkered with them and reforged them into his own creations. That wow. is life in Clockwork City and, and the outskirts. The actual outskirts themselves, or the actual outskirts itself, is known as the Radius. This is similar to Tamriel's Wilderness, but it's laden with artificial flora, for flora and fauna, which we just talked about. There are pools of boiling oil and fouled water. can be found everywhere throughout the landscape. Synthetic life can be found everywhere within the radius, and some can be downright hazardous to your health. So watch your step. Clockwork City itself is encompassed within a glass globe. And from the surface, it is perceived as that glass globe when you look to the sky. Um... That glass globe itself is referred to as the Celestiodrome and in the physical world is no larger than the size of a healthy Netch's body, which is kind of the same size as a crate, kind of the same size as a globe. The realm itself has an artificial day and night cycle with stars adorning the sky. The radius has inclement weather, just as the mainland of Tamriel has inclement weather. But it offers a mix of different hazards that may require the use of protective clothing and protective eye gear and a rebreather for your lungs. Because if you do not, breathing in the dust that's created in Clockwork City and the surrounding radius can cause a condition known as the brass lung. Wow, that sounds awful. <laughs> I know. I got the brass lung pop. <laughs> Not gonna make it. <laughs> yeah, rust lung. That's right. Okay, so notable locations in Clockwork City. There's the radius, which we just talked about, as the outskirts of Clockwork, the halls of regulation, 
performs many of those important functions that we talk to in Clockwork City, like the air, potable water, etc., the humidity, all that stuff. Um, then here's one that I'm probably going to completely F up. Insalabrious effluvium. Yeah, I'll give you that. Good, good, good job. Oh, I thank you. Um, this is a canyon that runs south of the Brass Fortress. It is likely where the sewage goes. Then oh, there's... Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> the poop. That's where that so goes. So it's Merkmeyer, pretty much. Yeah, it's it's Merkmeyer with brass poop. Oh, fantastic. Uh, the Halls of Regulation. This facility is... Um, it maintains Clockwork City's breathable air. And didn't we already talk about that? Well, we mentioned it. Yeah, it's because it's in here twice. Because I'm awesome. Okay. Then there is the um, Elegiac Replication. I got that right. Oh, my God. Cheers for me. This is a memorial to the people important to Sothasil's life and a blossoming place within the synthetic realm. So I'm going to have to visit that one again because I'm like, memorial to the people in his life? Like, is there a statue of his mom there? Important. Yeah, like that. Well, it ain't all Alexia. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> she was a real D-bag. Yeah. All right. Uh, the Everwound Wellspring, which we mentioned, one of the only places in the city where real flora can grow. Food is grown here. Then there is the uh, Mnemonic Planisphere. This is where Sothasil stored his memories in the form of stars. Remember, we talked about that. Quest line around that. Um, the Meyer Mechanica. This is a swamp region in the in Clockwork City. It runs into the halls of regulation. Okay, within the Brass Fortress itself, there is the Cogatum Centralis, which we talked about. In the Second Era, Sothisil dwelled within this Cogatum Centralis, which we talked about for many, many millennia, controlling the city from this throne. Um, and then in the late Third Era, Sothisil inhabited the dome of Sothisil, and was guarded by two imperfect giant factotums. The, by two imperfects, which were giant factotums. The mechanical fundament, this is the underbelly of the brass fortress. Um, within the mechanical fundament, the co- cogitum cogitum centralis could be accessed. The asylum sanctorum. Anybody? Yeah. Try, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sanctorum trial. Okay. Yeah. Used to seal the Dunmer Saints' Felms, Lothus, and Olms as their clockwork vessels caused them to turn mad over time. Guess what you have to do? Hmm. Cull the threat. I was going to say, I can guess. Right. So, uh, Clockwork Basilica, which we talked about, this is where the Clockwork Apostles conduct their research. Slagtown, girl. This is where the Tarnished live, the slums of the city, within its own Outlaw's Refuge. Some other uh, notable places, we we did not talk about the Halls of Fabrication. So there's the Halls of Fabrication, an enormous processing facility where Sotha Seal once collected and broke down Dwemer machinery, we did talk about this, to repurpose their brass into his own creations. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really fun trial, which we spoke about. Assembly, or huh. the, uh, assemble, sem, Assembly General is in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Clockwork City Vaults, which is uh, where the Houses of Divinity, Altelier, and other places 
person must traverse if they got there from the Clockwork City Globe entrance. Hmm. Yeah, so you'd have to go through the Clockwork City vaults if that's how you entered. Anyway. I feel like the best way to do the Clockwork City event is listening to this lore lesson and then go doing it. Yeah, which is what I'm going to do in about 10 minutes when we're done recording. <laughs> and I'm going to dive right oh, in. Oh, fantastic. Apparently I'm going to Menards for a new Christmas tree, so good, <laughs> good lucky you. Whoa, 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 whoa. A new Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. It's not even Thanksgiving yet. I know. What are you doing? Driving our listeners mad. <laughs> are you doing what your wife says? That's what you're doing. <laughs> Survive. <laughs> Survive. <laughs> that's what it's about, ladies and gentlemen. Survive. That's right. Anyway, that's Clockwork City, man. I, I really I liked that one. It's yeah, got me that was tickled. Meaty. Yeah, it's got yeah, me tickled I'm, to go. So mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this. Look at how pretty this book is. Up, up, uh, it looks pretty. Looks good. Yeah, well, I mean, pretty much everything about Vivek is pretty. Yeah, he's kind of a uh, glamour guy. He's a little glammy. Yeah. Um. He's um, he's got a good haircut. Uh, what hair? Exactly. Oh, he's trustworthy. Oh, I see. Because you're bald, he's bald. Okay, I got it. Yeah, that's right. Ooh, Lord v- Lord Vivek speaks. Okay. It is very very sad being mortal. There is happiness, yes, but mostly sadness. As I have said. Count only the happy hours for mortals. They are all too few. Quit laughing. But for gods, for me, there is no more feeling. Only knowing. That's by Lord Vivek. Okay. So you know. It was a mix between, I didn't know if I was watching the show Vikings or a mix of Nacho Libre there. All right. Well, there you go. That lends to my voice acting prowess. Clearly, sucks. you need to start a Fiverr account because that was amazing. Clearly, I have no time or I can't. No, that's not happening. Number one, because I suck at this. And number two, because you keep me way too freaking busy. It's true. Gotta keep you focused. I'm too busy rolling brand new tunes all yeah. the time. I'm all really the over things. Yeah, you. Well, you're you're even a better man than me now because I'm kind of over the leveling at the moment. So props to you. I just I love that process. I think that's my problem. I, do I enjoy too. the leveling process, I, and I'm still yeah. on that eternal hunt for my forever guy. Yeah. Well, the thing for me is it's not just leveling. It's like. There's other things I'm looking now to get involved in, like gold making in the SO and and uh, just trying to be very good at PvP with this new tune. So that's kind of my personal goals, I guess. Achievements, by the way. Yeah. I think you're amazing. If it helps, I think you're amazing. Oh, thank you so much. As a young chimer growing up in Residane, which is now Morrowind. I should have asked you that like as a quiz. What is Residane? It's now Morrowind. Yes. You know what? I have an idea. What's that? For one of our episodes, we are going to do a lore quiz. 
So oh. you better start studying okay. up. Okay. Oh, oh, real B. quick too to go off that. We we should do that on the first episode of the Twitch Tavern. Done. By the Done. way, folks, we're gonna do a live recording live on the show. It's all gonna take over Twitch, take place over Twitch, and you get to be a part. We'll let you know details, but uh, anyway. Did you say that it's gonna take over Twitch? Because I don't think that'll happen. I mean, we'll have like we're, ten we're, people in in the in the chat room. Oh, we will not. We will have more. We will have more. What do you think this is? We're gonna have ten people in chat. Diablo Four. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Shots fired. I'm sorry. I have no idea what you're talking about, but it sounded okay. great. Is Diablo 4 coming out? Wait, what? No, the exact opposite. I'm sorry, Diablo fans. That was a low blow. It was a low blow, and I'm sorry. Yeah. But I did it anyway. We are in, we are really badly encroaching on this lore lesson. You know that, right? With our banter. Yeah, we are. I'm, I'm backing off. It's all you. It's all you. All right. Let's talk about Lord Vivek. As a young... Is it Keimer or Chimer? Did we... It's Keimer. Keimer. As a young Keimer, growing up in Residing, which is now the Morrowind area, Vivek was a friend and a confidant of Lord Indril Nerevar. Nerevar was a military commander and representative of the United Keimer people. He worked to unite the Great Houses and the Ashlander tribes during that time. So because of his loyalty as a friend and his battlefield prowess in fighting for Nerevine, Vivek was given a position as one of Nerevar's counselors. Along with Vivek, two other counselors served Nerevar. His wife, Almalexia. I never knew that, that Almalexia was Nerevar's wife. I Did didn't know either. That. And a brilliant scholar and douchebag, by the name of Sothasil. <laughs> He's both of those things. Um, Nerevar had established a very fragile relationship with the Dwemer King, Dumok Dwarf King. We have talked about this before. We're going to get a little bit more in depth on it today. Um, and remember, this is we're talking about Nerevar, not Vivek. Vivek was a counselor to Nerevar. So Nerevar had established this very fragile um, controversial relationship with the Dwemer King, Dumak Dwarf King. Um, both parties were in a united front against the Nordic invasion that was occurring in the region. So although this was an unlikely union, it was not taken without words of warning from Nerevar's three counselors. They were skeptical. So, at some point, the point I'm about to talk about, the relationship became very, very stressed between the Dwemer and the Keimer. And this is why. After learning of the Dwemer's plan to create a massive mechanical god powered by the discovery of the Heart of Lorcan, the two leaders, Nerevar and the Dwemer King, fell at odds. Nerevar ended up declaring war on the Dwemer, and then they, they ended up in battle. The culmination of the war happened at the Battle of Red Mountain in the first era, year 700. While the battle raged on, Nerevar took a small contingent of soldiers into the Red Mountain itself, where they fought the Dwemer King and his guard. 
This action caused Kagernak, remember Kagernak's tools, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Kagernak was the chief architect of the Dwemer. He had unlocked the mysteries of the Heart of Lorcan. So the fact that this little battle was going on within Red Mountain, Kagernak hastily used the tools of Kagernak on the heart. Obviously, this was a grave mistake. Um, if you remember back, this is why, as far as anyone can surmise, this is the action that angered the heart of Lorcan and caused the disappearance of the Dwemer from Nern altogether. When the tools were used on the heart of Lorcan by Kagernak, the Dwemer vanished. All of them. Poof. Gone. Bye. Wow. So, when the Battle of Red Mountain had ended, the Tribunal, which consisted of Almalexia, Sothisil, and Lord Vivek, convinced the Nerevar that Kagernak tools, Kagernak's tools should be placed into safekeeping and studied only. That's it. Don't use them. Study them. Just in case the Dwemer ever return, you'll have them. Do not use them. So the Nerevar agreed, but only on one condition. His condition was that the tribunal swears an oath to Azura and the tools of Kagernak would never be utilized in the manner that the Dwemer had intended to rob the heart of Lorcan of its divine power. When this was requested, the trio of Almalexia, Sothisil, and Vivek took the oath. They would never use the tools to harness the power of the heart of Lorcan. Becomes very important in just a few minutes. Kagernak's tools were left under the protection of Vorin Dagoth. He was the High Counselor of House Dagoth and very trusted by Nerevar. Dagoth, however, had plans of his own. He was left with the tools for far too long and began experimenting with the tools on the heart of Lorcan. So remember, this is Dagoth. It was believed that he was left with the tools for way too long and his experimentation had driven him mad. Nerevar found out about this and then Dagoth himself refused to relinquish the tools back to Nerevar. Dagoth's guards attacked Nerevar and his entire contingent, committing treason in the process. Because remember, House Dagoth was part of um, Nerevar's contingent. So Nerevar, who was mortally wounded in the attack, um, Vorin ended up retreating and was presumed to have perished because of the severity of his own wounds. It was a vicious battle between Nerevar, his contingent, and uh, Vorin Dagoth and his contingent. So both were very, very severely wounded. However, Nerevar, on his deathbed, because he was, he was dying because of this battle, confirmed his wishes with the tribunal again. Heed your own advice. Do not use the tools of Kagernak. Aha. Uh -huh. Fun fact. Because of the War of the First Council described above, the Dwemer mysteriously disappeared, which we mentioned. House Dagoth was completely dismantled and Lord Nerevar was killed in this process. 
but the most challenging times were yet to come. After the death of the Nerevar, the tribunal came to rule over the Chimer. They rose to power and began to rule over the Chimer. They all had the same ideals, but after the Nerevar died, somebody needed to lead them. Several years into their rule, our buddy Sothasil revealed to his buddies, Almalexia and Vivek, that he had learned how to use, utilize the tools of Kagranak to safely extract the power from the heart of Lorcan. So the seal, the devil, convinced Amalexia and Vivek that by utilizing the power from the heart, they could become living gods that Residane deserved, that Morrowind deserved. So Amalexia and Vivek were so convinced by this empowering speech by Sothasil, the devil, that the power was extracted from the heart of Lorcan and the tribunal's ascension to godhood became complete. In that instant, however, because they broke the not only the wishes of the Nerevar, but they really made Azura angry. Azura herself appeared and cursed them for defying their oath to Nerevar and mocking and defying the will of the gods. So Thassil, the devil, dismissed her claim, and in that instant, all of the Chimer were changed to Dunmer, including the tribunal. Yes. And that's when their skin changed. Correct. This is when their skin changed. So the Dunmer as a whole were terrified because they had all these changes to their skin. But Sothasil, oh, he's such a good guy. He reassured them that the change was a blessing. So they were reluctant at first, but a majority of Dunmer society eventually began to accept and worship the tribunal as new gods, despite their lack of understanding of what actually had happened. Fun fact. When Azura cursed the Chimer, she assured the tribunal that this was the fate that they themselves chose and all their kind would share in their fate, quote unquote, from now until the end of time, unquote. So they really angered her and angered the gods because they went against the Nerevar and went against their oath to Azura and what they said they were going to do. So despite this, their ascension to godhood showed the tribunal some great success for a while. Um, as the years progressed, each of the deities, each of the three of the tribunal, found their, founded their own city of their own name. Um, in response to Vivek, Vivek's city was located on the southern coast of Vardenfell and was the largest city um, through the power that they wielded, the tribunal eventually learned how to remove the appearance of the curse that had plagued them. Vivek, however, chose to appear as both Chimer and Dunmer, which is why you see him as half and half. Vivek became the most popular ruler among the tribunal due to his great heroism exhi exhibited through his great divinity. Vivek proved his worth and his loyalty to his people on several occasions. For instance, he distinguished himself as a very staunch commander during the Fourscore War, 
in which he helped bring to an end with his diplomatic charms. He also saved the Dunmer population from certain death when he flooded a small part of Morrowind to kill Akaviri invaders in the Second Era, year 572. Lord Vivek became known for his poetry and his writing of very personal versions of, of history and philosophy. And as a political leader, he became considered the authority on several esoteric and metaphysical concepts, such as how one would attain divinity. Lord Vivek was considered a benevolent king, a guardian warrior, and a poet, um, a poet and artist by Dunmary subjects. Fun fact. Lord Vivek created his personal military called the Buoyant Armagers, who exemplified all of his very best traits. You'll probably remember if you've gone through uh, Vardenfell and any of the Morrowind content that the Buoyant Armagers, of which is also a motif, uh, they play a big part. They're so the tribunal... Iconic. Yeah, they're very iconic. The tribunal established its very own temple where the new teaching of the trio began to flourish. One aspect was that uh, this was taught that at the temple, that the tribunal of Almalexia Sothasil and Lord Vivek were each anticipated by good Daedra, seemingly to kind of legitimize the tribunal's existence before their, before during their mortal lives. So Lord Vivek was said to have been anticipated by Mafala. The Dunmer people did not quite believe that Lord Vivek had a basis of murder, sex, and secrets, which is, I guess, what would be reflected if you were anticipated by Mafala. But um, as they, what they kind of did accept was that behind Vivek's divine benevolence, maybe he did harbor like more of a darker and sinister past. So that's kind of what they, because he didn't quite act that way like you would expect Mafala would suggest because he was so divine and good to his people. Right. But they kind of believe that in order to do so, he must have had some type of a jaded past. That's like the kind of the way that I understand that. Fun fact. Lots of fun facts in this one. The Ashlanders, who were united under Nerevar, never truly accepted the tribunal and have always held very, very strong beliefs that the trio of Almalexia, Vivek, and Sothasil murdered Nerevar. And this really shows during those quest lines, especially when you do the, uh, the Ashlander stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's a bad kitty. No fighting in here, kitties. Okay. It became a question long asked and speculated by both Ashlanders and Dunmer society. Did the trio actually kill the Nerevar? <laughs> I don't know. All right. <laughs> the return to Red Mountain. So this kind of starts to lend to the fall of the tribunal here a little bit. Periodically, the tribunal would visit the Red Mountain to perform a ritualistic bath, replenishing their divine powers. But in the second era, year 882, the tribunal discovered that Dagoth Ur and his forces did not die. Dagoth had survived. Not only, and of course now he calls himself Dagoth Ur. Not only had Dagoth survived, he had become way more powerful than the tribunal combined. 
So Dagoth and his forces attacked and drove off the tribunal, blocking their access to the heart of Lorcan for over 400 years. Because of this, the tribunal's influence and power began to weaken and Morrowind's society became much more fragile because of it. In order to keep Dagoth Ur and his forces contained to the region of Red Mountain, the tribunal erected a barrier called the Ghost Fence. We've already talked about this in a, in a previous lore lesson. So Vivek was tasked with maintaining the Ghost Fence, and his two tribunal companions of Sothisil and Almalexia eventually lost hope of ever regaining their power because Dagoth was blocking the heart of Lorcan. Sothisil and Almalexia lost in in their attempt to find Lorcan to find the heart of Lorcan again. Sothisil and Almalexia lost two of Kagranak's tools to Dagoth Ur's forces, and they were captured while attempting to reach the heart. They were both rescued by Lord Vivek. Now, knowing that he faced an enemy that he could not defeat by himself, Lord Vivek shifted his focus on not losing the battle as a whole. He decided to turn into the warrior poet, basically. This made him even more of a warrior poet. Now, the reason that we're doing lore lesson number 36 on Vivek it's very appropriate that he, because he wrote the 36 lessons to act as a guide for the Nerevarine. Now, although it was a mystery to any living Dunmer at the time, the Nerevarine was believed to be the reincarnation of the Chimer warlord Inderil Nerevar, under which the tribunal originally served. And he was Vivek's longtime friend. So in the writing of these 36 lessons... Vivek believed that the coming of the Nerevarine was necessary to defeat Dagoth Ur and his forces. Okay. Fun fact about Vivek's 36 lessons. They're incredibly cryptic and very speculative, but they help to explain the eventual, the eventual loss of the tribunal's godhood. They also told tales of Vivek's legendary spiel, which was known as Muatra, Spear, not Spiel, as in Spielberg. This was an actual spear called Muatra. And the interpretations of the 36 lessons were seemingly designed to be kind of left to the individual to interpret as they read them. Many of the 36 lessons speak of the Hortator, or the Nerevar, the collective military leader of the Chimer people before his death. That's what they considered the Hortator. One can very, very clearly surmise that the close relationship between Vivek and his friend and why he felt so loyal to him, even in the subsequent betrayal of receiving the power of the Heart of Lorcan. Now, reading through the 36 lessons, are very, it's very long and very diluted. And by the time I was finished writing this lore lesson, I was... Famished. I did not want to read through the entire 36 lore lessons. They are or the 36 lessons. They are so long. And our friends over at uh, the Tales of Tamriel have taken 
shoot, I think 36 of their casts and they have actually gone through each of these. They've done reading on each of these lessons. Go listen to it because it's pretty good and they're very, very long. And I did not want to repeat that and do that here. So what I did do is in my article on our website is I linked it. So you can, uh, it's just a link to the UESP so that you can read through them and interpret them yourself because they're long and very speculative. Okay. So have at it. But Vivek is an incredibly complex creature. But reading more about this and more about their betrayal to the Nerevin and to Azura, I like the Tribunal much less now. They're manipulators and power hungry and I'm just not about yeah. that. So anyway, that's my personal yeah. opinion. No, I agree. Like I feel the same way. Like it, it was kind of like one of those things where ignorance is bliss with them. Right. Um, especially in Morrowind when I was first playing and learning about them. They, they appeared to be so much greater to me then. Yeah. I wanted to try something different this week. Did you just say What? I thought this was a family show and you just literally yelled I don't, I don't, I don't know what you're saying. All I hear is a bleep going on right now. I'm not saying it's terrible, but I'm just saying. Oh, okay. Right. Why? Maybe I did. Okay. Maybe I got excited. Are you ready for this lore lesson? I'm ready. Freaking weirdo. <laughs> so I wanted to try something different this week. Um, maybe something that we haven't tried before. Maybe this is something new that I've never seen before. It is. We are covering some of the forgotten races of Nern in Lord Lesson 37. Turns out there's a lot. And I actually had to shorten this one down a little bit, but it is long. Some pretty interesting information here. There are several different races that we have not covered in previous lore lessons. You know, we've covered Bretons, Imperials, Nords, Red Guards, the whole gamut, except for several additional races of both men and mer. Yeah, we did the... Uh, by the way, folks, if you're looking for that, the lore, that would be uh, Volume 1, I believe. We covered all the races, except for Imperial. We did that Volume 2, I think. We did. We did. So, so a lot of these will sound familiar to you because you've definitely run into them in the world or you've read lore books about them. And I know that we've mentioned some of them, but we have not detailed who they are and where they come from. So... I'm going to start going through these, and these are just like little blurps about all these different types, like man, mer, beast folk. There's a lot of beast folk. So, okay. So we're going to start with the different races of man. The first being the Kothringi, which I know we've talked about before. This is a silver-skinned race of tribal folk from Black Marsh. They were very avid sailors. They were thought to have been a major source of spread of the Kanahatan flu in second era year 560 to Valenwood and nearby provinces. And they were said to have spread the flu via ship. I also believe that there is a skin available in Elder Scrolls Online that is Cothringi, the silver skin race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just looking at it yesterday. Yeah, so the race is, was said to have been completely exterminated by the flu, although some of the infected managed to flee Tamriel by sea, never to be seen again. 
and other Cothringi survived the flu through more unnatural means, such as making packs with the Daedra. There's actually a quest line in ESO at Stillrise Village in Shadowfen that details this. Really? Yes. You know, every once in a while we'll mention these quest lines like way out of left field, like, you know, that you didn't know were there. And they're so, like, crucial to good lore. It's funny. How good that lord! Anyway. Good lord! Yeah. Okay, so the next race are the Needs. And these races include the different tribes of the Horwali, the Orma, and the Yurpest. Those three I'd never heard of. Definitely have heard of the Needs before. N-E-D-E-S. N-E-D-E-S. Yep. Got it. Nailed it. So, it... This is a human race, unknown origin. The Needs inhabited Tamriel during the Merithic and First Era. Needic society revolved mostly around the study and worship of the constellations. Sounds a lot like the Sumerians to me. Mm. For all you ancient aliens people. Um, the Needic society revolved around constellations and beings called celestials. Definitely heard of them. Much of Nedic society began to decline as the race to assimilate into other cultures. Um, the remaining needs were eventually wiped out by the Yokudans in the region of Volenfell. What a bunch of nice people. Next race are the Reachmen. I know you've heard of the Reachmen. These are also known as the Witchmen of High Rock. Yes, male witches. Super creepy. Pretty interesting. Um, High Rock, tribal group of Breton, the Breton descent, but they didn't consider themselves exclusively Breton and their culture was very tribal and primitive, but they inhabited the reach, uh, and also High Rock. They were very, ter- very territorial as they considered themselves the true owners of the reach. So any visitors were not welcome, very strong in nature based magic, druids, and their shamans venerate uh, Hagraven matrons, who in turn teach them this primitive form of magic. Later on in their history, the Reachmen rebels became known as the Forsworn, led by Hagravens. Skyrim, anyone? Mm-hmm. No? Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. So I specifically remember coming down a hill. I don't even remember the, where this was, but it was in Skyrim. Came down this hill and I ran into a hag raven. And I was like, oh, she's gross. She must die. So I sat there lobbing arrows at her until she died. And it was in her little hag raven camp. And then a little bit down the way was a huge forsworn encampment. So when I read this, I was like, that makes a lot of sense now. Because I was in the game. So there's that. It's awesome. Yeah. And then I went and absolutely destroyed all this this huge force horn encampment <laughs> and took all their gear and had to make like two or three different trips back to the uh, merchant to sell all their crap. So it's worth. fun. Yeah, totally worth it. All right. Let's talk about um, one in particular additional race of myrrh that we've never talked about. Uh, elven races certainly have a very, very rich history in the land of Tamriel. One would consider the cornerstone of life as we know it on the planet. But 
We've considered the Aldmer, the Altmer, the Aliads, the Bosmer, the Keimer, the Dunmer, Dwemer, Falmer, Maurmer, and Orsimer. But we did miss one. I'd never heard of this one. The Sinistral Myrrh. Nope, I never heard of it either. Very, very interesting race. This is a race of elves from Yokuda. They were known as the left-handed elves. Insert reaction here, Jibs. Sorry, my mic was muted. No, no problem. I'm left-handed. Oh, my God. How coincidental. Yeah. Weirdo. <laughs> they were not friends to the Yokudans. Yokudans, if you remember, the ancient Red Guard on the Isle of Yokuda. A war raged between the two races for over a thousand years, and the left-handed elves were eventually defeated by the Okudans when Oracalk weapons, supplied by the Diagna, an avatar of hunting, were supplied to the Okudans to help defeat these poor left-handed elves. I mean, they couldn't swing right-handed. So, if I was Yokudan, I'd probably come at them from the right side, right? Hmm. I'm just You would think so, wouldn't you? I'm just saying. You would think. So the elves were defeated, and the Yokuda, Yokuda, the island, subsequently sunk. Remember, we covered that when we talked about the Yokudans. Leading many to believe that the left-handed elves were completely extinct, although many believe that there is some relation to the modern Maurmer and the Sinistral Myrrh, or the left-handed elves. My people. Your peeps, the Maurmer? No, the left-handed elves. I was going to say, dude, the Maurmer almost killed you. I know. I'm not a big fan of it. Still have the scars. Okay. Sensitive to heat. Sensitive to heat. Okay, so let's get into a bulk of this lore lesson, and that is the beast folk of Nern. There's zero doubt that you have run into beast folk in Nern when you're out and about in the world. So for some of you, you play as Beast Folk. Argonian or Khajiit are the two most well-known Beast Folk in Tamriel and can definitely be your jam because they're really cool races. However, there are many more Beast Folk races in the Elder Scrolls universe, and I've compiled a comprehensive list for you. Mm-hmm. The first, the Birdmen. This race of Beast Folk who inhabited the city isle in Cyrodiil during the Merithic era. Long time ago. The only known record that this race even existed originates from a poem by the name of Father of the Neben, which details the adventures of Topal the pilot. And we've already talked about Topal the pilot. He was a, a cartographer and explorer. Very, very famous Aldmer. He is responsible for charting the coastline of Tamriel and discovering the Niben River and Topal Bay, what became known as Topal Bay. In his travels, Topal the pilot described a brilliant, quote-unquote, brilliant, flightful creatures of glorious colors with taloned feet. Sounds like big giant bird to me. Topal the pilot and his crew were said to have integrated with the famed birdmen for a time before they departed back home. The birdmen were believed to have been wiped out by the Khajiit, freaking cats, cats and birds, I tell you, sometime before the Aliads migrated to Cyrodiil. So that just lends to how old the Khajiit are as a race as well. Marathic era. Yep. 
No kitty. No kitty. No kitty. Uh, yes, there definitely. I see what you did. There was kitty. Okay. Here's one you've heard of because you've probably killed a bunch of them. The dreg. Is it Drew or Dreg? I don't know. I always said Drew. Yeah. <laughs> As in Barrymore? I feel, kind of feel like an idiot the more I say that out loud. As in Carrie? <laughs> I'll, I'll, let's go with Drew. Um, let's go I with, don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's Drow or Dreg. <laughs> to me, it's Chimer Chimer. Tomato, tomato. So, for the auspices of the show, we will go with Dreg. As, yes, Dreg. So anyway, this octopus-like beast folk, they were routinely hunted for their hide and the wax from their shells. Yes, I've hunted tons of them in places. Uh, For at least one year of their life, the Dreg become land-based during a period of breeding. During this time, they become very aggressive and will attack and kill indiscriminately using very powerful shock attacks. They go down easy, by the way. Um, they're known to cocoon their victims in mud and they feed them to their young. Sounds awesome. Dreg are found in coastal regions all over Tamriel, but land-based dreg can also be found very far inland as far as Cyrodiil and Craglorn. When encountered in the water... Dreg are known to be way more docile and more mild-mannered as they're more um, interested in scavenging for food than messing with you. Okay, next race. The This is Beast Folk. Giant. Uh, we've definitely run into giants before. This is a race of enormous humanoids with incredible strength. Giants can be found in the wilds of Skyrim, High Rock, Hammerfell, Cyrodiil, and Valenwood. A very primal race of beast folk, giants are massive in every way. They tower above most races. They usually stand between 11 and 12 feet tall. That sounded explicitly um, specific to me. Like, they're only in between 11 and 12 feet tall. I'm like, they don't have, like, any Andre the Giant giants? I mean, if, like, you're 10'5", you clearly don't fit the bill. Yeah, or any, like... They don't have mini-me giants. It's just you are 11 and 12, and that's it. So, anyway. Female giants. This was a very good point. Female giants are much less common than males, and the only known sightings of females have been in the Rothgar region during the Second Era. Have you ever once seen a female giant? Not that I can recall, but it makes me wonder how they reproduce. Like, if... Oh. I don't... I... That's some Maybe pow- that's an image we should just that is some leave it alone. Powerful stuff right there. <laughs> there is a lot of torque going on, I tell you that much. That's a lot of love. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Jeez, I thought Lyris was huge. <laughs> Ooh, you oh. cannot come back from that. Nope. I got all kinds of comments I want to make, but I shall <gasps> not. Because I'm a clean man on the outside, (laughs) but dirty on the inside. Okay, let's keep going. (laughs) Giants have very moderate intelligence and are able to fashion tools and clothing for themselves. They're also able to tend mammoths. You'll normally see there are mammoths usually in the same area. Uh, They harness fire in their rustic camps. I have made fire. Fire! 
Giants typically belong to clans with a high chieftain and are used to sharing the landscape with other races. They're usually pretty harmless. They like to keep to themselves. They don't really mess with anybody else. But if you get too close or if they are provoked, a la Skyrim, they will put you skybound with one swipe. Yeah. They will defend their space. And if you've never seen a dead body flying aimlessly through the air, limp and lifeless, just run up to one in Skyrim and stand there. <laughs> You'll find out what I mean. Yeah, it's the same way in East March and ESO, yeah. by the way, in case you're wondering. Or YouTube it. It is freaking hilarious. Mm. All right, next one. Goblin Kin. Now, this has... Several different types of beast folk are, are uh, part of this particular beast race. Um, it includes goblins, ogres, and reiklings. You've seen every one of these out there. You've killed tons of them, I'm sure. Goblins. Yep. A primitive, violent humanoid found in all regions of Tamriel. They're, these are the cockroaches of Tamriel. They typically live in sewers. Caves and ruins with very small based, small clan-based groups. They have a wide variety of sizes from three feet tall to over eight feet tall. I have not seen an eight-foot goblin yet. Goblins have green skin, yellow eyes, slitted pupils, canine-looking teeth, and pointed elven ears. Goblin clans are typically led by the largest goblin warlord or a shaman. And they become their religious leaders. I remember those from Skyrim, the shamans particularly. Yes. Um, I actually did a lot of reading about goblins when I was looking into Reiklings. And they are very fascinating, like so fascinating. I wish we could have an option to play as a goblin. Man, the moment, you know what's funny? The moment that you brought that up. I think ESO is due for another race, but the moment that you said goblin, I'm like, ooh. I want that. Dude, it'd be an awesome race. I mean, they're they're dumb, but they're certainly smart enough to to play a race and use magic. You know, that would be a really cool race to do. What's the passive? Dumb. Right. Dumb. So, okay, ogres. A large, dim-witted race of humanoids. Actually, it says humanoids, but they're, yeah, they're beast folk. Yeah. Damn it, UESP. Okay. Uh, found throughout Tamriel, best known for their incredible strength and foul odor. I got tripped up there on the simple word odor because Jibs put the words cash right next to dim-witted race in my notes <laughs> as I'm trying to go through this lore lesson. I'm professional, I swear. Uh, All right, I'll stop. Yes, not so much. And all I can think of right now is getting a running start and flicking your nutsack. <laughs> which would bring pain <laughs> quite sure that would bring pain molag ball bag to a whole new yes, level all right yes okay so uh, we'll continue okay, uh, okay. large dim-witted race of humanoids found throughout tamriel are the ogres they are known for incredible strength and incredibly foul odor they have a bluish color skin very large sharp teeth and elven ears not eleven elven ears depending on the climate and the region that they dwell they may be covered with shaggy white hair to keep them warm a la um rothgar way up there in the cold yep they have hair ogres are hunter gatherers 
They're paleo. They're totally paleo. They live in a small primitive community in remote backwood regions and natural cave systems. Ogres are thought to have some sort of organized culture and they construct large piles of bones in their layers. Probably why they stink. Even though they're considered dim-witted, some ogres have been known to be quite intelligent. For example, the Iron Hand Ogres of Stormhaven pose a very serious military threat in the uh, timeline of ESO. Now, see, that's stuff like that I would like to... Uh, I need to go. I'm sure it's in the questing and you go it through is. there. But Iron Hand Ogres, look them up in Stormhaven. You definitely will deal with them. It's cool. That's what I love about UESB is that they put, and Wiki, they will put lore from the games directly into, like, right from Elder Scrolls Online, right into the information for the race. Right. Yeah. So I dig it. Okay. I know you've run into Reichlings. They're all over the northern areas. Small race of blue-skinned humanoids. Reichlings are native creatures um, native to northern Solstheim. They are very cunning, aggressive, and dangerous in groups. They possess very little culture of their own. Reichlings steal relics from other races and form strange attachments to them. Reichlings use spears, lances, blades, and shields and axes in combat. They're small enough to tame and ride the tusk bristleback boars as their war mounts. That, that's fun yeah i thought that was really cool and it, this is true because that's what the those bristlebacks are all over where the reichlings are so the origins of the reichlings are a mystery though some believe there's some connection between this small race and the snow elves interesting yes very interesting okay this next race we have mentioned in a previous lore lesson and I, I'll explain a little bit about what I personally think about this race, but it is very interesting to me that we do not have them in Elder Scrolls Online. The Imga. This is a race of great apes. They are native to Valenwood and were known for being incredibly intelligent. Living peacefully alongside the Bosmer and deep in the forests, the Imga wore capes, practiced with swords, and attempted to use perfect pronunciation of their words despite their very deep baritone voices. Maybe I should hang out with them. I'm pretty sure they would rip your arms off and beat you with them. <laughs> so That's what I do! Story. You're so <laughs> Maybe you would die, That's Jins. what I would do. Most Imga uh, had some type of a title attached to their name, such as Baron, Duke, or Earl. <laughs> I lolled. Duke. Hey, the Earl. Duke. The Duke. Most Imga, many Imga, <laughs> I'm typing my corrections in my... <laughs> In my writing. It's considered not concerted. Concerted. Many Imga considered the Altmer as superior beings and went to great lengths to imitate them. For example, try to contain your laughter. This is one of those YouTube videos. Try not to laugh. 
For example, some Imga would shave their bodies and powder their skin white to more closely resemble the high elves. <laughs> I have so many things I could say right now, but I'm not going to. Oh. So here's where it rubs me just a little bit. Here's where the razor burn comes in. Pun completely intended. Okay. The Imga disappeared from Valenwood around second era year 582 to wait out the end of the plane meld in the Alliance War. Second year Hmm. or second era year 582. One year before the Elder Scrolls Online. So my thought is that the Imga were written out of the script of Elder Scrolls Online because it would, you would, they would have had to render a completely new race that was not a humanoid race. And it would have been more work. So I think they wrote them out. This is just my personal opinion because it would have been too hard to put them into the game. Or maybe there are devs listening to our show and they're flipping off their phone right now or the computer where they're listening to the podcast going, no, you're an idiot. Shut up. That's absolutely not. Yeah. But you've done the quest line in Vanlinwood. Oh yeah. Does it even have hints that the Imga would have fit in it? I do not think there is any reference to the Imga at all, hmm. which is I feel like there's more uh, to that. Maybe though. I, I mean, need obviously to do it's more. not the difficulty, but I just, I, I, uh, I, w- I would like to be the fly on the wall for that. Yeah, and now that you say that, now my Bobo Bosmer, I think I think I'm going to take him back through. Did you say Bilbo? Bobo. Oh, okay. Yeah, which actually one of our members gave me the best name for that guy. I should have. Bobo Baggins would have been awesome. Bobo Baggins. Yeah. Thank you, April. <laughs> that actually is a hilarious name. Oh. But I did not build Bobo Baggins. I built Oaken the Lore Seeker. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, the Imga, it was a very interesting race to me. Do I want to play an Imga? No, I don't. I just, you know, an ape-like race that, that wears a cape and is considered a Baron, Duke, or Earl. <laughs> that sounds really like, um, it's a little... Like too much uh, fantasy for me. Like, what's the name of that one movie? The uh, the Wizard, the Wardrobe, and the Lion or Narnia? That's a little too Narnia. Lion, for me. the Witch, the Wardrobe. The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe. That's a little too Narnia for old Cash, but um, it's interesting nonetheless that they disappeared a year before. They couldn't have been that smart. Like we're out. We don't have anything to do with this stupid boar. Peace not out. only yeah, not only did they leave, but to leave absolutely no trace, nothing at all, it's nothing a, in the where'd they in go the writing. Yeah. Where did they go? Like, there's no settlements that they used to live in. They just completely wiped the world of their existence and any proof of their existence. Come on, man. I need more hmm. than that. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, uh, that's almost Dweemer-like right there. What'd you call me? And heck, they, the Dweemer know more. We know more about the Dweemer than we do the race who disappeared the exact right. same way. Exactly. Just about. Exactly. So. That was. A, that's a great point. But, I mean, there's... The Dweamer are just way too cool of a race to not have proof of them all over the place. Right. You know, and we and we do. I mean, all the Dweamer ruins and everything, it just got, it's a huge part of our gameplay. But it would be really cool, like, if you're, okay, 
you just like riddle me this. You're running around in the world and you look on the ground and you find a cape with some, maybe some bananas. I mean, they're, they're apes, apes like bananas. So maybe there's some banana peels in a cape on the ground someplace. And you're like, Oh my God, the Imga, this is where they were. That would have been that totally would be fun. a subtle, that would, uh, it'd be awesome. And then Donkey Kong would show up and, uh, Diddy yeah. Kong and, Exactly. Yeah, some barrels or something on the ground. Yeah, you know, some ladders. We're such dorks. (laughs) (laughs) All right, next race. I know you've killed these. The Lamia, Lamia, the Lamia. Those ones. (laughs) That was super weird. (laughs) My Khajiit just meowed at the door. See, See if he does it again. <laughs> oh, He's like, hilarious. bro, why is your door closed? <laughs> All right, the Lamia. This species of amphibious beast folk has a serpentine appearance with the torso of a woman and the tail of a snake. That's scary. The female race yeah. lays eggs and lives on water or land, and they do not venture far from the water. According to Fable, Lamia can interbreed with other mortal races. Insert whatever you want right there. Lamia are incredibly intelligent, can speak the common tongue, and are very adept at the magical arts. They're fierce protectors of their young. They can stunt their opponents by using debilitating shrieks and powerful claws to frighten and drain an attacker's stamina. Been on the receiving end of that before. Due to their hostile attitude and primitive nature, Lamia have not had a major impact on Tamriel throughout history. I'd marry one. I would too. They're kind of hot. And like when you when you come through the uh, through the tunnels, you know they're yeah. there because they go. La, 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 la. Yeah. You're like, what's up, girl? I'd be down. I'd be down with that. Fierce protectors of their young, magical arts. I'm gonna give birth to a wizard. I'm down. Or she'll give birth. You sound not, like Harry you know, Potter's mother. Giving yeah. birth to a wizard. Get it? Ha ha. Ha. This next race. Really cool one. I would like to learn more about them. The Lilmothete. We have talked about them before. Literally meaning the ones from Lilmoth are a... They're known as the Fox Folk. The Lil, Lilmothete were a Vulpine race. Uh, beast race who once inhabited black marsh with the appearance of a humanoid fox they were said to have been related to the khajiit the lilmothete were a nomadic tribal group that founded the settlement at black rose a ruin which became a very notable prison by the akaviri potentate versidu shai in the second era black rose prison anyone Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That place is freaking evil. Have you been in that yet? I haven't, yes, I haven't I yet. have, and it's evil. Speaking of evil, Bloodroot Forge, the Minotaur. Yeah. Also called Man Bulls or Bull Men. <laughs> man Bull. Man Bulls. Not the other one. Okay. This species of beast folk is the has the body of a man and the head of a bull. They have thick gray or brown skin and large curved horns. 
Minotaur are able to clothe themselves in a loincloth or a shawl, and many wear nose rings. Some wear leather armor, where others prefer to be completely naked. And don't get caught behind that dude. <laughs> because it will... It will ruin... Go on. What you think about yourself as a man. Go, go. <laughs> It will definitely ruin that. Anyway. Uh, Minotaur were known to have very close ties to the Empire and were among Empress Alessia's most devoted defenders. They have an innate resistance to magic and the ability to wield very large weapons and their own horns in combat... Minotaurs are notoriously fierce combatants. Yeah. All right. I'm going to warn you right now. Mind out of the gutter. Got it for the next one? Okay, got it. Mind out of the gutter. Okay. The next beast race is a nymph. Mind out of the gutter. Found in certain areas of Daggerfall, the nymph, oh, is a beautifully dangerous creature... They are adept at magic and can drain their opponent's health. To defeat a nymph, oh, silver or better weapons are required. <laughs> Nymphos have very melodic tongues and sound very similar. Their language sounds very similar to Eliadun or fairy language. Hmm. Nymphs. Oh, okay. very interesting race. Oh, here's one. Here's one of my favorites. Quick, get the okay. salt. Get the freaking salt. salt. The slowed are a slug-like race of beast folk living in the coral kingdoms of Thross in southwest Tamriel. I hate the slowed. Let's make let's Vile. be slowed race. That's the next race. Slowed's. Oh my god! Calling How it now. stupid! How <laughs> stupid would that be? That'd be awful. Slowed are very Imagine the curious. Sludge that'd be left behind. Now we've already oh. talked about the slowed before. We're gonna awful. do so again. The slowed are very curious, slow, and calculated in everything they do. Slowed are known to take years planning and considering before taking any action. Completely the opposite of me. Slowed are extremely selfish and will only consider laws, loyalties, or friendships as long as they are a benefit to themselves. Hmm. A bunch of dicks. <laughs> the slowed are intensely attuned to magic and are well known for their necromantic prowess. They are very isolationist and they are at war with the entirety of Nern for no other reason other than they are complete douchebags. The Slowed are responsible for releasing the Thracian Plague upon Tamriel in the First Era, which literally killed over half the population. You really can't come back from that. No, you, you killed cannot. half of Nern. Yep. Or, or, yeah, you know what I mean. Terrible. Mm -hmm. Terrible race. So, okay. Let's talk about the Akaviri. Very interesting race. Oh my god, there's still so much. Okay, so the Akaviri, this term itself is used to refer to any sentient creature that inhabits Akavir. The region of Akavir has never been inhabited by Myrrh, 
and the only men that have ever lived there were said to have been eaten long ago by the vampiric serpent folk of Teshi. Seshi. T-S-A-E-S-C-I. Thank you, Elder Scrolls Online. How the hell do you say that? I'm going to say Teshi. <laughs> Thus says Jesus. Every episode up to this point. <laughs> My God. Okay. Um, so part of the Akaviri are dragons. A very rarely seen race of large reptilian beasts. Never during the timeline of ESO. Unless they were bones brought back by necromancers. Dragons are rumored to have come from Akavir, which literally means dragon land. They are large scaled. Like I got to tell you what a freaking dragon is. Large scaled creature, many times larger than man or myrrh. Dragons are well known for their magical affinity, which grants them the ability to speak and fly despite having no lips or any semblance of an aerodynamic build. You know, if there was ever a mount I would want Shut up. or so- something Shut up. that would be a dragon. But here's the thing. If they ever were to do that, it's automatically written off because of Warcraft. Warcraft ruined it. Yeah. They can't totally have did. it and Zoss. Totally did. So, or in Tiso. Flying mounts, period. Besides mm-hmm. a griffin. Because it's canon. Makes sense. It does. Okay. Dragons are extremely intelligent and very social creatures. They are the immortal children of Akatosh and especially, especially, try to pronounce that like an imga. They are especially attuned to the flow of time. Dragon break anybody? Not getting into it. Not getting into it. We will one day. Mark my words. I I bet we do. I know. And I'll be, I will be a complete idiot for that episode because trying to understand that crap is like, whoa. Okay, next race. The Kapotin or Kaputin. K-A-P-O apostrophe T-U-N Kapotin. This is a race of tiger-like cat folk. They may or may not have been related to the Khajiit. One of the four main races of Akavir, the Kapotin are led by a divine being by the name of Tosh Raka. Not Tosh.0, Tosh Raka. Not Peter Tosh, Tosh Raka. He is said to be one of the first Kapotan races to succeed in becoming a dragon. Yeah. A the dragon? first. Okay. He is said to be the first of the Kapotan race to succeed in becoming a dragon. Yeah. Wow, that's a stretch. I know, All it's right. a stretch, and like no other information on it very much. It's just where it stops. Yeah. So, okay. The Kamal. Another one. This is an interesting one. A race of snow demons living in Akavir. This race spends the entire winter frozen solid, only thawing out during the summertime. Seems like this race could be defeated pretty freaking easily. (laughs) Just go at them when it's cold. (laughs) <laughs> so upon their thaw, the Kamal commence their attack on the Tang Mo. We're going to talk about the Tang Mo in a minute. But it's usually rather unsuccessful. The Kamal invaded Tamriel in the second era, year 572, under their then king, Adasumdir Kamal, in order to create or in order to locate an object of unknown origin called the Ordained Receptacle. 
This is a super vague one. The Kamal fleet indiscriminately attacked various parts of Tamriel on their trek to the south. They were waylaid on a beach to the west of Ebenhart, later named Vivek's Antlers. Yes, that is in ESO. They were waylaid by a Dunmer army, led by Almalexia, a Nord army led by Prince Jeroon, and a phalanx of Argonians that ended up showing up. They fought ferociously, the Kamal, but they were obliterated by the armies and a tidal wave summoned by Lord Vivek. Kind of interesting, huh? Yeah. I'm like, I've never heard of that. <laughs> but, whatever. Lord Vivek was there. Take it. Okay. The Tang Mo. The Tang Mo is a generous and kind breed of monkey-like people in Akavir. The Tang Mo were very simple yet brave. When other Akaviri nations tried to enslave them, the Tang Mo raised an army to defend themselves and did so successfully. Little else is known about the Tang Mo. Okay. The, the Teshi. The Seshi. The Teshi. Literally meaning snake palace. The Teshi are a race from Akavir who have been described as a snake-like race. Some accounts of the race describe their appearances as entirely human, while others claim that they're half-snakes or even fully serpent-like in appearance. I'm like, make up your freaking mind. What do they look like? It is also in ancient folklore that the Teshi ate all the men who lived on Akavir, which we talked about. Though the statement in the text can be interpreted in several ways. The Teshi were known to fight with only a single sword, such as the Daikatana. Despite the mystery that surrounds the Teshi as a race, they once invaded Tamriel late in the First Era. This is First Era, like 2703. And they were driven back by the forces led by Emperor Remen. Some Teshi remained in Cyrodiil and left many influences on the Imperials, to name a few, a reverence for the imperial aristocracy for Akaviri culture, um, the adoption of the dragon as a symbol of the empire, and the creation of the blades and the fighters guild all came from the Teshi. That's really kind of cool. interesting, huh? Yeah. All right. So little is known about the mysterious race as the historical, historical accounts of them are really shrouded in lots and lots of contradiction. It is possible, however, to distinguish fact from embellishments of storytellers in regards to the Teshi, which have historically made their name even more demonstrative, demonstrative, monstrous, like a monster race. Hmm. So there's that. And without belaboring you, my friends, anymore, those are the additional races that we have chosen to cover in this particular lore lesson. Good. Gracious, that was... Yes, I'm getting better at that. Oh, well, I'd hope so. You've had that thing for at least a episode, a season and a half. <laughs> yeah, remember like when I first started summoning the lore books, yeah. I'd like a page, or, a page or two would be missing? Yeah. It's all there, baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's all there. Yeah. All right, well, you know, That's I'll just do a slash kowtow and take my step back now. Good. Just go ahead and hit mute. I won't need you for about 25 minutes. Oh, crap. <laughs> that was a burn. 
All right, so I I wanted to do something a little bit uh, a little bit different, something that we hadn't really talked about before. We've touched on it before, but I wanted to kind of dive into it a little bit. Artifacts in the Elder Scrolls series, ancient objects that wield significant power. Many of these items are very famous. I'm sure you've heard of a ton of these that I'm going to go over. And some even hold a connection to Tamriel's history as a whole. Some of them have a mind of their own and have been known to alter their own form at random. Many of them will actually never remain the same. Many of them change over time. Many of them change owners over time. Before they're off to spread their influence on some new and lucky user. So if you played the Elder Scrolls series, you have definitely dealt with artifacts. The Daedric princes themselves have been known to fashion different artifacts from their very essences. And then they gift them to mortals in exchange for some deep-seated purpose. Molag Bal was one of those in our time period of ESO. Not all Tamrielic facts, however... Not all Tamrielic artifacts, even, however, originated with Daedric princes. So, for example, the Staff of Magnus has origins that date back to the creation of Mundus itself. Keening, which you know as one of Kagranak's tools, was actually created by a mortal. So, other artifacts may form naturally, like the uh, Seven Star Teeth which is the magical prismatic crystal taken from the skies by Iliad's airships during the Merithic era. I had no idea about that one either until I read it and went, excuse me, what? Airships? Hello? Ancient artifacts have some very specific traits. Many come in the form of weapons, armor, jewelry, books, or other different types of mundane items. As a matter of fact, I think there was one that was used by the the, uh, Dark Brotherhood that was actually in the form of a belt? The belt, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Daedric artifacts are usually... Daedric artifacts themselves are usually crafted of ebony. And then many of these artifacts are near impossible to destroy. They'll usually end up resurfacing in various places after being lost to history for a time. And many are enchanted with incredible power and are of such superior design and craftsmanship. Some artifacts are very powerful and very well known, and they're often spoke of in the Elder Scrolls themselves, meaning they're part of history in the future and all that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of them. You will definitely know some of these. One, the very first one of which you're hunting for as the vestige in Elder Scrolls Online, the Amulet of Kings. This uh, amulet was also called the Amulet of King's Glory. It was a pendant traditionally worn by the ruling emperor of Cyrodiil. I know we've already covered this one in a previous lore lesson, but just bear with me. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) It was adorned by the Chim El Abadal, or the Red Diamond, in the center. The soul of each reigning emperor was enshrined within the Red Diamond to bring each of the rulers together in death. So they could provide counsel to their successors. The amulet was only wearable by an individual with dragon's blood running through their veins. Sorry, Mr. Prophet. Mm, Yeah, you really screwed up there, buddy. (laughs) Not for you. You had one (laughs) job, and it wasn't to do that. Poser. 
All right. So then there's the Ansei Wards. These are three ancient relics from Red Guard culture that were said to contain the spirits of powerful Ansei warriors. Now, what is an Ansei warrior, you ask, Jibs? Ansei warriors were among the greatest swordsmen from the legendary Red Guard warrior clan, the Sword Singers. So the Sword Singers were like the SEAL Team, I guess, and then the Ansei warriors were SEAL Team 6, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the Ansei Wards, they were crafted in the first era to help the Red Guard combat the threat of necromancy in the Alakir Desert, which we know is a major problem, especially for the Red Guard, because they hate that. Uh, The next one, Ariel's Bow. This one piqued my interest, which is why it's in my lore lesson. This bow was actually used by Ariel herself, the Elven God taking the form of an elven moonstone bow it is known to be one of the most powerful weapons in tamriel's history the bow draws its power from Aetherius itself channeling it through the sun ariel's bow is connected to ariel's shield and also ariel's quiver which are two other ancient relics kind of neat and there's Azura's Star. This Daedric artifact was created by the Daedric Prince Azura and acts as a reusable soul gem of unlimited capacity. Which is why it is highly sought after by mages and assassins. Mm-hmm. Although uh, Azura's Star was originally designed to only capture white souls, not racial. It's a type of soul. <laughs> has nothing to do with color. Not racial. Not racial. Um, although it was originally designed to capture only white souls, it was corrupted during its history, allowing it to capture black souls. Once again, not racial. Not at all. <laughs> That's called a disclaimer. So there. I don't want to end up on the front page of fake news. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Baralzar's Mazed Band. We have talked about this one before. This is an artifact created by the mage Baralzar in Clockwork City. This ring was used as a way to teleport, but its power was underestimated at first. The artifact was discovered to have the ability to open rifts in time and space, including the Gates of Oblivion. That's a freaking problem. Oopsie! This became an issue as nightmarish creatures were released upon the land due to these inadvertent breaches. (laughs) (laughs) Backfired on you, buddy. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Once again, not racist at all. The Black Books. These were formed by Hermaeus Mora, the Daedric Prince of Fate and Knowledge. And he was said to have made these books to transport its reader to Apocrypha, Hermaeus Mora's own realm of oblivion. Each book had some form of forbidden knowledge, which is what made people want to read them. The tomes were bound in black covers with a symbol representing Hermaeus Mora, and they emitted a strange black mist. These books were spread across Tamriel and usually found in the depths of ancient dungeons. Sounds like some place you where I might visit, Chips. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, agreed. The the Blade of Woe. I know you've all heard of that. Because every time I walk around a city, I hear the Blade of Woe being utilized to murder innocents <laughs> all over the place. 
This ebony dagger is historically tied to the Dark Brotherhood. It appears to be a simple dagger. However, in the hands of a trained assassin, the dagger is capable of draining health, draining magicka and willpower, demoralizing and most likely killing its victims in a single blow. Each member of the Dark Brotherhood is taught to call upon the, bra the blade's power during the Second Era. We may or may not know what this is all about. Highly ranked members of the Order, Dark Brotherhood that is, can actually shield their identity from victims as an additional power while using the Blade of Woe. It's so, cool. so it's like, oh, 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 I'm getting stabbed, I'm dying, I don't know who's doing it. That's it. What a world. <laughs> what a world. <laughs> what a world, what a world. <laughs> okay, next is the Blood Skull Blade. This is an ancient Nordic artifact that was enchanted with a long silver blade decorated with red markings. It was created by the Blood Skull Clan of Nords from Solstheim. Um, it is sometimes seen as a single sword, sometimes seen as a great sword, but it causes magical frost damage and releases a ribbon of mystical energy to strike distant targets. So not only are you hitting close, you're hitting targets from a distance. Wow. For a time... The blade rested in Blood Skull Barrow in Solstheim, guarded by none other than my Skyrim friends, the Draugr, and a crapload of them, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, next artifact is Calcimo's Stone. This artifact was found in the province of Skyrim and bears the inscription in both Dwemer and Falmer alphabets. Using the Aeliad language, most of the Falmer inscription can be translated. But it doesn't say what it is. So there's that. Interesting. The Crusader's Relics. This is a set of Adric artifacts created by the Eight Divines themselves and given to Pelinal Whitestrake, the Divine Crusader, who you will probably remember from our Midsummer Madness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the full set of armor, shield, mace, and longsword was used by Pelin and Whitestrake to banish Umaril the Unfeathered, an alien sorcerer king. Interesting set. Dragon Priest masks. Ooh, yeah. These are the masks of dragon priests and were said to have been created by the dragons of the Merithic era. The highest ranking priests of the dragon cult were given these magical masks that had the power to defy the laws of time. Each mask is named after the dragon priest that owned it, and they were buried with them when they died. The names of the masks are made of the dragon's tongue. Man, that's so cool. Like, yeah. I, I'm still, like, anytime I go through the costumes and I see the dragon priest stuff, I just, I'm like, man, there's a real part of me that would love a good quest, you know, just some type of... Not just quest, but some type of skill line that involves that even more so than Dragonite stuff. Just, uh, I don't know, man. I think it's so cool. It's like the equivalent of like the Sith Order for me. Oh, stop it. <laughs> stop that dirty talk. All right. So, uh, ooh, let's talk about another artifact. Maybe the most popular artifact in all of the Elder Scrolls series. Can you take a guess? Mm, the Elder Scroll. Yes, that's correct, my friend. The Elder Scrolls themselves. Nice pick. I'm smart. 
You are, <laughs> you are smart. Oh, You're smart. so smart. Jobs is really smart. Job is done. <laughs> All right. The Elder Scrolls themselves, also called the Adric Prophecies, these scrolls are among the most mysterious artifacts that have ever existed and not existed on Tamriel. The scrolls are said to not exist in any countable form, most likely due to their vast number of artifacts. They are said to be fragments of creation from outside of time itself. They simultaneously do not exist, yet have always existed. Oh, that sounds... Much like... Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead. Oh, I I can't. (laughs) Go ahead. Much like the Dragon Break. Yeah. Thinking about the Elder Scrolls gives me a freaking headache. (laughs) Like trying to understand them. Other than... You read them and you go blind and you go lame and you start doing some hood rat crap like the prophet did, right? Yeah. Guy went, he went bat crap crazy. It goes a little crazy, yeah. It does. Okay. Next artifact, the gold brand. Isn't that weird? This ancient artifact takes the form of a golden katana created by the dragons of the north and according to the legends of thieves... It was given to a powerful knight who was sworn to protect dragons. The golden brand, isn't that vid? Mm. Contains the power of the Daedric Prince Boethia and turns those that it strike and burns those that it strikes. Whoa. Turning and burning. Gas it up and burn it down. <laughs> Sword is said to have a more powerful form known as Elton Brand. Not Elton John Brand. I was going to say Elton just John? Elton Brand. Yeah. Just Elton Brand. Which increases its wielder's stamina and skills in battle when a purple feathered garment is worn around your neck. Okay. And you play piano keys. That's right. So there's that. (laughs) Piano tunes fill the air with every swipe. Piano tunes. (laughs) Sweet keys. Sweet keyses. Sweet lord. Sweet Jesus. The Hammer of Garin. This legendary hammer was created by the Dwemer Garin. Paired with the Anvil of Mythos, this... Hi, kitty catty. That's enough. This hammer was the only object strong enough to not shatter when used to shape metal upon the anvil. It is also said that when the hammer struck the anvil... It produced a chime which revealed the location of the entrance to the dwarven mines beneath Red Mountain. That kind of cool one, huh? Yeah. I know. I think there's a lot of people who won't get their hands on that hammer. I forget. Pause for a second. Is um, Dagoth Ur, that, that's all done and over with, right? In the ESO timeline? No. No, that's, that's not later. happened yet? That's later. Okay. Right. Because right now, I've, I'm pretty sure that's over. Because the Battle of Red Mountain has not taken place yet. Or has it? Huh. This is what happens when we go three seasons into a show about lore. I know. <laughs> and you know, okay, so here's here's my thought. If the Battle of Red Mountain had taken place, then the um, the protection that that Vivek set would be around Red Mountain, and we'd know what it looked like. I don't think that's there in our game. Hmm. 
So I think the fall at the Battle of Red Mountain, I think that was the fall of um, Omsivi. And I believe that when that happened is when they lost their power. Hmm. All of them as a trio lost their power. So I'm sure someone will correct us. Okay. This one, next, this next one really bummed me out. Right? Okay. Oren Bearclaw's helm. Okay. Now, if you know Bosmeri heroes at all, which we talked about a long freaking fracking time ago when we talked, when we covered the Bosmer race. Mm-hmm. And our friends out there in podcast land, listener land, know that I love the Bosmer. I'm always looking for a hero, right? So Oren Bearclaw. He is a legendary Bosmeri hunter. This prized artifact belonged to him. The helm was an enchanted skull, which improved the wearer's agility and endurance. Orin Bearclaw was killed, coincidentally, by the Kenahattan flu. Interesting, huh? That is interesting. The Slodes flu? Yes. Yeah. Killed Orin Bearclaw. So, a lot of resistances, just not to that. Hmm. So... Here's the part that bummed me out. After Oren Bearclaw's death, it was speculated that the great many deeds he was said to have performed in life were actually performed by his close friend, an orc named Karag Grokar. And they weren't actually performed by Oren Bearclaw. So he's a like, fraud. Yeah, I'm like, deaf, dude. It just crushed my dreams. Wow, man. Yeah, that could bump me out. So, oh well. I did not know that. That is weird, wild stuff, I tell you. Okay. The Mace of Molag Ball. This is known as the Vampire's Mace. It is a Daedric artifact wielded by Molag Ball, the Lord of Domination and Enslavement. Sounds like a nice dude. The enchantment of the mace drains a victim's stamina and magicka then transfers it to the bearer of the mace. The mace is particularly powerful in the vanquishing of magic users. The mace of Molag Ball was said to have been forged by a talented orcish blacksmith who Molag Ball enslaved and turned into a soul shriven in the dungeons of Cold Harbor. What a D. Wow. The mace is said to be an artifact of Daedric worship as Molag Ball believed that whenever the mace fell upon mortal hands, death and destruction was sure to follow. Wow, that dude is gnarly, man. He's just a bad man. The Mentor's Ring. The High Wizard Carney Azrin, not Arson, which I wanted it to be so bad, but it's the High Wizard Carney Azrin, and not as Carney as like in the guys that run those cheap games like Small Hands and Smell like cabbage. Bring a fire. Not that kind of Carney. But um, anyway, this high wizard's name was Carney Azrin. He was said to be the creator of the Mentor's Ring, this enchanted ring that has the ability to increase the wearer's intelligence and wisdom. After Azrin's death, the ring vanished and was circulated throughout Tamriel. The Nerevarine was said to have found the ring in a tomb in the Bitter Coast region of Vardenfell. Interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Another one. We're almost done here, folks. The Ring of Hercene. This Daedric artifact was created by the Daedric Prince Hercene, and it was a metallic engraved ring fashioned into the head of a wolf. The ring was known to give temporary lycanthropy to its wearer and allowed werewolves to control their transformations as opposed to being subject to the moon cycle. The Rootmender's Staff. This is from Merkmire. Formerly known as the Sap Speaker's Staff, this artifact can be found in the region of Merkmire. It has been known to materialize out of a lifelike vision of the past into reality. Interesting. The True Flame. This is also known as the Blade of Nerevar. It's a one-handed Dwemeri-made sword from the First Era and had a match. A second blade of the same design by the name of Hope's Fire. True Flame and Hope's Fire, which are awesome freaking names. Right? I love that. Both blades, when wielded together, represented the very best of Dwemer craftsmanship. They were presented as wedding gifts. Very interesting point here. They were presented as wedding gifts to Lord Inderil Nerevar and Almalexia by the Dwemer King Dumak. Seemingly before they got into a bitter life and death struggle with each other. Yeah. But it was a wedding gift, which I thought was pretty cool. True Flame was shattered during the Battle of Red Mountain in the mid-first era. There you go. There you go, buddy. That answers our question. Okay. The Battle of Red Mountain had already taken place in the middle of the first era, and the pieces were lost to history. In the third era, the Nerevarine, remember that's the successor to the Nerevar, right. to Nerevar, found the pieces and reforged the blade. Pretty neat lore. Folks, I want you to understand there are so many more artifacts in the Elder Scrolls series. The ones that are discussed in this lore lesson is like the tip of the iceberg. So go seek them out for yourself, either in lore books or in the game or on the wiki or uh, on UESP or in the Imperial Library. There are so many artifacts to read about. And it's, it would have been, you know, we'd have been here for another hour and a half with me talking about every, you know, detailing every single one. There's so many of them. But um, it was really neat. It was, it was kind of a neat lore list to write. Yeah. They all are. But this one's yeah, they all pretty are. cool. Agreed. Yeah, there is. Yeah. It makes me want to know more about Daedric stuff as well, listening to that. That was really good. That was really good. Thank you. Really good. All right. Perched in the mountains of the northernmost province of Tamriel and Skyrim, a very Christmassy, frigid region where many battles have been fought over the course of history. This is also known as the Old Kingdom, the Fatherland, or the Kazal in the dragon's tongue. <gasps> he said dragons in the dragons. second era. Oh my god. <laughs> Skyrim is primarily inhabited. By the Nords. Mm -hmm. Skyrim is bordered by Morrowind to the east, over the Velothi Mountains, Cyrodiil to the south, beyond the Jural Mountains, and Hammerfell to the south and the west. 
I wanted to touch on Skyrim. Just because it's snowy. Our uh, our guild event is going to take us there this year for our, our Christmas party. I don't know how many other guilds are doing Christmassy stuff. We are going to be tromping through snow. Woo. Killing world bosses in our Nordic bathers towels. Yeah, buddy. Might as well talk about Skyrim. Much of the northern half of Skyrim is covered in snow, therefore the coldest parts of the region. The southern regions of Skyrim are relatively mild and much warmer as you go south. It's nice down there. Oh, it's so nice. It's probably a, a balmy 35. <laughs> a warm 37. <laughs> and all the nords are still wearing shorts. Mm, yes. So, the province of Skyrim is itself divided into nine political regions by the Nords of old. These divisions are called holds, and each has a ruling Jarl. I always want to say Jarl, but I don't. I say Jarl. That maintains the court in that hold's capital. The nine holds are Hafingar, Hjalmarch, The Pale, that's Jibs's one, Winterhold, Eastmarch, The Rift, Whiterun, Falkreath, and The Reach. Some of those should sound familiar because they are in ESO. The other ones are in Skyrim. And I think at this point, probably 90 to 95% of our listeners have um, at least experienced Skyrim in some form. So you'll understand the whole political, the nine regions thing, the Jarls, the keeps, the holds, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about a little bit of history around Skyrim and their inhabitants, the Nords. Nordic legend holds that Kain, the Nordic goddess of the storm, breathed life into them at the summit of the throat of the world. Most historians, however, hold that Isgrimor the first Nordic settler of Skyrim facilitated the settling of Skyrim by bringing many, many waves of immigrants over from old Atmora. Isgrimor was known as the first human ruler of Skyrim. So you can either go with Nordic legend, with Kine, or maybe a little bit more believable. In my opinion, Isgrimor was um, a great immigrant and everybody came over in a rush. In ancient times, however, Skyrim was said to be ruled by a dragon cult. There is evidence of this everywhere. The origins of this dragon cult society worshipped dragons and utilized the cult's dragon priests as their intermediaries. The dragon priests were seen as gods above men. They were very loyal servants of the ancient dragons of Skyrim. Late in the Merithic era, the fabled Dragon War ended and the Dragon Cult ended when Alduin, sound familiar, mm -hmm. Skyrimers, Alduin the World Eater, an incredibly powerful dragon, was defeated atop the throat of the world. No spoilers there, but go play Skyrim <laughs> for Mara's sake. The dragon gods were eventually replaced by the induction of Jibs. Take a guess. Uh, 
I don't know. The dragon gods replaced? The, By, go- the, the gods? No, gods were replaced? Okay. The eight divines. Oh. Jeez. Boy, I can't wait for the You didn't even quiz. say anything about when I said Vikings. I'm impressed. You're really in the zone right now. Yeah, that's in the zone. It's Well, because I have Viking on my brain right now anyway, so. Oh, okay. Got, right. I was kind of into you. Oh, all right, all right. Fun fact! Although the ancient Aldmer, with a D, and the Snow Elves, the dead ones, occupied Skyrim until late in the Marethic era... Continuous waves of Nordic immigration from Atmora, led by Isgrimor, finally established Nordic supremacy in modern-day Skyrim. Nice job, Isgrimor. All right, let's talk about the old holds. These were those nine political uh, separations within Nordic culture. The most eastern hold of Skyrim is Eastmarch. Yes, that is an ESO. It is um, one of the main areas for the Nords. It is. Beautiful area. This is one of four of the old holds. The old holds, isolated from Tamriel as a hold. Okay, let me go back. There are four old holds. There are nine total holds. Four of them are considered the old holds. So I just wanted to clear that up. Okay. I was confusing (laughs) myself. The most Easternmost of these holds is Eastmarch, and it is one of those four old holds. The old holds isolated from Tamriel as a whole, both geographically and politically, include Winterhold, Eastmarch, the Rift, and the Pale, where Jibs comes from. What? I can't also help but known. feel like the Pale is probably the worst place to come from when you say that. No, it's just also, it's the um, the Tamrielic equivalent of Indiana. Oh, my God. So, a whole <laughs> lot of rednecks. Woo! A whole lot of rednecks. A whole lot of rednecks. <laughs> Ding! All right, so the Pale, shaped like a boot. It's not Italy. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. <laughs> the Pale is a northern hold of Skyrim. This hold is covered by massive expanses of cornfields. Just kidding. Of ice and snow. Like, really? <laughs> scattered mountains and forests. Yes. Yeah, it's massive expanses of cornfields and terrible decisions. <laughs> oh, buddy. It's so fun to poke at you. And it's then when, so when, when you poke and that starts bleeding... You move to another spot and poke that one till it starts bleeding. <laughs> this is what I signed up for. <laughs> the pale reaches from central Skyrim to the northern coast and is marked very clearly in the east by Lake Yogram. Dawnstar, its capital, is a bustling seaport which got its name from its reputation for, quote-unquote, the sun. Greeting the sun as it begins its journey, which I thought was pretty ingenious of the writers i'm like you know that's pretty cool simple pleasures fun fact an ancient dark brotherhood sanctuary is located beneath the city of dawnstar <laughs> i know it's, oh, so it's in my language right there i can feel it i can feel your anger yes i just did that i'm not offended Shouldn't be. Winterhold. Okay. 
Winterhold is the northernmost hold in Skyrim, and it also has the most inclement weather. It's cold as hell up in there, y'all. Probably the most notable feature of Winterhold is the College of Winterhold. This is a very famous school for magic users. I love some of the facts about Winterhold. After the Great Collapse, what was the Great Collapse? Jibs? Yeah, I'm not even going to do it to you. Yeah, just, uh, okay. Just, yep. I'm just going to roll on. I'm just going to roll tide. Let's carry on. The Great Collapse was a major disaster in which monstrous waves, because remember, this is right on the coast, monstrous waves from the Sea of Ghosts destroyed a large part of Winterhold. Like it freaking sunk into the sea. And the only part that still remains is the very small village that is right next to the entrance to the college. This is absolutely in Skyrim. And it is a really neat area. Like you go there and you're like, holy crap, there's like five little houses here. Well, that's all that was left of Winterhold after the Great Collapse. Uh, Winterhold has numerous snowy coasts and a massive mountain range bordering Winterhold, the Pale, and East March. In this area, life is scarce and the elements are very, very harsh. On the trek to Winterhold and the College of Winterhold in Skyrim, this is totally reflected. Like the only thing you see are like ice wraiths and... Um, Horkers and um, I mean, there's it's just gnarly, gnarly territory and super cold. So, um, yeah, if you haven't experienced that, then go do so because it's a really neat part of the game. Hmm. Uh, Hjalmark Hold is an isolated coastal hold in Skyrim, intertwined with waterways that empty into the Sea of Ghosts. In this warmer region, the Deathbell flower is known to grow wildly in the swamps. Here's another fun fact for you. The Sea of Ghosts is a cold, misty body of water in the Patamaic Ocean, bordering Tamriel to its north and northeast. Hmm. Called the Sea of Ghosts. So neat. Agreed. Okay, another hold. Hafingar, two A's, H-A-A, Fingar. Bless you. Oh, you're welcome. This hold is relatively small, but located in a coastal mountain region of northwestern Skyrim. The capital of Hafingar is Solitude. Everybody knows and has heard of Solitude. Uh This city is perched atop a large rock outcropping towering above the Karth River. The Karth River itself provides for bustling trade and commerce in the region, mostly in the form of timber and fish, because they can move it all via the river system. Mm -hmm. The Reach. This geographic feature is surrounded by High Rock, Skyrim, and Hammerfell. That's a massive area. This area was primarily inhabited by the Daedra-worshipping Reachmen. We talked about this before also known as the Witchmen of High Rock. A tribal group primarily of Breton descent, the Reachmen were very tribal and very primitive. They became well-versed in resisting foreign rule and used ancient magic and their knowledge to uh, knowledge of the terrain, I should say, 
to repel invaders with espionage and guerrilla tactics. No, not guerrilla as in Imga. This is <laughs> gorilla tactics. Man, kind of I, I tell you what, the Imga comments we got about <laughs> a few episodes ago. It is just the weirdest freaking race. Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah, I agree. We will have nothing to do with this war of yours. We're out of here. Deuces. I'm going to take my cape and my funny names and I am out of here. That's, that's kind of how I felt like it went. That's pretty much how they most likely are. Okay. Um, there was a race of primitive ape-like figures in Spongebob. This is so off-base. Wow. In Spongebob. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Sandy Cheeks, the squirrel, the yeah. squirrel scientist yeah. in Spongebob. All you parents out there, I know what you're, you know what I'm talking about. Sandy Cheeks's bosses were a bunch of scientists. There's an episode where Sandy Cheeks, her bosses are coming to visit to see how her progress is, is going down in Bikini Bottom, which is where Spongebob lives and where she lives doing her scientist stuff. Just wait for it. Okay, it's it's the point is coming. Mm-hmm. So her bosses were all very snooty, smart scientist primates, and that is exactly what I think of when I think about the Imga. Go <laughs> find that episode; it is hilarious. Okay, rant off. All right, let's. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, continue talking about the Witchmen of High Rock, which were the Reachmen. Um, this Breton descent tribal group became very, very well versed in resisting foreign rule and use ancient magic and their knowledge of the terrain to repel invaders with espionage and guerrilla tactics. They eventually became known as the Forsworn. And I know that we had talked about that yeah. at some point before. The Forsworn were, um, a lot of them were run and overseen by hagfens. Uh-huh. And I already told the story about my the death of a hagfen in sky in one of my Skyrim play playthroughs and then I went and just destroyed her entire uh um compound basically which was a bunch of forsworn. Sold all the junk. It was awesome. Okay. Fantastic. White Run Hold. In the middle of Skyrim is White Run Hold. Living in this region are the legendary giants, mostly male. Remember we talked about the females and we haven't seen any and how do they reproduce and all the torque when they do reproduce and Uh, mm. we already talked about that a few episodes ago. Mm. (laughs) And they're mammoths. This is where they come from. The capital city of Whiterun is adorned with many farms on its outskirts that supply much of the food for the whole of Skyrim. Two of the largest settlements in the region are Rorikstead and Riverwood. I've always made Riverwood my home away from home in Skyrim. I'm going to have to go see it now. Yeah, Riverwood is like by far my favorite town. It's just a little tiny one-stop shop. Uh, There's a couple little places, a couple of like uh, dwellings and stuff. And there's the lumber mill. And it's just a really neat 
place. And it's a big part of your story. It becomes a big part of your story. So, okay. Falkreath Hold, nestled in the southern border areas of Skyrim, Falkreath Hold is home to the capital city of Falkreath and the abandoned settlements of Helgen and Nurgrad Watch. Skyrim's famous pine forest is in this region, and because of a fine mist that covers the land for most of the year, Falkreath appears to be without seasons. That's interesting. It's very interesting. The Rift. This hold marks the southeastern part of Skyrim and has a much more mild and temperate climate. The Rift's capital is the city of... Rifted! Yay! You got one! I'm so proud of you! One for eight! Yeah! Well, yeah, I gave you half the answer. All right, don't be a dick. Okay. The Rift's (laughs) capital city of Riften is nestled in the massive fall forest on the shores of Lake Honrick. Because of the region, um, because the region has a much more warm climate, agriculture thrives in this area. And in the middle of Lake Honrick is a chest in Skyrim. Good luck finding it because Lake Honrick has some incredible currents and it's hard as hell to pinpoint where that stupid chest is. It takes me hours every single freaking fragging playthrough of Skyrim to find that stupid chest. So there's that. Hmm. Last but certainly not least, my friend, is Bleak Rock Isle. This is considered to be a part of Skyrim. It is a small, snowy island in the Sea of Ghosts in between Windhelm, Blacklight, and Solstheim. The Daggerfall Covenant drove out a small contingent of Nords on the island in the Second Era, year 582. Yes, my friend, this is the timeline of ESO, and I just finished, well, a couple days ago anyway, Bleak Rock Isle. And remember, it's kind of nostalgic for me because I had done so in the past, but um, that was the starting area for the Nords, and I enjoyed it. Hmm. So anyway, this was a little bit more of a geographic lore lesson. And I think I want to incorporate some more of these as we progress throughout the year. Yeah, that was really neat. Um, You know, it's especially with us doing our. Shung. Jeez. (laughs) Freaking new guy. (laughs) This is lore lesson 40. Did you know that? Is it really? Yeah. Oh, you're such a no-lifer. I am. That's a lot of writing. It is a lot of writing. I, I know. I applaud. And okay, so and I'll throw it out there again. I think one of these particular folks is in chat. Um, I I haven't really been called out like on too much crap that I'm getting wrong, and that makes me happy. Um, well, it's just that, like Arimetheus in chat. Yeah. If you guys don't remember from one of our, our um, most recent storylines, Arimetheus, I brought him in as a character because like, I'm super impressed by the guy because he, he takes lore to the next level in his own podcast. And I am like, you got to be kidding me. Like, because we like take the basic level and then you like, Written in Uncertainty is his podcast, and he takes it like to the next level. So, anyway, mad respect for Arimetheus out there. And um, I'm just happy after 40 lore lessons, I haven't like been called to the table on, dude, you are 
totally wrong on this, 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 and this, and this. You know, that's the best part about my job in this show is I just do the news. Like I just report, I just regurgitate what I've read. Right, and then you fall asleep during my lore lessons. And then I fall asleep during your lore lessons. Such a dick. I'm gonna go grab my pillow. <laughs> you know what, seriously? I hope your pillow smells like farts. I hope you get pink eye from your pillow. <laughs> That's terrible. That's terrible. That's like don't fall oh. asleep. Okay. All right. Fantastic. All right. Here comes the drama. Lore lesson number forty on the Munda Stones. Mm. Carry on, wayward son. Yeah, go grab your drink. Okay. All right. See you in a minute. <laughs> the air was still as you approached the stone. Frozen in time and ancient, yet for some magical reason, the stone still hummed after all of these years. Standing in front of the jagged monument of the past, adorned with etchings, patience. You step forward and internally nod your approval to accept the power of this mysterious relic of the past. Its boon begins to surge through your body as if it lifts you off the ground. You're surrounded by its magical flow as you float weightless. The waves of intense light lessen as it gently lowers you to the ground. You stand there, confused, but elated and refreshed. You feel more powerful than ever. The Mundustone. Dedicated to the constellations of Mundus, these ancient monuments to the celestials of Mundus can grant the user one permanent blessing at a time. These blessings will boost one attribute of your character's stats and are quite useful. But what do these stones represent and where do they come from? Well, we'll start off with the celestials. Ethereal beings formed from the power of the stars Celestial beings were created during the Merithic era by the star-worshipping Nedic people. In the very first era, they constructed a great laboratory at Skyreach Pinnacle, where they utilized Nerncrux, of all things, to harness the power of the stars in the sky. Through much trial and error, they created these beings ranging from weak spider-like creations all the way to very powerful Celestials, such as the Daedric Titan Aetherian. But because of that reckless experimentation with the stars and the Nerncrux, the danger it presented, the laboratory at Skyreach Pinnacle was eventually sealed off by Yakudan invaders in the first era, year 808. The most powerful of these celestials are known to be mortal and were rumored this is the part that kind of blew me away. They were rumored to have fallen from the sky from their position as constellations in the second era, year 582. That is right around where ESO takes place. These powerful beings possess a godlike power and represent each of the 13 constellations in the sky. So we're going to talk about each one of those. Fun fact, number one, the ruins at Skyreach Pinnacle was unsealed by the scaled court in the second era year 582, same year that they fell from the sky. So the scaled court was a cult. They unsealed Skyreach Pinnacle to attempt to understand the needs use of Nerncrux. Dangerous celestials were within 
the tomb and they were freed, forcing the cultists to retreat. There is a rumor that an expedition is mounting in the region to reseal these ruins. I'm sure you can gather what that means. There is a quest that takes place at Skyreach Pinnacle where you can go through this. So do so. It's awesome. And it lends right to this lore lesson. There are 13 constellations that represent the most powerful celestials from the skies of Nern. They are guarded by three guardian signs. You've all heard of these. The warrior, the mage, and the thief. Each of these guardians protects three charges of their own. And here are the examples of who of which guardians guard what charges. The warrior protects the lady, the steed, and the lord. The mage protects the apprentice, the atronach, and the ritual. And the thief protects the lover, the shadow, and the tower. Each of these 12 signs also represents a month in the Tamrielic calendar. We're going to go through this. So where do these come into play? These come into play in your champion points. This is what they are based on. They're based on the Celestials. They're based on these charges that are protected by the Guardians. Fun fact. As we've covered in previous lore lessons, it is still part of the Great Sky over Tamriel. Nern has two moons, Masser and Secunda. Big part of these Celestials. Masser is the larger of the two moons. And we have covered this in Kajiti legend. The movement of the moons creates a lunar lattice, which protects Mundus from a Therius, or what's also known as the immortal plane. Kajit are born in one of many various forms, depending on the phases of these moons. You can read more about uh, the Kajit in lore lesson number 11, where we cover that racial motif. Now let's talk about the constellations. Now this is actually from the book, The Firmament by Folk, which is available in the game. The Apprentice, that's, uh, which is uh, represented by the month of sun's height. Those born under the sign of the Apprentice have an increased affinity for Magicka. So if you use this Munda stone, it increases your spell damage. The Atronach, this is reflected by the month of sun's dusk. Often called the Golem, those born under the Atronach are known as natural sorcerers with deep reserves of Magicka. If you use this Munda stone, you increase your Magicka recovery. The Lady. In the month of Heartfire, one of the warrior's charges, those born under the Lady are kind and tolerant. And if you use this Munda stone, it increases physical and spell resistance. Then there's the Lord. In the month of the first seed, the Lord oversees Tamriel during the planting. Those born under this sign are stronger and healthier than most, which in turn means if you use this Munda stone, you increase your maximum health. Then there's the lover in the month of sun's dawn. Under the charge of the thief, those born under this sign are graceful and passionate. And if you use this Munda stone, it increases your physical and spell penetration. The mage in the month of rain's hand. The mage, a guardian constellation representing rain's hand, when magicka was first used by men during this month. 
The mage's charges are the apprentice, the atronach, and the ritual. I've always been a fan of that one. Yes. Well, that one, for sure, um, increases maximum magicka. That one is huge across all magic classes, if that's what you're looking for. Especially if you're playing an off-race, using the mage Mundestone will increase your max magicka, so it really helps. So those born into the mage are known to have more magicka and talent for spellcasting, but have also been known to be arrogant and absent-minded, all of my good friendships. Hmm. Just kidding. You're amazing. We'll find your mind to I promise. Okay, thanks. <laughs> the ritual, that is those born of the morning star in that month. One of the mages charges those born under this sign have a variety of abilities dependent on the aspects of the moons and the divines. Those who use the ritual Mundestone will increase healing done. Healers. The serpent... There is no season for the serpent. There is no month. The serpent wanders the skies and does not have an assigned season. Those born under the sign of the serpent are the most blessed, but also the most cursed. Those who use the serpent Mundestone increase stamina recovery. (laughs) I have no idea how using stamina recovery lends to something that sinister sounding. I mean, to me, I mean, like, if you use a serpent, you stub your toe repeatedly. Something like that that just completely enrages you. Yeah. And then you go murder people. Because <laughs> when I stub my toe, I want to murder the first thing I see. <laughs> Side story. Don't worry about it. So there we go. The next one. The steed. The steed is in the month of mid-year. One of the warriors charges. The steed is impatient, as always. Hurrying from one place to another... Which means if you use this Mundestone, you're going to increase your health recovery and movement speed. Then there's the thief in the month of the evening star. Those born on guardian constellation are not typically thieves. Though they take risks more often and rarely come to harm. They're very lucky. Eventually the thief runs out of luck, however, and rarely lives longer than those born under other signs. So when you use the Mundestone of the Thief, you increase your weapon and spell critical strike ratings. Not always going to happen, but when they do, they hit hard. Then there's the Tower. This is in the month of Frostfall. One of the Thief's charges, those born under the Tower have a knack for finding gold and can open locks of all makes. This increases your maximum stamina, which I think should be increases your luck in uh, loot. But anyway, the decided increases your max stamina. So there's a lot of stam classes out there that use the tower. Uh-huh. The warrior, those born in the month of last seed, this guardian constellation saves his strength for the last seed where his strength is needed most during the harvest. His charges are the lady, the steed, and the lord. Those born under this guardian sign of the warrior are skilled with weapons of all kinds but prone to short tempers. So when you use this Mundestone, you increase your weapon damage. Hmm. So as you all know, the Mundestones represent the constellations of Nern. They're available available for your use in Elder Scrolls Online. Once you discover them, or on a side note, you can purchase them from the Crown Store for your home. And there's one person that I know that has 
all of them. That's where I go to when I need new mind the stone. Boon. Um, you can utilize the power of the stone to gain a boon that boosts the power of your character in the ways that I just listed above. If you need reference to what I just mentioned, you can go to our website as of release of this podcast on Friday morning, and you'll find them all listed. Here's a fun fact for you that I did not know. Twice Born Star is a craftable set in ESO that provides special bonuses to armor and weapons. It is available for crafting to players pursuing blacksmithing, clothing, and or woodworking. But this special crafting site is available in Craglore. To make an item for the set, you must have nine traits researched. Here are the bonuses. It's a really good PvP set, actually. Two items adds max health. Three items adds max stam. Four items adds max magicka. Five items, you can have two Munda stones at the same time. Hmm. I did not know that. I have never heard of the set until just now. Twice born star. Yep, never heard of it either until I researched it. Let's talk a little bit about the stars. Some of the deepest knowledge of the heavens lies within the research and relics of the Dwemer. They created an ancient machine with mystical properties called the Orrery, which allowed them to view the various planets and even draw upon the power of Nern's twin moons. Jibs knows about this because he got a frustrated phone call from me yesterday when I was on Stros Mackay trying to find the damn Orrery. <laughs> you called Turns me as if I know the answer. Let me call the guy who can't pronounce the crap. And you know where the damn Ori is? <laughs> and then I stopped for a second. And I went, there's no way in hell the kid knows what the damn Ori is. Oh. I love you, buddy, for your simplicity. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, so anyway, on Stros Mackay, there's a Dwemer Observatory that contains an Ori. And on the ceiling of this Ori, an Ori basically, you guys, is an observatory. On the ceiling of said observatory or orrery is a star chart that is adorned with runes for each constellation. They're inset clockwise by their associated month. A guardian and each of its three charges are all found on the chart, which lends to the fact that the Dwemer knew about it. That's where a lot of this stuff comes from, is ancient history of Elder Scrolls. And it wasn't just the Dwemer. The ancient Yakudans, of course, you know, later to be known as Red Guards, mm-hmm. were also known for their interest in astrology. They were known to make crude astrological maps in the sand, complete with star charts and constellations. The Elder Scrolls themselves also made reference to the constellations with depictions of star maps, various glyphs adorning the background of some ancient documents. So between the Elder Scrolls, which to me is like the master document, the ancient Yakutans and the Dwemer, that's a lot of evidence that this stuff is a constant in the Elder Scrolls universe. Right. And it works because when I go get the boon for so on and so forth, it boosts my character. So this must be true to that, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So the recent history of the constellations um, fall from the sky and their subsequent transformation to the celestial beings has a really deep story. 
which you can experience in ESO. I was blown away when I found out that the constellations fell from the sky in Second Era 582. I was like, what? Right. Yeah. So the great statues of uh, Yakutan warriors stand as centuries before the entrance to the ancient crypts at Kardala and in the west part of lower, um, in the western part of lower Craglorn is up to you to go find what those secrets unmask. Mm. Very cool stuff. And this one was like on a whim. I'm like, you know what? I haven't really covered the Mundestones. Let's do that. And it kind of dives into a very slippery slope of astrology in Elder Scrolls. There is a lot more that I could have covered. This was like the tip of the iceberg because that's kind of where we're at. So we're going to leave it to Arimetheus and written in uncertainty <laughs> to cover all the super deep stuff. Oh. Gauntlet throne, bro. He's go. already talking. He's already talking in chat. So I'm just going to read this. Also, what if the Yakudans know of the stars is still true? They're potentially a constant between Kalpas if the Red Guards are from the previous Kalpa. What? Bro, what? <laughs> if you want to continue... <laughs> Our very basic lore <laughs> lesson. Please go listen to our oh, show because it is go. very interesting to get the in-depth um, theory behind this stuff. There you go. And this guy knows it. Yes, so, he is. Well done, brother. Well, that was good. Thanks, man. I liked it. Thank I liked you, it. That was- okay. Let's talk first, before we dive into the world of the douchebag, Abner Thorne. And I only say that because I'm a big, <laughs> I'm a big Lyris Titanborn fan, so oh. yeah, he's pretty like, much going to follow her over a cliff if like, that's where she yeah, takes me. But. Yeah. <laughs> she says, jump, you say, how far? <laughs> Correct. Okay. Yep. I don't want to do, I'm not going to do that thing. That's a huge witch! Okay, I'll do it one more time. <laughs> Nobody's tweeted us over whether or not they understand what that actually means either. Just, so. just let it ride anyway, until they figure yeah. it out. All right. We're going to let it ride. Okay. Let's talk about Dragon Break because, yes, reading some of the stuff on Dragon Breaks before, it was a little bit confusing. So we're going to attempt to clear it up. I think I have a pretty good way to clear it up. And I'm going to give a lot of the credit to this to Fudge Muppet on YouTube because... His v- he has a, a video series on Elder Scrolls lore, um, which is very, very good. So he helped me to really understand, understand what a dragon break is. Um, so let's just talk about it. Okay. And this is straight from the wiki. The first part is. And then I'm going to break it down into cash terms so that everybody kind of understands it. A dragon break is a phenomenon where linear time is broken and becomes non-linear the dragon in quotes refers to akatosh the dragon god of time akatosh created time a dragon break not only precedes significant changes in tamriel but challenges mortal comprehension no freaking kidding it is a realignment of time and space in response to an event which makes the normal continuity of reality impossible. Don't worry, I'm going to break this down for you. The chaos which ensues 
is a refrain of the chaos of the dawn era which was when the first i think it was the merithic though when the first uh dragon break was speculated to have happened the area that is noticeably affected during a dragon break and the length of the interval measured in the areas not apparently affected will vary within each dragon break confused yet so am i historically the cause is often attributed to mortals manipulating divine matters that one I'm not confused about. It's mortals being douchebags. That's why dragon breaks happen. So let me explain this to you. What it actually is. Akatosh is the dragon god of time. Okay? He created time. Mm-hmm. This is within the Elder Scrolls lore. Right. A dragon break occurs when linear time is broken. So we live on a plane of linear time. Okay. Well, we are living right now, linear time. Things happen in a sequence of events. A dragon break occurs when that linear time frame is broken, branching into several possible parallel realities that are taking place at the same time, but it's a different reality. Okay, so for instance, Jibs and I are best friends. That is linear time. Mm-hmm. A dragon break occurs. Right now, Jibs and I are mortal enemies. Hate you so much. That totally, <laughs> and that is one, that is one portion of the parallel timeline during a dragon break. The second possible reality is that Jibs and I are actual brothers. We came from the same mom. Whoa! Okay, and we live our lives out. You don't freak out. I'm awesome. Okay. Cool. Okay. So there's that. So that's a second parallel timeline that could be happening at the same time during a dragon break the third one is jibs and i never meet that is a third possible reality running parallel to all the other realities during a dragon break and the fourth one is jibs has less hair than cash does and has a really epic freaking beard yeah a fourth possible reality during the same timeline i like that reality so now at some point, the dragon break breaks, and all of those parallel timelines drop back into one consistent timeline again. So it's one linear timeline back to the way it used to be. But the problem is everything that happened and everybody that, exper- that experienced all of those four parallel timelines during the dragon break believe what they experienced at that time. Some people are going to believe that Jibs and Cash were actual brothers. And that's their reality when timeline becomes linear again and the dragon break is over. Right. Some people are going to believe that you and I never met because that's the way the story goes during that parallel timeline when the dragon break happened. So all those realities have to converge when the dragon break is over and time comes back into that linear timeline where events happen sequentially. Does that make sense? Yep. I hope so. Because I'm freaking still struggling to get all this. <laughs> okay. It hurts my brain. So during the actual dragon break, things do not happen in a series of events anymore with one event preceding another. They just kind of happen. Everything freaking happens. So what it means when the dragon, when a dragon break occurs is that time breaks and the dragon god Akatosh himself breaks 
and no longer has control over the time. Gotcha. Savvy? Yep. Aye. Okay. That's at least how I understand it. The lore master would probably come in here and kick me square in the nuts and go, you are completely stupid. You have no idea. You went full Bosmer. You don't even know what you're talking about. So anyway. Wayne's world. We're not worthy. We're not <laughs> That's worthy. That's I understand what a dragon break is. So at some point, all of those parallel timelines come back together into one linear timeline again. And the events that occurred in all of these parallel timelines, parallel timelines will converge, making all timelines that occurred during the dragon break ring true, even if they contradict one another. And then the last part of this is that a dragon break will usually occur and is attributed to mortals being dicks. <laughs> That's why they happen because they pissed off the divines and they're like, I oh, know what better person to do that than Abner. Thor? <laughs> Thank you very much. So <sighs> now there's probably some people out there who are unsettled with the fact that dragons are coming back during this timeline. But let me harken back to something that I said before. The beauty of ESO and the beauty of what we are experiencing ESO in ESO is that new lore is being written all the time. Yeah. And that's where there's some people out there that won't play the game because it's so lore breaking. Yeah. Get over it. You know what I say? Play the game because they're creating new lore right in front oh, of your face. Oh my gosh! Yeah, agreed, hundred percent. You know what I was thinking the other day, and this was something I was going to say earlier, and I forgot. At the end of the day, last time I checked, this is the only current aside from the the card game. This is the only game out there that's that's leading the charge for lore for Elder Scrolls as a whole. Yes, there's oh, yeah. yes, there's mods. Okay, I get that. For you know, if you're talking Skyrim, you know people making their own content. But at the end of the day, this is Elder Scrolls right now. This yeah. is where we're at, and I am totally open and for just run with it. You know, just go and just see how far we can yeah. go here because this is such a unique time, man. This is this is this is Disney buying freaking LucasArts. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, and just. Figure it out, people. This is what it's about. They are writing the story right in front of your face. And everything from this point on. I mean, when was the last game that we had? It was Skyrim. Exactly. That was that was pre-Elder Scrolls Online. Now, Elder Scrolls Online, like you have all the other single-player games in these small little increments talking about this little tiny part. And then you have ESO. Boom! Yeah. Giant amount of lore being written. For the entire Elder Scrolls series. So Elder Scrolls Online has become the freaking flagship, the mothership of Elder Scrolls lore. That's what people have to embrace and just go, they're writing a bulk of the world of Elder Scrolls right here in front of you. And they're allowing you incrementally to play through the stories. Yeah, you get to matter in these stories. Get better than that. Yeah, it crushes juggernauts like World of Warcraft. The story. Oh, are you kidding me? Well, yeah. The story in Elder Scrolls is so much more rich than World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you send me hate mail or death threats. Fight me, biatch. You know what I mean? That's how I feel about it. <laughs> you could send all hate mail to Lord Seeker Catch. Yeah, send it to me. I don't care. <laughs> I have a bald uh, head. It makes me super freaking crazy. Uh, right. I'm on my way. So, 
that like so that is and that's not a soapbox that is that's what's happening right in front of your face and whether or not you decide to take that in or not um it's out there i mean have you tried to play through every quest and all the story in elder scrolls hi it's a lot of freaking work because there's so much there yeah so that's what's going on and to introduce this is all speculation my friends we are not saying the dragon breaks are part of the next expansion because we freaking know i don't know Jibs doesn't know. There's two people in this chat room that know. We don't expect them to tell us the story because we want it to be a surprise. So if a dragon break is part of this storyline, it opens up the world for all kinds of insane oh, things, yeah. including... Oh, my heart. Bringing back dragons. Oh, oh I thought you were going to say something else. And did we not get a tease? Yeah. With um, with some of the last DLC that came out with dragons who were resurrected from the dead, uh-huh. that was a tease. Yeah, well played. Let's go throw this out here. You know, dragon breaks. Dweemer, bring him back. Oh. I'm just gonna leave that yeah, there. That's a tall. I'm just order gonna leave. Me. I know. I'm just gonna leave it there. But if it happened, I would. If it happened. It would happen in the Elder Scrolls Online. And the reason being is because they are writing the story for what we live. Right? That's the best part, though, honestly, if that's the direction. And I know we haven't really speculated earlier, but I guess we can now. That's the one thing about this next expansion that has me so stoked. Okay, so we got tablets in the mail. These tablets are or a tablet. It's been broken. It's a dragon, right? Does this represent a dragon break? Is that what's going to happen? Because if that's what's going to happen, then at the end of the day, I say run with it. Explore, because it's a dragon break. Right. It, that opens them up to so many options and so many things that they can do. And look, at the end of the day, it's Elder Scrolls, yes. But at the same time, it's an MMO. It's an RPG that has to evolve. It has it's to continue evolved. to change. You said the word, dude. We are, you and I, we are brothers. We are brothers. You said evolve. I'm like, it's evolving. It's evolving. <laughs> well played. Carry on. That's, I'm off my soapbox. I'm just saying. No, and if, I, here's the other thing. And if what the tease is has nothing to do with the dragon break, then nice freaking juke move. Yeah. Because the entire community is like, that's got to be dragon Not break. even mad. That's a well done. Right. <laughs> and, and beautiful Jay in chat says, what about breakdancing dragons? I'm down. And I smell memes. That's I'm, I'm saying. I'm down, Jay. <laughs> I smell memes. What about dragon so, mounts? And, like, chat's kind of blowing up right now. Everybody is talking about it. It's like, yeah. There was long discussion. Rohira says there's long discussions discussions in Discord the other day um, about all this. And it's it's true. And Blood Eye says my armor DLC. I like it. Hey, so yeah. I can kill as many of them as possible. <laughs> Like the sloat. <laughs> They're evil. Oh, anyway, sorry to butt in. I just I had to I had to get that off my chest. Go ahead. No, that's. I just wanted to tell you this is fifty percent of your podcast too. Oh, okay. All right. Thanks, Dan. Let's not butt again. It's called contributing. Okay. All right. So, so that's the end of the discussion on on uh, dragon breaks. If you are still confused about dragon breaks, go to Fudge Muppet on youtube he has a great video on how it explains it it's pretty much the same way that i explained it because I, I took a lot of that from him i gained a lot of knowledge from that but um 
Fudge Muppet has a really good one. So he can probably help you in a visual way since most of you are listening. And if you're in the chat room, then you're just watching my big misguided fingers trying to it, I'm trying to Italian it into focus for you. And it's <laughs> the work. Maybe it didn't, <sighs> but okay. So let's talk about the author of this mysterious letter himself, mm. Abner Tharn. And you already read the letter, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we won't, we won't, that was part of the Lord lesson. We're not going to do that again, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the biography of Abner Tharn, who I completely disparaged this week. <laughs> Because I love Lyris. Lyris lover. I am a Lyris lover. Okay, so Abner Tharn is the father of Clivia Tharn, who is currently serving right now during the Three Banners War in Cyrodiil. She is serving as the Empress Regent of Tamriel. Abner Tharn is incredibly brusque. He's super pompous. High Chancellor and Overlord of Nibbane. He's an original member of the Five Companions. If you played through the main storyline, then you will certainly remember him. And you encounter him quite early in your adventures. The Five Companions, of course, being the original five members of the last Emperor Varen Aquilarios's The Prophet. Inner circle comprised of Lyris Titanborn, my girl, Abner Tharn, Sisahan, and Aquilarios, or also known as the Prophet. Fun fact, Abner Tharn has a special kind of relationship with my girl, Lyris Titanborn, the gigantic Nord warrior, whose waist comes up to my shoulders. <laughs> and he's an original member of the Five Companions. Oh. Um, if you have not played to that quest line, just play through the damn quest line. It's so good. It's so fun. And you get a lot of skill points out of it. So Yeah, a lot of good achievements, too. Yes. I can probably recite it by heart by now. What, the main quest line? I'm a little bit of an alcoholic. I've played through that quest line. You've and, done that multiple times? Yes, every time. Every tuned? Yeah, for the skill points. It's easy, dude. Oh, my gosh. Bless right through it. Don't be such a hater. Holy crap, man. All right. Imperial by birth. Tharn ascended to the position of Imperial Battle Mage of the Elder Council. What does that mean? Abner Tharn comes from a line of Imperial Battle Mages, which in itself sounds incredibly freaking badass. Agreed. Including his ancestor, Jagger Tharn, who was a third era Imperial Battle Mage himself. Jagger Tharn also happens to be the Imperial leader who unseated Uriel Septim VII from power during the event known as the Imperial Simulacrum. Simulacrum. Slower, again. Simulacrum. Okay. Okay. I could have gone into the Imperial Simulacrum. Mm. But then I looked at how much information there was on it, and I said, F that. <laughs> Not this week. <laughs> right. It's a lot. Arimatheus. <laughs> yes, that is totally Aramethius' area of expertise. Uh, yep. So, okay. So generally, the title of Imperial Battle Mage, which Tharn holds, applies to a mage who stands in direct service of the Emperor of Tamriel and serves as a member of the Elder Council, which Abner Tharn did. 
He, Abner Tharn, mysteriously lived to a ripe old age of 164. He's an Imperial. Crap. He's not an Altmer. <laughs> Which would kind of blow you away when you listen to his attitude and his demeanor. He totally seems like an Altmer. Mm-hmm. But he's an Imperial. So he's just a particularly douchey Imperial. Um, so 164 years of age is what he lived to, which may explain why he's so freaking grumpy. Um, I mean, I'd be old if I, grumpy if I was 164. I don't know if I could handle 164 years. That's a lot. That's a lot like, of... Yeah. That's a little I might too, go on, too much. I might go on one last hunting trip at about <laughs> 101 and then mysteriously fall off a freaking cliff head first. You're like, dude... Oh. Just let me go to Valhalla, wherever the hell I'm going. There you go. And then I go. So, okay. So, uh, Abner Tharn, 164 years of age is what he lived to. Imperials often die from a much earlier age since they have the same lifespan as the average human. But Tharn, this one's pretty fun. So, he liked to spread his seed, it turns out. What? Tharn fathered 16 children. Whoa. That he knows of, anyway. That he knows of? Wow! like a little bit of a freaking wild child. Huh. Um, one of Tharn's daughters, which we talked about, Clivia Tharn, mothered by Abner Tharn's seventh wife. Seventh Ladies, <laughs> ladies close your ears. <laughs> F that. Okay? <laughs> I've got one, and I love her dearly. But to do it again? Seventh? Eh. Seven I might want to floss with barbed wire before that happens. Oh. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just saying. So yeah, seven wives, sixteen children. I so wish she was standing right behind you during all that. That would just Oh dude, she'd be behind me just going, Yep. <laughs> I get it. Totally get it. <laughs> yeah, look at me, dude. Oh. <laughs> okay, so Abner Tharn's seventh wife, um, she born Clivia Tharn. She is the most recent ruler of Cyrodiil during the timeline of Elder Scrolls Online, second area, 583. She ruled the empire of Cyrodiil while her husband, did not know this, her husband, Varen Aquilarios, was away for three years in his quest to find the Amulet of Kings. Now, it might have come up at some time in lore. But I didn't quite pick up on it until I did this lore lesson. So anyway, Clivia Tharn, the spouse of Varen Aquilarios, who kind of flipped his crap looking for the Amulet of Kings and trying to become Dragonborn. Um, Eventually, during her rule, Molag Bal opened the plane meld and took control of her home in the White Gold Tower. So if you've played through that content, which I'm sure most of you probably have, and have gone through the White Gold Tower. The scroll is mine! Yeah. That's what it's all about. That was... Go experience it. It's the freaking story where somebody... No comment? No comment. I don't want to say who it no is. No spoilers? I don't want to spoil it, but somebody related to freaking Molag Ball ends up in there. And on Vet? Holy she's crap. She's a bitch. She's a real bitch. <laughs> So I'll say that. But anyway, 
Go for it. Um, a lot of the storyline that I'm talking about right now comes to life in the White Gold Tower. So enjoy. Uh, Tharn was discovered to have been secretly working with a Daedric cult. And for this reason, the three alliances wished to remove him from Tamriel. And when I say remove him from Tamriel, I mean kill him. <laughs> kill him. The Tharn family learned of this plot and formed a partnership with a necromancer. Mm. Yeah. Like we said, we're not going to speculate, but I'm just saying that mm-hmm. kind of rings a bell. Mm. That's a nice word right now. Yes, it's a real nice word, especially because you and I have really talked about it a lot. Oh, I want it so bad. I really, really want oh, class. So bad. So there's that. Oh, so bad. Beautiful giant slash lurk. You can feel <laughs> it right in the chat. If you want to confirm any of this information. <laughs> Wink twice for yes. Just <laughs> bark twice if you're in Milwaukee. Oh, crap. Okay. <sighs> Back on track, Jibs. Jesus. <sighs> Freaking derailer. Oh, okay. yeah. Anyway, the Tharn family figured out that somebody wanted to kill Abner. And they formed a partnership with a necromancer by the name of Manamarco. Kind of a big name in Elder Scrolls Online. Together, Tharn and Manamarco and his Daedric cult worked together to infiltrate Nern and try and pull the world into Cold Harbor, which is Molag Balbag's Daedric realm. Yeah, that sounds like a fun place. Yes, it's not. Mm. It's a terrible freaking place, and it's a super long quest line. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yes. So this unlikely partnership was jaded from the beginning. Abner Tharn and his Daedric-worshipping family despised Manamarco because he was another douche due to his involvement in the Soulburst. So let's talk about the Soulburst. Fun fact, the Soulburst was an arcane explosion that, that happened in the Imperial City caused by Manamarco who tricked Varen Aquilarios, the Emperor of Cyrodiil, into believing he could become a dragonborn by lighting the dragon fires. Hmm. Was not the case. The explosion that was caused by Manamarco because he harnessed the power from the Amulet of Kings and created a terror between Mundus and Oblivion, allowing Molag Balbag's forces to move in. And you experience this every time when you're running around the world and you hear, <laughs> and you look up in the sky. And there's some crap coming down from this guy that looks like some pretty heavy metal. I still think that's probably one of my favorite animations from I love it. From content. From like base game content of an MMO. I feel the urge to run toward it. Yeah. Every time. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Right. Abner Tharn was known to have personally tortured a Wren before she became queen and the leader of the Aldmeri Dominion, which makes me hate him all the more. Right? I level of fate from you. I hate him. <sighs> but he did send me something pretty cool in the mail, so you can't hate him so much. This was just one reason why the Aldmeri Dominion became involved in the Three Banners War. Because of what Abner Tharn did to Queen Iran. Abner Tharn later infuses the power of the Amulet of Kings into the Vestige. That's you. And assists the rest of the Five Companions to safety. What changed his mind? Hmm. 
He then flees back to the Imperial City with the Amulet of Kings in his possession. Minor spoiler! <laughs> Although Tharn wished to harness the power within the amulet, Meridia herself reassures you as the vestige that the relic's power will remain dormant and Abner will not succeed. Hmm. This is such a fun lore lesson. Hmm. So not much has been heard from Abner Tharn since the events, since these events. Until now. Something seems to have resurfaced mm -hmm. in the form of Abner Tharn. Mm -hmm. And a mysterious letter sent to several adventurers in Tamriel. Mm -hmm. Something is on the horizon for the Elder Scrolls online. But we don't quite know what it is yet. Mm. Until next week. It's true. Same bat time. Same bat channel. I'm excited. You excited? I am. Yeah, me too. This next week yeah. is freaking landmark. Oh. For I'd... Elder Scrolls Online. Agreed. For us, for the entire Elder Scrolls community. 100%. Yeah. Agreed. Well, that was good, man. Thanks, buddy. You Hope did. everybody understood that. You did real good. Thank you. All right, here we go. All right. We're going to talk about this is lore lesson 42, by the way. Cuadentados. No kidding. It's a lot of lore lessons. Yeah, that's awesome. But I never thought we were going to do a lore lesson on this particular thing. What's that, Cash? What is it? Tell me more. <laughs> Dragons. Dragons. We're doing a war lesson on dragons. Be fair, we fair. Okay, I can't do that. Just keep going. Yeah. So I mean, this it's it's a thing. I mean, these are flesh and bone dragons, not just bone dragons. These are flesh and bone dragons that are coming to the world that we live and love in Tamriel in the Second Era. So this is lore being written right in front of your face, because up to this date. Dragons were said to be non-existent during the Second Era. Correct. So, um, they're just not very well known in our era of Elder Scrolls Online. Very, very rare sight, even in their own day. But dragons are a large reptilian beast race, rumored to have originated in Akavir. We've already talked about Akavir before. Akavir is literally translated to mean dragon land and is a very large continent to the east of Tamriel's mainland. Akavir and Tamriel have had a very jaded yet clouded history, including several invasions from both sides. Tales have also foretold that dragons also came from the northernmost landmass land of Nern, which we've also had a lore lesson on, which was at Mora, the home of the Nords. Ancient Nords. So wherever they ended up originating, the race of dragons posed a very, very formidable threat to Tamriel. And obviously they will continue to in, this ne in the next chapter. Uh, massive and scaled, huge creatures, much larger than any man or myrrh. They have ridges with spikes along their slender frames, uh, wings resembling that of a bat, a massive bat. Mm-hmm. And they each have three sharp talons and a vestigial digit called a dewclaw on each of their legs. Hmm. My, my cats have a dewclaw. It's always the one that gets you. 
Anyway. Um, so in addition to their incredible sides, dragons have a very renowned affinity for magic. So not only are they giant and hulking, but they're really good at magic too. Uh, they can speak the common tongue despite not having any lips. And on top of that, they can freaking fly. So that's going to be interesting. Uh, many various types of dragons. There's a, a wide variety of colors and sizes, and I'm sure we're going to get to see quite a bit of those. We've already seen a lot of the horns, um, and the facial features on these dragons are different from any dragon that we've seen, like especially like in Skyrim. Yeah. They're just different. Right. Um, dragons are known to be incredibly intelligent. They can experience a myriad of mortal feelings, but they are incredibly distrustful creatures, even of their own kind. So here's the first fun fact for this lore lesson. Dragons are very social creatures, and they have been known to be driven mad by captivity and isolation, which brings about a very important question. What do you think the state of mind of the dragons were when they escaped the halls of Colossus? Pissed. Mm. That's my thought. Mm -hmm. Not stoked. <laughs> this was not a, my <laughs> not a good time for me. Yes, so I think that's probably going to uh, lend right into us having to murder them, mm -hmm. or at least try. Mm -hmm. Don't hit the hard mode scroll, please. <laughs> um, dragons are the immortal children of Akatosh. I mean, we talked a little bit about that Akatosh being the dragon god of time. We talked about that last episode or the episode before last episode. We talked about dragon breaks. It turns out dragon breaks have absolutely nothing to do with what's going on in Elder Scrolls in Tamriel during elsewhere. Well played, Zoss. Yeah, that, that, that was a nice troll there. That was good. Yeah, it was a, like a super juke. Um. So, being the immortal children of the dragon god of time, Akatosh, they are especially attuned to that same flow of time. Dragons are programmed to dominate all other beings, and in their mind, there is no difference between being powerful and being correct. So, for this reason, dragons see speaking, conversation, and combat as one and the same. So a lot of times they will have deadly verbal debates between their own kind huh. as they fight. They're literally killing each other with their words. So that's interesting. That sounds like my wife. I was going to say, it sounds like good day. Yeah. <laughs> she could literally melt my face with her words. Hmm. It's terrifying. That's a terrifying love right there. She's a wonderful woman. Yes, yeah, she is. I love her a long time. <laughs> you what? How? Oh. You know what I meant? The powerful wizard of the first era, Shalador. Some of you might remember him. He's made some appearances in the Mage's Guild questline. Mm -hmm. Shalador committed a great amount of time into the study of dragons and their origins. His mastery of magic was nearly unmatched during his time period, uh, during the, the part of history where he lived. That his mastery of magic was unmatched. So his research became known as truth. It was very highly sought after. 
And even centuries after his death, people sought after his knowledge in his tomes and writings. Mm-hmm. His research into dragons, however, he recorded in something that was called Shalador's Insights, a disquisition on the origin and nature of dragons. In this writing, he suggested that dragons had existed since the dawn of time, but that, he had, but that they had begun as innately wild creatures. He thought that when they were, they were born, they were just wild. Right. But he claimed that the dragons didn't become civilized until the birth of Alduin, the firstborn of Akatosh. So Alduin was Akatosh's son. And you all remember Alduin from Skyrim. Mm-hmm. Alduin the world eater was an immensely powerful dragon who proclaimed to be the very aspect of Akatosh. His name in dragon's tongue can be separated into Alduin, which means destroyer, devourer, master. Hmm. Yeah. About That's kick-ass lore. Right there. Yeah. That's kick-ass lore right there. Okay. Um, second fun fact. Nordic legend, legend holds that in the early days, dragons were the only creatures who could harness the power of their voice to perform great feats of magic. In the early days, but we all know that something happened for mortal to be able to harness that same magic. Uh-huh. Don't worry, I'll get there. Okay. Dragons are believed to have made their homes high in the mountains in areas that allowed their flight to be free of obstructions. If you can imagine 747 airplane trying to flap its wings and take off, you're going to need some room. So... That's why they lived up high. Dragons preferred a very solitary life well away from thieves and aggression. Thieves part was interesting because that to me indicates that dragons, just like they are in in the lore of many, many different fantasy books, including the king, Lord of the Rings, and the Hobbit, um... Dragons prefer a solitary life in that series because they were hoarders of treasure. Uh-huh. So that's what that kind of led me to. There was nothing else on it. I couldn't find anything else on it. Why they would want to be away from thieves and aggression other than to kind of deduce that they like to keep stuff. Right. Um, they also made use in the higher areas, in the mountains, they made use of flat areas to raise cattle seemingly to eat them. Um, And then some ancient indications suggest that dragons had some skill in smithing. It was interesting. That's how would they, how would that work? Like you're not holding tools, man. Magic legs. Okay. Magic. Magic hammers. It's magic. During the Merithic era, dragon priests formed and maintained several dragon worshiping cults. The cults uh, were enthralled, or the cults actually enthralled the surrounding populations and forged an uneasy peace between dragons and men. So they kind of started, through these dragon cults, they started to intertwine the culture of the dragon with regular people. And you can kind of see how there's kind of an uneasy union there. Yeah, that'd go, yeah. Yeah, like, what? Get that thing out of here. Yeah, no kidding. Um. At some point during this era, during Merithic, 
the Nordic legend holds that Alduin led an offensive against the races of men, which instigated a rebellion against the dragon race. So I think they said what happened was a dragon, they were trying to make friends in one of these Nordic towns, and he sneezed and caught some crap on fire. So the people started getting mad, and Alduin was like, that's not cool, the guy was sick, he sneezed, don't be upset. And then the war started. I mean, that's why I'd start a war. Yeah, so that last part isn't really true, (laughs) but it was awesome. (laughs) Okay. So the dragons uh, had indiscriminately began killing the population of men under the leadership orders of Alduin. Kind of sounds like a thief. Um, Alduin ignored his duty, which was to just take care of the dragons. And um, as a leader, and he decided to conquer the land and take it from men instead. Uh, Though dragons were initially thought to be unbeatable, mortals discovered ways to slow and defeat the beasts. Legend holds that Akatosh himself, Alduin's father, intervened against the dragons by turning their own kind against each other to assist in ending the war. That's legend. But legend holds that Akatosh was completely against this war between the men and the dragons. So if you remember from Skyrim, the dragon Parthenax took pity upon the Nords and taught several mortals, including your character, to use the thum of the dragon's tongue to channel their own voices into the tongue of the dragons. This power allowed the mortal race to turn the tide of war and eventually... Defeat Alduin. Minor spoiler. Play the game. For Christ's sake, it's old. <laughs> the remaining dragons were hunted and killed until they were nearly extinct. Fun fact. Many people of the Merithic era, most notably the dragon priests and their followers, ended up becoming the undead Draugr that still haunt the crypts of the northern territories today. And in the later eras. Yeah, so most of those guys, I mean, sometimes you have to fight a dragon priest, um, but for the most part, those Draugr were either citizens of a local town or um, in, in the dragon cult themselves, and they just ended up becoming the protectors of those crypts. Interesting. Yeah. After the dragons had lost their foothold in Tamriel due to the War of the Dragon Age, not the game, there's actually a War of the Dragon Age, they became much, much more elusive. So threats such as this was very, very interesting. The threat threats such as the the Teshi, which we've talked about, they were a snake-like Akaviri race, mm-hmm. and an out-of-control population of cliff racers in Vardenfell dwindled down the population of dragons to an all-time low across Nern. So they started hiding. They're like, F this. Right. This sucks. Um, the Akaviri Dragon Guard and later the Blades, damn Imperials, <laughs> members of an elite Imperial order dedicated to the protection and service of the dragonborn emperors of Tamriel, hunted the remaining dragons and their followers to near extinction. As a result, almost all wild dragons were either killed or driven off, disappearing altogether from sight in Tamriel. This is much later, though. 
Dragons made an early return in the fourth era as a result of the resurfacing of Alduin, the firstborn of Akatosh. He came back, and he was said to have been transported through time by the ancient Nords. Alduin was able to resurrect many of his fallen dragon brethren. Skyrim, kind of some main plot points here. This was possible due to one fact. Only the dragons themselves, or one who is truly dragon-born, possess the power to permanently kill a dragon. And that only occurs when the dragon-born absorbs the dragon's soul. Skyrim. Uh If you haven't played it, you should be downloading it by now. I haven't played it all the way through. Well, you're a communist. Our <laughs> listeners know that, so that's that. Jeez. So as a result of this very event in the fourth era, the fate of any remaining dragons is unknown. Huh. I don't have to tell you. Let's talk a little bit about the Halls of Colossus to close us, because it's very interesting to me. In elsewhere, there is a place called the Halls of Colossus. In the trailer that you saw at the very beginning of our show and the one that you watched last week during the reveal of Elsewhere, the next chapter of Elder Scrolls Online, you saw dragons unleashed because of a wrath stone and they came out of this massive door and flew out of this massive structure. That structure is called the Halls of Colossus. Mm -hmm. So... Abner Tharn hauls butt to get out of there. His travel companion, uh, the female Khajiit by the name of Kamira, hauls butt out of there. But who knows why they traveled to the halls of Colossus and elsewhere? Nobody knows. And I'm kind of dying to find out. Um, We don't quite know what they were doing and why they were there. So I started digging into what the Halls of Colossus was. Halls of Colossus is an ancient structure in the Kinral Peninsula, which is southern elsewhere, basically. Mm-hmm. The halls are perched up on this massive cliff overlooking the Great Divide. The halls were built as a monument to a race of giants, although some say it was actually built by the giants themselves. Others claim the halls were built by Tiber Septim, for use as a testing ground for his prototype weapon, the, the Numidium. We've already talked about the Numidium right. in the past as well, but I'm going to seal it up for you again to remind you in our fun fact. The Numidium, also known as the Anumidium, or the Brass God, was a giant golem of Dwemer origin constructed to be a new god. It was powered by the Heart of Lorcan. Remember that story? Yep. Cool. All right. The Halls of Colossus. Very first appeared in the lore of the game Arena. The very first Elder Scrolls game. The quest was actually called the Halls of Colossus. And in the quest from Arena, the Halls of Colossus are described as three massive levels with ghouls, skeletons, rats, hellhounds, all kinds of baddies in there. The player during this quest must descend all levels of the halls in search of a piece of Jagger Tharn, Abner Tharn's father, 
Jagger Tharn's Staff of Chaos. You've got the player has to go into the Halls of Colossus to get a piece of Abner Tharn's dad's staff. Could this be the reason Abner Tharn was visiting the Halls of Colossus in the first place? Interesting. We don't know. Was there some kind of family heirloom that was left in there that he was trying to retrieve? Why would the dragons have been locked in the Halls of Colossus in the first place? So my thought, it's just theory. Since the Halls of Colossus were built for giants, it implies that the massive size of the halls would be sizable enough to imprison a race of creatures large enough or, you know, as large as dragons. Right. There is not much more known about the Halls of Colossus. I have looked ad nauseum. If you can find something more, please let me know. Because I'd be incredibly interested to hear more about what the Halls of Colossus is. Now, I'm pretty sure we're going to find out a lot more this mid-year, but we'll see where we land. So whatever the reason for Tharn's visit to the Halls of Colossus, the dragons are going to be unleashed back into Tamriel. We are undoubtedly going to be in for an incredible adventure. I cannot wait to figure it out, unlock the secrets of the return of the dragons Me too. in Elder Scrolls Online. Me too. Like um, when, when Somerset dropped... The main storyline was really the part that really... So, today, we wanted to touch on something that was a little bit more in-depth to the Khajiit. Because we've already covered the Khajiit way back in more or less than 11. Uh Um, We all know where we're headed. We're going to the land of the Khajiit. Yeah. Elsewhere in the Elder Scrolls Online upcoming chapter by that same name. Um, we are undoubtedly going to run into tons of Khajiit. But there have been a couple of quite distinct facts recently released about the type of Khajiit we're going to run into. Um, we're going to be interacting with the Alfique, which we covered in Lore Lesson 11, but we're going to Refresh your mind on what the Alfique are tonight. And um, if you purchase a collector's edition of the game, you're actually going to receive, as part of your in-game items, the Sench Rot Mount, which I'm kind of excited about talking about because I'm going to be riding on one soon. Yeah, buddy. So who would we be as lore seekers if we did not talk about these two very interesting types of Khajiit? Um. So, in Lore Lesson 11, we talked about how the Khajiit is subtly bound to the lunar cycles of Masser and Secunda, the two distant moons of Ner. A mysterious force determines the form that a Khajiit assumes in life, usually at their birth, according to the phases of the two moons. So, basically speaking, the way a Khajiit looks in life is directly tied to the positions of the moon phases when they are born. So, when all Khajiit are born, they're similar in appearance. But soon, as they they start to grow, the differences begin to manifest in a matter of weeks. 
There are rumored to be more than 20 forms of Khajiit, but there's only a limited amount of information that is known. What is known, however, is the confirmed existence of the Alfiq and the Centrat. Let's start with the Alfiq, which is incredibly interesting. Okay. Similar to a modern house cat or the cats that you see running around Elder Scrolls, the Alfiq are much more jolly and smart. Cappy. Um, so to best describe the Alfiq, it's guaranteed that you've run into an Alfiq. You just might have not known it. As a matter of fact, one of your pets, if you have cats um, in the game, might be an Alfiq. Who knows? Your actual real-life cat might be an Alfiq. <laughs> <laughs> Um, to best describe the Alfiq, when I was doing my research, I found an article on Reddit. Yes, I braved the perils of Reddit to Good. find the information. <laughs> Good for you. Better man I know. Than me. Yay, me. Uh, is it canon? Who knows? I don't really even give a crap, to be honest with you, because it was so awesome that I had to do this for you guys. So... I will be reading this part of the lore lesson in the Kajiti tongue right here on our podcast. So please, without any further ado, here's the Alfiq written by the Apocrypha on Reddit, read by Cash the Lore Seeker. Hmm. You want to know more about the Furstocks? This one explains. The Alfiq. They are the jolliest of the Khajiit. Having the size of a house cat, but the heart of a lion or a peacock. You may already have met one, but just did not know it, thinking it one of your mewling kitty cats that you feed milk and fish. Not that an Alfiq would take offense at such offerings, but then you may never be able to get rid of it. This is one reason why many Alfiq dye their fur or wear hats and vests, so that outlanders are not exposed to such dangers of servitude through misidentification. Alfiq, having a large reputation, you see, larger than their size, and to a point most comical. They will carry themselves with extreme gravity, until this one distracts them with a string or a rustling leaf, which they can't simply resist to catch. And catch they will, for Alfiq are very good at magic, disappearing and reappearing where they should not be, to stick claws or tooth fast to rapiers into their prey. The prey only hopes Kajit has not put the poison on their weapons, or have no stickable gaps in their armor for Kajit to exploit so. That this prey sometimes turns out to be a feather would make all the outlanders laugh, but this would never dampen the Alfiq's spirit, you see. Much to outlanders' chagrin, this one thinks. Always telling stories of their own antics, those Kajit. This one even hears one Alfiq tale of bedding a centrat, told with much fluffed fur and upright tail, ignoring all the catcalls when asked how he did not die under centrat's claws. This one thinks this Khajiit was exaggerating, 
But one never knows with an Alfik. Perhaps, somewhere, there is a Centrat, expecting a family of many little Alfiks and Centrats, and we would never know it, yes? Kajit have many such tales about Alfit tricksters and heroics, and not all told by Alfik themselves. This one recognizes the same stories in your language, though of course you outlanders make the Alfik into humans or housecats wearing boots instead. How ridiculous is that? For all the stories of adventure and bravery, the truth is that many Alfik are employed in watching grain for insects or moon sugar from dishonorable thieves. Their high, clear voices, so beautiful when singing wordless ballads in Tiagra, also have the distinction of being impossible to ignore when they give the alarm. And when they give that alarm often and loudly, so much this one thinks Alfik just like to hear themselves talk when nothing more interesting is going on. Alfik would be very good spy for their small size, this one thinks, if not for unfortunate flaw like this. Alfik told this one story of Outlander making this mistake, bringing Alfik into home as pet kitty cat. Then Kajit get to tell many tales about Outlander's own exploits in bedroom, yowling same remarks about Lady Centrat in lusty Tagra until Outlander can find no more comfort in bed. What do you think of that? Very much like the Alfik, yes? To pay back cat calls by becoming a calling cat. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I hope you hated that as much as I enjoyed doing it for you. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. Did not expect the, the end there. Well done. Wow. Anyway, uh, so that is a little bit more on the Alfik. It was very hard to find lore on the Alfik past what we already have in Elder Scrolls Online. So, um, when I found that, I thought it was gold. And uh, to Apocrypha, I don't even know who that person is, but apparently they're pretty amazing, uh, amazing with lore. So thank you very much for that and to um, allowing us to contribute that to our cast. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Centrot to close up here. Um, these are very interesting. And if you go to the article that we have on this lore there is a diagram of the size of what Centrot is rumored to be. Um, th these are massively beastly kitty cats. Um, the Imperials, which used, used to ride them into battle, actually called them battle cats. Um, not thundercats, battle cats. <laughs> um, they are a form of Khajiit born when Masser is full, the mood of Masser is full, and Secunda is waxing. I don't know what the F that means, but what's a waxing moon? I don't know. I'm not an astrological type of guy, but apparently it happens. Anyway, centrot are larger and slower than the cinch. Remember the rot part. If you have a type of Khajiit and there's rot behind it, R-A-H-T, it typically means the larger form of that um, subspecies. So the Senche Rot are larger and slower than the Sench, 
with a shorter body and straighter legs, the average centrot stands as tall as two Altmer, so you're like 14 or so feet high, and can weigh as much as 50 Altmer. Now, I don't know why the weight and size of Khajiit are measured in Altmer, and maybe they're like the Backstreet Boys or something of Tamriel, because uh, a Backstreet Boy, in a weight of measurement, is 135 pounds. <laughs> that's like common knowledge. So anyway, maybe that's what they're trying to do with the Altmer here. But um, yeah, Centrot stand as tall as two Altmer and can weigh as much as 50 Altmer. So that's freaking huge. Uh, like freaking huge. Yeah, I don't. I don't know where the a backstreet boy is 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 the normal measure unit of measurement, but. Uh... Well, yeah. I mean, if he if a backstreet boy is 135 pounds, and that's what an Altmer weighs, you know, being all skinny and tall, hmm. it's 50 times 135. That's a. It's a lot. That's a big old mount right there so i don't yeah it's like uh i don't know how uh eso is going to do it and make it canon if it truly is a centrot um but note this they are still known to be the largest feline of all nern but the reported measurements may be exaggerated and that may be how they're going to get away with making uh, the centrot mount canon um the centrot are they're fully intelligent but that's i mean that's what they do is they're just they're massive battle cats so um they're employed as steeds most often in battle they're fearsome they're enormous they're ridden by other khajiit which is weird because if i had another human being on my back i'd think that was super weird um they were utilized in Valenwood during the Five-Year War. Now, you'll remember this is the war that happened between the Bosmer and the Khajiit, where the Khajiit stole all their wood. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so the way this war started was the Centrot, ridden by other Khajiit, went to some certain areas in Valenwood and started hacking down the trees because they knew it was going to elicit a response from the Bosmer who follow the green pact where damaging the forest in any way is completely off the table. So I'm not going to go completely go over the five-year war. Um, Cause there's, there could be a whole lore lesson on the five-year war. Um, but anyway, the Centrot were employed with the tree cutting teams of the Cathay rot. Um, when the Cathay rot is some of the larger regular size Bosmer or um, Khajiit. Um, or they were used to transport equipment. So that's what the, the Centrot were used for. Sench Tigers, which are all over Elder Scrolls Online, are a smaller version of the Centrot and also utilized as battle cats by the Aldmeri Dominion in ESO. Um, I don't have any more for you. I mean, that is our lore lesson on those two types, which we're going to see more of, I'm sure, and learn more of. It's probably going to be lore books and stuff. That, ha- that talk about the different subspecies of Khajiit. And I'm dying to learn more about the Alphique because they're just super interesting to me that they actually wear the little tiny Alphique kitty cats. They want other people to know that they're Alphique. So they actually wear like little masks and 
you know, little like bonnets and like puss in boots kind of thing. Yeah, like body armor and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. And they got these little tiny toothpick sized spears they can stick into you. Yeah. yeah. It just cracks me up. It reminds me one hundred percent of the little tabby cat from Shrek. Is that oh, it? Oh yeah. 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 Puss in boots. Puss in boots. With the yeah. l- you just said puss in boots, didn't you? Yeah, puss in boots. It's been a long show. It's been a long show. <laughs> it's been a long... <laughs> it's been a long night. <laughs> I'm just trying to make it through the through the episode without the internet know. going out. Oh, good gracious! All right. I've had a little bit to drink, so I may or may not send your nuts. So be careful. Oh, okay. Well, here we go. Carry on. This, the the spell's done. <laughs> Is that what you wrote in chat? Yeah, that's okay. right. See, I put spell done. That means you go now. 44 freaking lore <laughs> lessons. Can you guys believe that? It has been 44 lore lessons since last year. I cannot even believe it. Anyway, hmm. very appropriately for this week's lore lesson, we are hitting the land of elsewhere. As it is going to become the land of many ESO players here in a couple of months. And uh, I'm kind of excited about it. Elsewhere lies on the southern coast of Tamriel, home to the feline race of Elder Scrolls, one of the most beloved races of all time, the Kitty Khajiit. Elsewhere is bordered to the west by Valen Wood. That's my favorite spot. Home of the Bosmer, the little tiny wood elves, and then Cyrodiil to the north and the east, and then the very cold Padomaic Ocean to the south of elsewhere. Several other notable regions and cities within the province of elsewhere exist. So let's talk a little bit about the geography of elsewhere and some of the cities that we are going to be visiting. A couple of these you'll already know because we've already been there because we've just had a little snippet of elsewhere, but we're getting the whole mother this time in this next release. Anyway, Anakina. This is a harsh, dry, arid plain encompassed the northern half of elsewhere and gave rise to a very hardened warrior culture of the native Khajiit. Save that one because we're going to talk more about that as we go. Reaper's March. We've all been to Reaper's March, most likely because you found a search on the Tamriel Trade Center and somebody is selling something that you need because Reaper's March is a giant trading spot. The city is located northwest of elsewhere and shares a border with Valenwood. The bordering lands consist of pockets of dense forest to the north, but they all lend to very lush green savannas, which is pretty much the basis of what elsewhere is, is lush green savannas near the cities of Dune and Rockwa. This region is home to very numerous plantations of moon sugar which you know is elsewhere's main export and the main ingredient in skooma. (laughs) So good. Skooma is basically the meth of Tamriel or the heroin of Tamriel, whichever whichever (laughs) you pick. Or if you're really in tune with the, with the most recent, and if we have at least one person in chat, Joff the goat, I know is in tune with the most recent thing that is bothering the, (laughs) the symbiotic uh, drug world is fentanyl. So anyway, moon sugar. Is that like skooma, the fentanyl 
of Tamriel. <laughs> the death sticks of Tamriel. Right. So we keep going. Pelotine. Pelotine is the southern half of elsewhere and is the most fertile land in the region, replete with jungles, rainforests, and flowing rivers. Capital city of elsewhere, Torval, is located in the region of Pelotine. So the Khajiit of this area are known to be much wealthier than the barbaric Khajiit of the northern zones. This is going to prove to be an issue later on in my lore lesson. So just wait for it. Okay. Next, the Kinral Peninsula. I like how they spell that one, like the Kinra Peninsula, because they're cats. Yeah. Just okay. you're going to grr yeah. every time? Yeah, I got excited about that. All right. Well, no. The southernmost region of elsewhere includes the bustling port city of Senchal, where, if you are a budding necromancer, they actually sell corpses. Solid work, kitty cats. That's freaking gross. So anyway, that's the thing. I call that capitalizing. That's what I call it. Well, well done. that's what they well do. Done, and we covered you. that like way back in our necromancer episode. And now all of a sudden, super weird. It becomes relevant yeah, once it, again. It brings a whole new meaning to bring out your dead. <laughs> oh, my God. That needs to be the name of our show when necromancers drop. Bring out your dead? Bring out your dead. Okay. Chat, remember Write that. it down. I ex- no, no, I expect you to write All right, it down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to. Okay. Lore Seeker Secretary, write it down. Okay. 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 All right. The Tenmar Forest. This is a large jungle located to the south of elsewhere is the area where moon sugar is known to have originated. Interesting. Canarthi's Roost. We've all been to Canarthi's Roost. It is one of our main starting zones, and it's a small island to the southwest of elsewhere, also called the Isle of Three Temples. I wonder why it's called the Isle of Three Temples. Because there's three freaking temples on it. That's awesome. Legend holds. I like this part a lot when I was writing this lore lesson. Legend holds that a hawk goddess by the name of Canarthi rested upon a tree on this island during her first journey across the heavens. The tree she perched on would later become known as the Great Tree and the settlement of Mistral would be built around it. Canarthi's roost became home to populations of marmor, bastards, sea elves, (laughs) and Khajiit. I'm not a fan of Marmor. I cannot freaking stand them. Man, I wish we could be that Marmor just to piss you off. I'd be one. Dude. Okay, so if, I don't I don't know if you remember this, but during our storyline at the end of our episodes, you were almost killed by a group of Marmor. I'm aware. I'm just saying, you know. Okay. Keep your enemies close. I'm reminding you. you know. I'm just refreshing your memory. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Dad. The origins of elsewhere. Where did it come from? The origins of elsewhere and Khajiit inhabitants reach very far back into the Dawn era, the beginning of time on Tamriel. The once singular continent of Nern broke apart into four continents. It's like, was it Pangea? Was that the, was that the one on Earth? Um, it was called Pangea, the, I think. Yeah, yeah, that was it. So kind of a parallel there. Maybe it was a dragon break. I don't know. When the once singular continent of Nern broke apart into four continents as a result of a war between the Elnafe, or as we know it, the old gods. Elsewhere was a portion of the mega continent that broke off and became known as Tamriel. So elsewhere was a portion of that mega continent and a big, big, big portion. For this region, Khajiit were once known to inhabit the lands far beyond the borders of elsewhere 
making them the dominant culture in southern Tamriel. There's a fun fact you didn't know. Murren men later arrived on the continent and then fought for dominance in the north, while ancient Khajiit moved and settled to the south. They were like, dudes, we're out. You guys are stupid. You fight over whatever it is. We're going to take this area to the south. This is better down there. Better climate. Yeah. Anyway. So really, what that means to me is that when Tamriel was first formed because of the breaking of the continents into four, into quadrants, the Khajiit were everywhere. And then they were kind of passive, and they were just like, you guys are stupid, and then we're out. So that's why they went south. Anyway. During the first era, this is where stuff gets kind of interesting with um, Khajiit. And I don't know, I kind of wish the world was like this, to be honest with you, because I think there'd be a whole lot less headbutting between political parties. I'll leave it right there. Just pay attention. because <laughs> I think a lot can be learned from this. <laughs> so during the first era, the elsewhere province was divided into 16 kingdoms. All kingdoms work together in harmony to survive and thrive. Not only that, each kingdom had a specialization in goods or services, and they shared them readily with their neighbors, ensuring all kingdoms' successes. As an example, one kingdom would provide a fighting force, like in this case, it was the north, would provide a fighting force in exchange for fish and other goods from a coastal kingdom like Sanchal. So I'm like, okay, I like this. This is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So here's our first fun fact of the lore lesson. Influence and power was constantly shifting in the kingdoms of elsewhere. Dominance in the region was shared through each kingdom, depending on the moon phases of the two moons of Tamriel, Master and Secunda. For example, Nequinal was in power during full moons, while Torval was at power during half moons, or Sanchal when both moons were new. So they shared it. Mm -hmm. Does that make like some incredulous freaking sense? It, it makes a lot of sense. So do you want? Uh, yeah, just, share it. I just want to. You be... don't have to have a freaking wiener fight. Do you? Do you want to just? Do you? Do you want to live in the Indiana uh, district, Cash? I don't no, 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 no. I don't want my neck to be that red. Okay. I'm just saying. I want to frick. I want everybody to freaking get along. That would be super. Our necks aren't red here, Cash. Dude, there's a lot of politics I got to cover, so don't derail. Me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, the political balance of elsewhere and its 16 kingdoms. This is what I want your take home to be, people. Because if we could spread the little bit of this in the world, we'd be amazing. The political balance of elsewhere and its 16 kingdoms worked harmoniously for many thousands of years without the threat of outside invasion. It seems threats from the nearby Alessian Empire and the Bosmer, and what else, getting into, getting into crap, were relatively non-existent, possibly due to the outside nation's understanding of the symbiosis that each of the 16 kingdom, kingdoms had with one another. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I got you. Harmony. I got what you're when throwing down. When you push harmony and the entire world knows that you are in harmony. Yeah. They'll back off. Yeah. So to me, it's kind of like the silent giant. 
you have your hand over your fist at all times. When you have to, you remove your hand and you knock somebody's freaking split their lip. But if you don't need to, why worry about it, right? You know, the offer still stands. We, we, could, always, we could always just do the Illinois district. I mean, that's right next door to me. Chicago? Ugh. No, you, you, don't, you don't want to go to Chicago. <laughs> no, ugh. You may not walk out of Chicago. <laughs> ugh. All right. But inevitably, what happens to Harmony? Somebody kicks it in the nuts. Good job, Jibs. The end of the 16 kingdoms. The political landscape came to a screeching halt near the end of the first era in Elsewhere. Why? We've talked about it before. The Thracian plague of the first era expanded into Elsewhere along its trading routes and caused mass mortality in the region. The absolute population destruction that occurred, particularly to the Khajiit, as a result of the plague and elsewhere caused a major shift in power because the survivors were forced into undesired roles, eventually leading to distrust and violence among the Kajiti population. Eh, turns out all it takes is a massive epidemic and then everybody poops the bed. Hmm. So elsewhere from 16 symbiotic kingdoms was reduced to two realms with opposing cultures Now, remember what I was talking about before, when the North and the South came to odds. The North was all about warring. Yeah. The South was business owners. Yeah. It doesn't work too good. No. When a business owner has a problem with a warrior. (laughs) Right? You bargain. That's what you do. Yeah. It usually ends in a split lip. So, this is what happened. The Nekinal from the North was a warring clan and came to odds with the Southern clan of Palatine comprised of wealthy land and business owners. This bitter, often violent feud became a stalemate for centuries, only ending when two of the kingdom's rulers decided to marry to unite the two realms into elsewhere confederacy in the second era, year 309. So, the Thracian Plague. If you don't remember the Thracian Plague, it was an artificially created pandemic of mass proportions that occurred in the first era, year 2260, and it was estimated to have killed half the population of Tamriel. This is legit, I this, man. I remember this from our last lore lesson that we had on the Thracian Plague. I repeated it. Half of the freaking population of Tamriel died because of the Thracian Plague. Now... We've also talked about the people who have created, or the things that created the Thracian Plague. It was the Slode. And the reason it was called the Thracian Plague is because it was created by the Slode and named after their homeland on the Coral Kingdom of Thras. Such a wonderful group of people. Yeah, not at all. Burn them with fire. Absolutely. <laughs> Salt. Burned down with salt. Pour freaking salt on them. Anyway. Chat says, Slode can suck it. <laughs> Thank you. That was Matt. Slode can suck it. Thank you very much. Now, <laughs> Troy says, he's always said it's not a good cash story until somebody poops the bed. Very true. There's a lot of bed pooping in this story. Mm-hmm. So, the Elsewhere Confederacy. It did not end up proving peaceful probably because they called it the confederacy that's not a good thing 
So the rift between the warring culture of the northern Khajiit and the nobility of the south was absolutely a problem. Due to their political prowess, though, the power began to shift to the nobility in the south, making the chieftains of the north left feeling powerless and betrayed. So attacks from the northern forces started to become very, very recurrent. They were, they were desperate at this point. Uh, so they started to attack the king of the south and his forces. King Kiergo, who was in the south, had no choice because they were getting overwhelmed. I mean, you're talking merchants and politicians and wealthy people who were just hiring a bunch of mercenaries to defend them. They didn't have an army. Right. All they had was mercenaries. So eventually they became overwhelmed by the warring culture of the North and King Kiergo from the South had no choice but to petition the empire to help. So as the rebellion continued, a very renowned uh, Kajiti spiritual leader by the name of Ridtharidatta, I'll say that again, Ridtharidatta, he revealed a very secretive prophecy known as the Riddlethar Epiphany. This is very interesting. Pay attention. If you're falling asleep, if you're passing out drunk, now's the time to poke yourself in the eye. (laughs) The Riddlethar was a cosmic order deity of the Khajiit. As revealed by the Riddthar Ridata, it was a set of guidelines by which to live. So the messages of the Riddlethar were delivered by avatars appearing as humble messengers of the gods. So, because the Kajiti population was so decimated at this point, and they were reaching and starving for direction and stability, they took the message of Riddharidatta and eventually named him the first Main. So here's a fun fact. The Main is a very unique breed of Kajit. Tradition holds that only one Main can be alive at any one time. And most Khajiit believe that there is only one main who is reborn over and over in different bodies. Basically, the main is like the mother hen. He's like the Even, dude. He's the dude. He's the dude. And that's what they thought. Like, there's a there's a beverage here. There's, Take it easy, man. The carpet really, what was it? The rug. The rug brought the, the rug room really together, brought the man. room together. <laughs> exactly. Okay, you're out of your element. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, Ridtharidatta uh, was thought to have been the first main because he brought this sense of belonging and this sense of direction to the Khajiit who were so spread at that particular moment. So they call him the first main. The main then used the Riddlethar to proclaim a new system of dividing powers within the confines of elsewhere. So they were back to some sense of order. The new system was directly related to the dance of the two moons and their differing phases. So again, it brought structure back to the Khajiit, and that's what they need. People need leadership and direction. Right. So do cats, turns out. So the power would shift as it had during the time of the 16 kingdoms under the direction and control of the main itself. This eventually restored peace in the region around Second era, year 324, not too long before Elder Scrolls Online. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now let's talk about the, the uh, Nahatan flu. We've already talked about that before. The Nahatan flu ravaged the land of elsewhere early in the second era. They were like, really, dude? Again, the flu first appeared in the slums of Senchal, 
the border town or the uh, port town and quickly spread to the entirety of the region, killing thousands upon thousands in its path again. So the Khajiit, unlike the Bosmer who are immune to poison and the Argonians who are immune to freaking everything and survived both of these flus, like no problem down South. If you sneeze on the Khajiit, they're sick immediately. They're like, meow, I'm sick now. I don't know if that's exactly how it goes, but. (laughs) 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 Meow. Meow, I have a respiratory infection. (laughs) Jesus. That's awful. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, the Khajiit gets sick super quick. (sighs) And the uh, Manhattan flu came into elsewhere and decimated them again thousands upon thousands it killed so here's where it gets kind of interesting um, within our timeline of ESO in a strategic move because of all the death and destruction the Altmer of Somerset the Nifears provided unexpected aid to the Khajiit in the form of physicians healers and supplies to fight off the powerful flu as I have one of my Khajiit at my office door, <laughs> screaming to be let in. It's like, yeah. don't let me, meow, don't let me get sick. <laughs> so, eventually, the assistance of the High Elves proved very successful, and the Manhattan flu was defeated in elsewhere. So during this time, fun fact, during this time, when, when the uh, Khajiit were just being decimated by the Manhattan flu, Colovian armies took advantage of the weakened Khajiit and invaded elsewhere in the north. Despite a weakened Khajiiti defense, Colovian armies were fought back in year uh, the second era, year 562. So this is actually a quest line in um, Elder Scrolls, and you can play through it. It's pretty cool when a Col- um, Colovian armies attack. It's like, really, you guys? They're sick. So anyway, the birth of the Dominion. And I don't care if you're having a heart packed. I don't care if you're Daggerfall Covenant. Don't disparage this next part of my lore lesson. Because this is where the magic happens, people. <laughs> We're good? Okay. For the Dominion. With the death of King Hittalith in Alinor in the second era, year 580, my favorite, my very favorite, Queen Irene inherits the throne of Somerset. So hot. So hot. So hot. As foreign armies moved in to invade the southwest regions of Tamriel, Queen Irene called upon the Khajiit to stand by her side and provide assistance as she and the Altmer had once done during their battle with the Nahat flu. A document known as the Elden Accord was later signed by Queen Irene, Lord Gareshi, and King Aridan Cameron forming the first Aldmeri Dominion. Let me hear it. (laughs) Under this united banner, the Dominion entered the Three Banners War. Yeah. Dominated. That is the birth of the Aldmeri Dominion right there and the very jaded but amazing past of our very favorite Kajidi Kitties in the land of elsewhere. Well freaking done, my friend. Thanks, buddy. You know what I look forward to the most out of Elsewhere? Uh, I think they, to be honest, 
I find the Khajiit the most, um, and probably the Wood Elves. Well, not so much the Wood Elves. Uh, the Khajiit the Prone most, to sickness? The, y- yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> but the most mysterious race, you know? Like, there's so much to them that I want to understand. Like, I want to see the main when we go to the DLC. I want to see... Well, obviously, we're going to see dragons, but I want to see how their whole hierarchy works. Like, how just the conversations they have with each other, you know, how they address each other. Are they crappy with each other, like the Altmer, or, you know, just all those things? All those things. Yeah. They're going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to talk Shiagoraf today, but oh. I'm not going to do it in that voice for the entire time. Okay, he was going to say you're Irish now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Uncle Shio has a very distinct way of talking. Mm-hmm. He talks in riddles. He does. And he likes to F with mortals. <laughs> so uh, what we're going to talk a little bit about, we're going to start by talking about Jigalag. What? And you're like, what? Excuse me, what? Yeah, thank God I was pronouncing that name and you were not. You so anyway, are a <laughs> Jigalag in the Grey March, before we get into Sheo, because it is very, very pertinent. Long before recorded time, the Daedric Prince of Order, Jigalag, was becoming all-powerful. He was becoming very, very influential across all realms and dimensions, and the other Daedric Princes did not like it. They began to grow very, very fearful about Jigalag's immense power, And collectively, they got together and cursed him to become the embodiment of chaos and madness. The two things that Jigalag hated most. This is where Shiagorath was rumored to have been born on this day that Jigalag was cursed. Which is why people say that Shiagorath is both Jigalag and Shiagorath. It gets very interesting. Okay. Shiagorath transformed Jigalag's domain into the Shivering Isles. Remember, all Daedric princes have their own dimension. In Elder Scrolls Online, we play in Molag Ball's dimension mm-hmm. of Cold Harbor. Right. So Shiagorath's is called the Shivering Isles. Now, if you have played other Elder Scrolls games, there is DLC. I believe it's Oblivion. There is DLC on the Shivering Isles. And we're going to talk a little bit about how you play through that part because it's very interesting. And no, I have never played through Shivering Isles, but after doing this lore lesson, I now want to. So I pulled out my Elder Scrolls anthology. (laughs) I'm like, ooh, I might be playing through this. (laughs) That's funny. Okay, so... Once Shiagorath transformed Jigalag's domain into the Shivering Isles, this is a realm depicting his madness. Once, this is very important, once during every era, Shiagorath becomes Jigalag once more and is cursed to destroy, reclaim, and rebuild his realm in the event known as the Grey March. So the Grey March, which happens once every, uh, once every, what did I say, era, happens once every era. The Grey March is marked by the appearance of large crystalline obelisks that emerge from the ground, and this is all in the Shivering Isles, 
and they produce and power Jigalag's minions, the knights of priests, the knights and priests of order. So the order is coming to wipe out the madness so that Shiagorath once again has to build his realm. You guys follow me? I'm trying to make this not as confusing as freaking Dragon Breaks. Did I already lose you? I already lost you. I'm no, I'm like, good. I, I I'm good. I just realized I my mic was muted. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. It's good. <laughs> We're good. Okay. Sorry. Rookie mistake. First fun fact. As part of the Grey March, Sheagorath summons a mortal champion to the Shivering Isles to fight back against the forces of order. This is where the DLC for Elder Scrolls Oblivion comes in. It's called the Shivering Isles, and the player plays as Sheagorath's champion to assist him in saving his realm from the devastating Grey March led by the dreaded forces of order. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Perfect, because I'm moving on anyway. Okay, great. Okay. So, after Sheagorath is transformed back into Jigalag, he and his minions destroy the Shivering Isles. This prompts his transformation back into Sheagorath, where he's left to rebuild his realm once again. So all of this, Jigalag is turned into Sheagorath because he's pissed off the other Daedric princes because he's getting too powerful, and they constantly turn him into this recycling form of madness and order over and over again forever. So there's no reason to understand or to not understand why Shia Gorath is batshit crazy. <laughs> it, it, it totally makes sense. Once yeah. I read through this, I was like, now that makes sense. So let's go through this. As we know it, as he lives and breathes, as he lives and breathes, who is Shia Gorath? He is the Daedric Prince of Madness. He is also known as the fourth corner of the House of Troubles. Don't worry, we will talk about that one. He's the Lord of the Never There. He's the Mad Lord, the Mad Star, and the Mad One. And my favorite, the Mad God. Mm-hmm. Shea Gorath is the Sovereign of the Shivering Isles. That is his domain. That's his realm. Shea Gorath typically shows up on Nurn in, on Nurn in the force of a harmless, very eccentric old man. Very well-dressed, seemingly harmless, and carrying a cane. But he will screw your world up. (laughs) And he loves doing so. He has many, many followers, and many, even in ancient times, worship him with his followers, followers most prevalent in Morrowind. And this was very interesting. And elsewhere. So I didn't do this lore. I did this lore lesson as... It was presented to us as, hey, why don't you guys do Shiagorath? I was like, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. Um, so now we're doing Shiagorath. But I had no idea that most of his followers are more most prevalent in elsewhere. I like it. So I hope we get to encounter him again in elsewhere. I feel like you will. And in the worst case scenario, it's probably some like some cave or you know, just some like off the beaten path place where you just see a bunch of worshippers. There's definitely going to be a nod. There has to be a nod somewhere in there. Yeah. Well, and especially because, um, and we're going to talk about it a little bit, uh, his shrines. His, shri- his shrines, most of them were taken down, the shrines of worship. We'll talk about why. But many of them survived and are still in use. So hopefully we get to see some of those in um, elsewhere. 
So Shia Garath was said to have originated as one of four Daedric princes first mentioned in history. So he's a very old Daedric prince. He has been described as the Sithis shaped whole of the world. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was significant. I had to read that two or three times and it didn't look like there was a typo. He is the Sithis shaped whole of the world. Fantastic. So uh, he's, he was brought about when the divine spark of Lorcan was removed. Now this is hearsay. Um, this is, has not been confirmed, but then again, how has any of this stuff been confirmed? True. It's not. Yeah. So you may recall that Lorcan is the missing god or the creator trickster deity present in Tamrielic mythic tradition. And we've and we've talked a ton about Lorcan and his heart. And I was flung across the sea and a drop fell and it landed on a thing and all that stuff. So hmm. I love it. There is some wacky ass lore in this game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's insane. All right. Fun fact. Tamrielic superstition warns travelers to avoid thunderstorms as they belong to Shiagorath. It is also said that mortals are driven mad by merely speaking with the mad god as he offers advice and information that is beyond the human mortal's capacity to know or process. To be affected by Shiagorath's influence is known as being Shiagorath kissed, which basically means... If you're batshit crazy in Tamriel, you're known as being Shiagorath kissed. Whether or not you were, that's just what you're known as. Okay, the Shivering Isles and its capital, known as New Sheoth, were both founded by Shiagorath. Hmm. Here's another fun fact. The book, The Sixteen Accords of Madness, tells stories of Shiagorath's encounters and victories over other Daedric princes. He loves to trick them. He loves to trick everybody. One such story recounts Uncle Sheo's victory over her scene in a duel of champion beasts, where her scene, her scene's beast, his beast champion itself, ran itself to death, chasing Shiagora's champion. I vaguely remember this. I don't know if it was a quest line or I read it, but I remember this from something. Another tale tells of Sheagorath overtaking the soul of an orc who had murdered one of his followers. Malakath himself was tricked into killing the orc, which turned out to be Malakath's own son. Oh. Yeah, that's a problem. Oh, mistakes no wonder were people, made. Yeah, no wonder people hate Sheo. Mm-hmm. The common theme with Sheagorath is that he tricks his opponents into defeating themselves. All right, let's talk some history of Shiagorath. Once revered by the Chimer and Morrowind in ancient ancestral worship, the tribunal, which you remember, mm-hmm. that took power in Morrowind, uh, the trio of Sothisil, Amalexia, and Vivek, uh, Shiagorath did not like the tribunal at all because they were threatening his power in the region. So he rebelled against the tribunal the foursome of Shiagorath, Merun's Dagon, Malakath, and Molagbal, a bunch of real freaking winners. All four of them became known as the Four Corners of the House of Troubles, which is where that nickname came from for him. So because of Uncle Sheo's rebellion in the tribunal, 
worship of the mad god became punishable by death in Morrowind as per Vivek. So because Whoa. of this, most shrines to Shea Gorath were abandoned. Nobody wanted to be killed because of who they were worshiping. Right. Though many still remain today, and a lot of them were resurrected after, after something in history happens, and we'll talk about it. Shea Gorath, seemingly angered by the tribunal's stance on his worship, again rebelled against them. It is written, I love this part, it is written that Shea Gorath tricked the moon Bardow into hurling itself at the city of Vivek by convincing the moon that Vivek City was built in mockery of the heavens. <laughs> so as much as as much as I kind of bag on Vivek a little bit because he's you know he's like super flamboyant and yeah. he's a little over the top. Yeah. Vivek subsequently froze Bardow during its descent with one mere gesture. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's, That's pretty uh, badass. He's just like, no meteor or yeah, no earth or moon. You're not falling into my city, but this is my city. Damn. Later on, but a <laughs> little bit of a problem <laughs> as we progress. Vivek, in an attempt to protect his own followers from madness, made an agreement with Sheagorath. For this reason. The Dunmer must occasionally renew the agreement by performing a pilgrimage to the Four Corners. Many Dunmer believe that Sheagorath is merely testing them for psychological weakness, which is <laughs> probably true. Oh, I love this. So as you know, later, like much later on down the line, Bardow hits the city of Vivek and destroys everything. And Vivek's like, damn. Picked the wrong day to quit sniffing glue. <laughs> so anyway, that uh, happens. It sucks, but poor guy. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Shia Gorath's artifacts. He's got some pretty cool ones, and you definitely will see some of these in Elder Scrolls Online. If you've played through the, um, the Mages Guild, you will see some of this stuff. It's a really neat quest line. If you haven't done it, do it. Okay. The Wabajack. Everybody's heard of the Wabajack. Daedric artifact created by Shea Gorath. It appears to be a simple Daedric staff engraved with angry, gaping faces at the top. The artifact is known to be unpredictable and wide-ranging in its powers, including having the ability to damage, to heal, to instantly kill, or to turn an enemy to stone. The most renowned power of the Wabajack is its ability to transform a target into a completely random creature. Even a massively fearsome opponent could be transformed into the meek, docile little tiny bunny rabbit with the Wabajack, and vice versa. It can take a tiny little creature and turn into a massively fearsome opponent. So, Wasn't this artifact in one of the RPGs, either Oblivion? I think it was in Oblivion. I believe it was. That I was, it was some fun stuff. Yeah, maybe chat can help us with the exa yeah. exactly the game, but yeah, pretty awesome. So, okay. The next one. I like this one a lot. And you definitely do see this one also in Elder Scrolls Online. The Fork of Horripilation. <laughs> it's a cursed artifact. was also created by Shira Gorath, and he affectionately refers to it as Forky. Quote, unquote. It appears to be a mundane iron fork. However, it harbors a powerful imbuement 
which excites and energizes the magicka around it. Shiagorath likes to force mortals to use it as a weapon. And, yes, this is also in the facts, the fork smells lightly of roast beef. Oh, that's not a bad thing. I mean, I like roast no, beef. I can say, don't disparage it. Roast beef is amazing. No, it's, it's, it's good stuff. Okay. Uh, okay, the next one. Gamble putty. I don't know much about this one. This is a glove that can render its render. What? This is a glove that can render its werewolf. <laughs> Elmer Fudd's lore lesson. Gamble putty is a glove that can render its wearer both stronger and weaker. Okay, anyway, moving on. All right. The Staff of Shiagorath. This one's pretty cool. Staff of Shiagorath is a powerful Daedric artifact and also the main symbol of the Mad God. It contains the power of the Shivering Isles and is needed to assume the title of Mad God and sit atop the throne of Madness. Pretty much nobody else can do that except for Shale. Okay, yeah. The, st- <clears throat> the staff appears as a simple walking stick with an eyeball affixed to the top. During the Grey March, however, remember the Grey March is when Shagorath transforms back into Jigalag, the staff's power wanes and it becomes as useless as a twig, marking the beginning of Shagorath's transformation into Jigalag once every era. Okay, the Folium Discognitum. This is a Daedric artifact created by Sheogorath as well and is a tome of knowledge filled with insights compiled from the ramblings of madmen. I love this part. The pages have nearly incomprehensible writing that actually moves to avoid your gaze when you're trying to read them. <laughs> Look. Oh. That, to me, sounds like medical books I read in paramedic school. Because mm. they did the same crap. <laughs> what? <laughs> Apparently, the power obtained from reading these insights is the equivalent of absorbing at least six sky shards. Holy crap. I want to know where it is, because I want to give it a shot. Good luck. I can yeah. feel the stress already from you. I know. But they say that if you fail in reading it, it turns you mad. Super weird. It's shaped. Well, you're already mad, so I don't know the, I don't understand the difference. <gasps> Dude, I thought we were friends. Huzzah! Fun fact. Archmage Shalador. Mage's Guild. Always hungry for more knowledge. He traded his island. Yes, he had his own island. It was called Ivea. He traded it for the Folium Discognitum in the first era. Now, he regretted making this dark deal with Shia Gorath, and he tried valiantly to win back his island. He actually lost his wife in the process because he, he was so obsessed with it. The last of the Mages Guild aided Shalador in his conquest, but was slowly driven mad by Shia Gorath. When the time came to reclaim the island, the Mad God gave an adept of the guild, that's you, <laughs> the choice to either restore the last sanity or allow him to remain in the Shivering Isles forever. Yeah. Okay. There is no one character in Elder Scrolls Online, or maybe even in in the entire Elder Scrolls universe, that has more insanely corrupt charm than Shigorath. Honestly. He is freaking hilarious, and he loves cheese. (laughs) So in the Mage's Guild quest line, you you get to run through a lot of stuff with Sheo. 
and be on the Shivering Isles. It is completely worth it if you haven't done it. It's a really, really cool quest line. Um, but this brings something up. And I, like I was saying, I don't know if you follow us on Twitter or not, but last night when I was going through, or a couple nights ago when I was going through putting this lore lesson together, I needed a picture of Sheo for our website. Found some pictures of Sheo, and then it dawned on me. Look at the similarities between Shea Gorath, the Daedric Prince, and Lore Master Lawrence Schick, who recently left Elder Scrolls Online. I believe, my friends, they are one and the same. And I believe, my friends, that is the end of an era. And Lore Master Schick, Shea Gorath, has returned to the Shivering Isles as Jigalag. That is my own personal thought about why he has departed us. Very trick, very tricky. The trickster, the mad god, the whole time was our lore master. I just, I just want to say, I, I just think he looks like him. That's about where my theory starts and stops. Yeah, I appreciate your support. Okay. <laughs> My good friends, let's talk about the Wrathstone tonight. This is a very exciting lore lesson because I'm trying to bring some wholeness to these quests in these dungeons when you go. Um, the season of the dragon, my friend, has have my friends has begun. The Elder Scrolls Online releases its newest downloadable content, the Wrathstone. Two new dungeons and one new battleground are available for you to explore and conquer. My friends on console, not too much far off. Just a little bit longer. But it's coming. So the first content release of 2019 marks the beginning of a single epic storyline spanning the length of an entire year, which is very exciting. Uh, Of course, the lion's share of the story is going to take place in June with the release of Elder Scrolls Online's next chapter by the name of Elsewhere. I cannot believe how excited I am about it. And I just just elbowed my poor Khajiit in the face. Sorry, little boy. Oh, my God. (laughs) She's still conscious. We're good. She okay? All right. So in Elsewhere, of which I will be taking a week off of work to explore the mighty land of the Khajiit... And I'm super excited. Now, Jibs and I would not be worthy of lore seekers if we did not take the time to uncover the story behind each part of this new content. So we will re- we will begin with the Wrathstone. In the two new dungeons, affectionately referred to as Frost Vault and the Depths of Malatar, you and your party, before venturing forth, will venture into two hidden Tamrielic ruins to collect both halves of the mysterious Wrathstone tablet. So, before we just rush through this dungeon, what is the Wrathstone tablet? Jibs, do you have yours with you? Close? I do. Uh, I can get it out. It's it's all wrapped up. Get it out and show the people while I talk. Okay. The Wrathstone tablet. When the Wrathstone tablet is whole, it is a map of the Halls of Colossus. We've talked about this before. The Halls of Colossus, as you remember, is located in Elsewhere. 
and is uh, it will be an explorable location in the upcoming chapter of Elsewhere. The Halls of Colossus is an ancient structure with much speculation as to actually who built it. Some say it was built to honor a race of giants that hasn't been seen in Tamriel for ages. Others, such as the prophet of Rajin, the Kajidi thief king, a prophet of Kajin, claim that the halls were built by the blades. You'll remember the blades from many of the games, including Skyrim. On orders of Tiber Septum as a location to rebuild the Numidium. Now, once the tablet is in the hands of Thoraya, your quest giver, she notes that the writing on the tablet seems to be a lost dialect of Ta'agra, which is Khajiit. We talked about the Ta'agra when we had our, lore, our latest lore lesson on Elsewhere in the Khajiit, which may certainly place the origins of the Rastone tablet back into Elsewhere. So this is speculation at this point. We do not know where it came from, but we are speculating that it comes from elsewhere, just based on the dialect that's found on the Rastone tablet. Correct. So let's talk a little bit about your guide through these next two dungeons. She is a Redguard scholar, a researcher, and a treasure hunter, and she goes by the name of Thoraya. You may remember her, Jibs, this might blow your mind. You may remember Thoraya from the Volenfell dungeon where she was racing to beat her ex-husband and fellow treasure hunter by the name of Quintus Ferris in discovering the Guardian's Eye, an ancient Dwemer artifact of immense power. You remember Volenfell, right? We've run oh, it a I million do. times. I do. So the female antagonist, protagonist, whatever, it's the Raya, the Redguard Scholar, who has now graced our presence again mm-hmm. in Wrathstone. So, there she's looking to beat her husband to finding the guardian's eye in Volenfell, an ancient Dwemer artifact of immense power. So, so Thoraya and Quintus have a very short but colorful relationship, and it ended very, very badly. And in the lore, the 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 pre or the marital bliss that they had ended after just a week. The reason being is because they were both developing competing studies on the Dwemer and their ancient artifacts. Quintus got pissed off that Thoraya found Volenfell before he did, and he was so angry that he set up an ambush of mercenaries to kill her and her research party. Holy crap, man. Yeah, what a D. Taking it to 11 real quick. What a D. So you and your party venture through Volenfell and assist Thoraya with recovering the coveted relic. So that's definitely not the last time you see Thoraya. And whether or not you get the relic, I'm just going to let you figure it out. Because at the end of that dungeon is something that something takes place and you'll remember. Okay. If you've been through Volenfell. So I'm not going to spoil it. Okay. Okay. So Thoraya herself, you will encounter her again in Frostvault. Where she's been hired by Abner Tharn to obtain the two halves of the Wrathstone Tablet. So Abner Tharn knew that she was a very skilled archaeologist and a skilled scholar and treasure hunter. She's basically a female version of Indiana Jones. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. And he has hired her to find the two halves of the Wrathstone tablet. The first half being discovered in Frostvault. D. 
Deep in the East March Mountains, in a place called Giant's Run, lies a hidden dwarven vault. If you're Jibs, you say Dweamer. If you're Cash, you say Dwemer. Frost Vault is home to one half of the Wrathstone Tablet, which has been sealed within the vault. So when you first enter Frost Vault, Thoriah is very surprised to see that anyone has found the ruin itself. But accompanied by her expedition, she makes you an offer to assist her in locating the mysterious artifact known as the Wrathstone. Mm-hmm. If you take the quest, take the quest. Don't turn it down. Okay. <laughs> Thoriah will actually trail your party. Shouldn't do a whole lot of fighting, if any, at all, because she's an NPC and they don't fight. Um, she trails your party not far behind you, and she gives you tips and tricks and stuff as you go along about battling the constructs and the goblins in the vault. Now, as we all know, Dwemer ruins were absolute magnets for goblins because they're mm-hmm. they have a ton of technology in them tons of loot and we know goblins like to grab loot and hoard it but goblins also don't like to build many things on their own so if they can find some place that's already been inhabited previously they will inhabit that place they are tamriel's squatters so there's <laughs> yeah. that yeah they really are aren't they now that they, you're are. they are um okay so I'm not going to give any spoilers regarding the dungeon itself. It's way too early in the game for us to do that, and that wouldn't be fair to everybody. So just know this. Your ultimate goal is to recover one half of the Wrathstone tablet and deliver it to Thoraya. If you are successful, however, this is only half the job. Right? Right. So now, the second half of the Wrathstone tablet has been located, or there's rumor that it's located in the depths of Malatar. So Thoraya will also appear in the depths of Malatar dungeon. This time, though, it's very funny. She carries the imprisoned spirit of her husband Quintus within a Numeria chamber, which I would assume is like one of those things that the Ghostbusters suck the ghosts into. That's why he was able to talk. Right. He's okay. a spirit. So yeah. in Elder Scrolls Online, there's no difference or there's no question that the spirit world exists. I mean, how many ghosts have you talked to in your Tamrielic travels and career? A lot. A metric crap ton. A lot. It's downright creepy. So Quintus, who, spoiler alert, in Volenfell, he dies. Okay, so there's that. So anyway, he's in a Numeria chamber and and Thoraya's carrying him around. So the Depths of Malatar is the second dungeon in the DLC of ESO's latest content release. Mm-hmm. Located in the Gold Coast, the Depths of Malatar is found underneath an ancient alien ruin by the name of Garlos Malatar. I thought that was a person. It is not. Garlos Malatar is an actual ruin. This is connected to the sunken ruins of Fort Mistwatch. So the ruin is occupied by followers of Meridia who've devoted their lives to concealing the other half of the Wrathstone tablet within their walls. Let's talk a little bit about what Garlos Malatar actually is. What is that location? So Garlos Malatar is an Aliadun term meaning 
The Cavern of the High Wood. That has nothing to do with men waking up in the morning. It was the westernmost outpost of the Aelid Empire in the First Era, located on a small island along the Gold Coast of western Cyrodiil and northwest of Anvil. The reason the settlement was placed there was to post a watch over the Abation Sea for the Aelids in case of invaders coming in from the sea. The settlement became known as Daedrophile, which is my word of the day because it's freaking awesome. Daedrophile. <laughs> and was associated with the worship of Meridia. Now, Meridia, as you know, is one of the Daedra. She is known to be one of the good Daedra. And she, although Daedra is sexless, which totally sucks for them. She man- Hi, Khajiit. She manifests as a female. So Meridia is known to be female. In the timeline of ESO, the ruins and underground complex of Garlas Malatar have been sealed off many, many years ago, and the exterior is patrolled by minotaurs. So what Mm -hmm. am I saying? When you travel there to the Gold Coast and you're going to the dungeon, there's going to be a bunch of minotaurs outside. So there's that. You know, that's kind of... I really like that. This is just a quick side note because I loved going through the Gold Coast, you know, especially when you're working through the uh, Dark Brotherhood. And uh, yeah, I ran into yeah, I ran into those Minotaurs all the time, so it's it's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah, and Minotaurs in this game are freaking epic. Oh my gosh! Yeah, they don't mess with those dudes. Yeah, they're amazing. So okay. Let's get back on track. All right. So in a twist of fate. Thoraya's deceased husband, Quintus Ferris, helps his ex-wife and treasure hunter by leading her to the ruins of the old imperial fort at Mistwatch. So this fort that sits atop the ruins at Garlas Malatar was built many, many years ago. And it was, the reason that this fort is there is because it was a base of operations for the Imperials to search and loot the Aelid ruins found in the Gold Coast. So that's why there are tunnels from Fort Mistwatch that lead directly in to Garlas Malatar and into the caverns and stuff. So that's basically when you go into the depths of Malatar, that's where you're headed. Okay. Yes, this is lore. Lore sometimes gets super convoluted and that's where we're at. Follow along, Jibs. I'm holding I'm holding hands. All right, good boy. <laughs> Left within the depths of Malatar are the very spirits and unnatural guardians of the Imperials themselves who've long perished. I mean, these are like first era Imperials. They were dead set on protecting the very artifact that caused the demise of both the Imperials themselves and Garlas Malatar itself. And that is the Wrathstone. The second half anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's up to you and your party. You gotta gather them, and then you can venture forth. Baldur's Gate reference. Into the depths of Malatar Hello. and attempt Where to recover the second half of the mysterious Wrathstone so that Thoraya can complete her contract with Abner Tharn. I say to you, my friends and travelers, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a nerd. Oh, good movie. So anyway, that sets the foundation. For both Frost Vault and the Depths of Malatar. Mm-hmm. 
And when I when I read through those, I flipped out. It's a really good lore. Really, There's really good lore. A lot of people in chat that are calling me a nerd. They're also calling you a lot of other things. Don't worry about that. Just keep going. What do I do? What do I even do about that? Okay. So not only those two dungeons, but we are also getting an additional battleground. Now this one gets convoluted, but I want to explain what what this place is. Eld Angvar is the name of it. Mm-hmm. You're going to get to battle in the void, Jibs, and it's going to be fun. Woo! You're going to die in the void. Okay. But I'm just saying. All right. So also part of the latest content from Elder Scrolls Online is the brand new battle ga- battleground by the name of Eld Angvar, where you and your team will battle fellow players in an alien world between worlds. Deep within the void, you will use various portals to hunt and eliminate your fellow players. But there's a story behind this location. So pay attention. If you haven't done Merkmire... Shame on you. Okay. Eldangvar, meaning the old ironwood, is an ancient alien. Ancient alien dune. That's like super ancient. Ancient alien dune, also known as the Golden Path. So Eldangvar is an ancient alien dune language, meaning the Golden Path. It is comprised of a void realm of nexus gates connected by floating alien architecture. Abandoned, this realm between worlds has an entrance that you may have encountered on your travels in Merkmire. Eldangvar was created as a result of Mindhal's search for the remnant of Argon. What in the hell? Don't worry, I'm going to explain. <laughs> That's what I said when I read it. I was like, oh my god. Like, click on this one wormhole, this one wormhole, this one wormhole. Mm, like an like- hour for me to figure out what the hell happened here. Like and I summarized break. it for you. You're welcome in advance. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> so there's that. Years ago, prior to the Alessian Slave Rebellion, okay, this is where Alessa came and freed all the slaves. A clan of aliens led by the powerful mage by the name of Mindhal came to Merkmire in conquest. He brought an army with him in search of souls to enslave oh. and to unlock the power of the Hist. And guess who his targets were? The Argonians. So he came and began slaughtering the Argonians in a certain area. In this certain area, he, he launched this campaign against the ancient Argonian Root Whisper tribe. So Mindhal when he was there doing this, witnessed the power of a relic called the Remnant of Argon. Now, what the Remnant of Argon was, was the Argonians' attempt to save themselves. So, it was an artifact created by the Argonians as a last-ditch effort to save the Argonians and the Hist from all the aliens that were invading and killing them all for their souls. So in its creation, the Root Whisper Hist, which is the tree itself that that guided and commanded the Root Whisper tribe, the Hist itself sacrificed itself to create an amber artifact that was powerful enough to contain the souls of the entire tribe 
until the Iliad threat would pass. So Mindal, finding out about what this artifact was, became so obsessed with the remnant of Argon that he and another mage by the name of Hoturn, not Hodor, Hoturn, Hodor, 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 created a network of portals that connected to a void realm. In attempt to access the area where they thought the Hist had hidden this artifact, this remnant of Argon. So this void realm that Mindal and Hoturn created is called Eld Engvar. And this is the area that you will battle it out with other players in Elder Scrolls' latest DLC. And that, my friends, is a lore lesson you're going to have to listen to at least five times to understand all of it. <laughs> that is almost worse than a freaking dragon break. And I'm sorry... <laughs> But it is a wormhole. So this one was a uh, lore lesson voucher as a prize that we gave away to a member. And they got to pick the lore lesson. And I was really, I was a little freaked out about this one. Like, I don't know if there's enough lore here. But it turns out there was. Mm -hmm. So this one is kind of, um, this is from uh, at BS14. Um, good pick. Uh, we're going to do Lore Lesson 47 on the Undaunted. And um, this is something that we all run into in-game. It's something that we all know what it is. And if you have a character that's, you know, 45 or above, you kind of know what the Undaunted is. Because you do Undaunted Pledges. So this is going to be a Lore Lesson slash ESO 101. Because I'm going to talk a little bit also about how you can interact with the Undaunted in-game. Okay. But I'm going to start with the little ditty. Mm -hmm. To the new meat. May they never wet their pants except from drink. To the new meat, whose best attack is showing their face. <laughs> to the new meat. Oh my gosh. So too brave to run, too dumb to dodge. To the new meat. <laughs> Don't die. <laughs> Who knows no fear of beast or blade? Undaunted. Undaunted. Wow. Who knows no fear of Daedric Plains? We are, you guessed it, Jibs, undaunted. Oh, okay. Who knows no fear of death of age? Oh, you're doing Undaunted, undaunted. Oh, we Stop. are unfreaking daunted. Yep. It gets better. So, are you going you, you to do more? Oh, there's more. Okay. So if you're interested in exploring the darkest depths of Tamriel... Join the Undaunted. The Undaunted is a faction in ESO of dungeon-delving adventurers who challenge you to explore and complete dungeons and trials. Founded by the legendary Turok Redclaws, a Khajiiti warrior, the Undaunted was born out of what one could only describe as necessity or perhaps insanity. Charging into the darkest, most dangerous places in Tamriel to face insurmountable odds for none other than the glory of it all. Yes, that is undaunted. All right. As described by Turek Redclaws himself, here's a little ditty called Undaunted, A Life of Glory by Turek Redclaws. 
there are those who choose to fight for honor and justice. Some who bloody their swords for coin. And then there are others. Others who crave danger, like this one. When brothers and sisters still mewed and cowered under their mother's skirts, Turek conquered the tallest shelf in the kitchen, only to pounce on her head when came to bake the sugar biscuits. Since those early days of tiny, fiery courage, my exploits have become much more ambitious. As a founding member of the Undaunted, this one's noteworthy accomplishments should be recorded. And how better to scribe them than with his own claws? This one was never destined for the sugar fields, despite Mama's pleas. The thrill of risk and peril called, and brothers and sisters found joy in devising ever greater dares. A practice that got your hero Red Claws in trouble more than a few times. The life of digging and planting and chopping could not match the rush of poking a sleeping cinch dagger with a stick and running, or any of the other wild challenges that gave such a surge of excitement. In the end, it was too much for my dearest mother to handle. It was not good for her poor heart. The constant worry over broken bones and similar minor consequences of budding heroism. She signed poor Turek away to apprenticeship in the Fighters Guild as soon as they would allow. Happily, this turned out to be a reasonable arrangement for some time. With them... This one trained with many weapons and learned the basics of an adventuring life. Alas, it was not long before boredom began yanking at my tail. The Fighters Guild had so many tedious rules and regulations and took so much caution with jobs that they sucked the fun right out of any contract. No, no, Turok, you cannot take on the Cave of Frostrolls by yourself Armed with only a bunter knife, it is unwise. Turek, you mustn't run into the dungeon. There could be traps. Make sure you bring enough healing potions, Turek. Bah! Milksop blubbering. Armed with training and an insatiable hunger for greater danger, this one struck out on his own path wandering Tamriel from Dune to Winhelm and chasing beasts from farmers' legends and local rumor. No cave or ruin was too frightful, from nests of necromancers, nests of necromancers to the lairs of mighty beasts. These very claws ended Grush Grush, the deadliest ogre known in the provinces, and dealt a final blow to Spinesnap, a giant snake that plagued the fields of Glenumbra and devoured goat and horse alike. The list goes on and on. Stop laughing at me, Jibs. Perhaps this one shall write another volume for Jussie's Tales. It was through these journeys that this one met a few others with the taste for taking on the greatest challenges without flinching or hesitation. Of these like-minded comrades, only the mighty Modra and Kelstig the Axe could truly keep up. They knew of many dangerous locales, and we dared each other to challenges most deem utterly insane. Take the Naked Dungeon Run, for instance. The Lore Seekers knows about that one. Tales of our deeds began to spread, and others sought us out. The Undaunted were born. 
Way to go, Borat. You did good. Wow. <laughs> do you know how much balls it takes to get up in front of the people and do that? Well, they thought you sounded like Count Dracula from Sesame Street. You're a total so D. I, I feel- <laughs> You're a D. Thanks, Lore Seeker Dade. He sees the Count from Sesame Street. Oh. I saw Khajiit. So there's oh, that. Oh my gosh, good job. Okay. Getting on. started with the Undaunted. All right, friends, <laughs> this is how you do it. Talk to the Undaunted members within the tavern of each zone's main city. You can discover the locations of many base game dungeons. Once you discover these locations, you can actually travel to them via way shrines. Additional uh, downloadable content dungeons will be accessible once you unlock the related DLC. So joining the Undaunted and completing the dungeon achievements, pledges, and delve dailies will unlock new skills via the Undaunted skill line, which focuses on group utility. And we'll talk about those um, as we come up. But let's talk a little bit about what delve dailies are, Mm -hmm. if you're not sure. The delve dailies are repeatable quests offered by Bolgruel in the Undaunted Enclave in each Alliance capital city. These quests will send you to complete a specific delve in the world and can be shared with a group. You can complete 15 of these quests per day. Good luck getting all those done. Per character. That's a freaking crap ton. That's a lot. Each quest rewards 10 undaunted reputation and a small reward box, which may contain the Draugr motif, which makes plenty of sense. You're going into delves. Draugrs are in delves. Makes plenty of sense. Mm-hmm. Also makes me want to go do all the freaking delve dailies because I love delves. Anyway, they're so quick. Okay. Undaunted pledges. What are they? You've heard of them. These are repeatable quests that become available to your character at level 45 from the Undaunted Enclave in your Alliance capital. The quests require your party to complete a certain dungeon. So basically, these are daily dungeons that you're doing. You can complete three pledges per day, and the dungeons rotate in a fixed order, uh, resetting daily. So there's three per day, and the the next day, they reset to three different ones. Certain dungeons are associated with spe- with a specific NPC who you can exchange undaunted keys for, which you earn by completing the pledge. You can exchange these undaunted keys for a monster helm set shoulder piece. Okay, these are two piece sets that you're trying to put together. So the first fun fact of this lore lesson What is a monster helm set in Elder Scrolls Online? A monster helm set is a set that can be acquired by running veteran dungeons and completing daily undaunted pledges. Each helm, helm, this is the helmet, not the shoulders. Remember the shoulders you get from the keys that you earn by completing undaunted pledge dungeons. Mm -hmm. But the helmets... Each helm only drops from the corresponding boss of the veteran version in each dungeon and has a maximum champion level of 160. Remember, champion level 160 is the highest gear level in the game. Even though you see people who are, you know, champion level 1,000. They're still wearing 160 champion point level gear. 
because that's the highest of the game. So the shoulders for this head and shoulder set can be awarded in daily undaunted pledge chests, which can be acquired by doing daily undaunted pledges. These scale to your champion level to a max of 160. So if you're doing them at, at champion level 80, that's the level you're going to get. So it's best to rack up as many keys as you can and don't open any of these undaunted chests until you reach CP 160. There are lists available online to see where each piece drops. So if you're looking for a specific piece, for example, if you're looking for Zons, you complete the dungeon, which I believe is Fanglayer or Skullcaller, one of those two, and you complete that dungeon on Vet. You get the headpiece you need. Then you use your Undaunted Keys that you get from the dungeon and you go to one of three different NPCs at your Undaunted Enclave. And in one of those three chests that you open up, you got to find the right corresponding one, you have a chance to get Zahn's shoulder. So that's what it's all about. I've seen people burn through 30 or 40 keys looking for the shoulder piece they need, and they don't get it, and then they rage quit. So there's that. I, I typically get mine on the first try. I'm just saying. And just, uh... you can suck it. <laughs> so, um, so you can get monster helms from buying them with gold or alliance points. And you can, um, this is like a kind of a, a, a very rare thing too, that your shoulder or your helm shows up at the golden vendor in Cyrodiil. It's a weekly change. It changes on the weekly to um, a different helm that you can go there. So remember to check the golden vendor in Cyrodiil too, because they will have them there. Okay, daily dungeons. The Undaunted Faction also offers rewards for completing a random daily dungeon through the Dungeon Finder feature. So you've got to go through the Dungeon Finder in order to get your daily dungeon completed. The rewards for the daily dungeon grant you premium Undaunted Exploration Supplies and a large amount of experience, scaled to your character's level, of course, and will be sent to you upon completion of the dungeon. The event has a 20-hour cooldown period per character. So... You do your daily dun- your your daily random dungeon. You get your points and your chest for it, and you can wait. You got to wait another twenty hours on that particular character to do it. If you want to switch to a new character and do it on that one, then you get the same benefit. Um, you can take the quest again after completing the initial quest each day, but you will only be granted undaunted exploration supplies, which is a lower level of both prize items and experience points. So if you go to the Daily Dungeon tab and it shows, um, the text in there shows that it's purple, mm-hmm. that means you have not done your Daily Dungeon yet. When you've done your Daily Dungeon, the next time you do a random Daily Dungeon, it will show up as blue. And it will say, um, Undaunted Exploration Supplies will, will be um, highlighted in blue as opposed to purple. Okay. What are the Undaunted Faction locations? In each of the major zones, you will find the Undaunted. The locations are as follows. For, his, for Aldmeri Dominion, Vocal Guard, Elden Root, Marbrook, Valen Harbor, and Rockwa. 
For the Daggerfall Covenant. You're going to find it in the city of Daggerfall. In the Rosy Lion. We've been there a few times. In Wayrest. In Shornhelm. In Sentinel. And in Evermore. Ebonheart Pact. I don't think I'm Viking. Or not Vikings. Oh my gosh, did it again. Nords. You're going to find him in Davin's Watch. Mornhold. Mm-hmm. Stormhold, Windhelm, and Riften. Hmm. Now, there's one more place you can find it. That's in the Hollow City. And you're going to find it at the Shining Star. It's in the, in the back room at the Shining Star. You'll find Undaunted Folks. Fun fact! One member at each location will give you the option to buy them a drink. Doing so at each of these locations will earn you the title, This One's On Me which is worth 30 undaunted reputation. So you're definitely going to want to do that if you're trying to level your undaunted, which I don't know many people that use undaunted skills, but some builds out there do call for undaunted skills. I never knew you could do that. Bro, that's what lore lessons are for. Um. Okay, undaunted skill line. I'm going to kind of blow through this a little bit. Um, Actually, I lied. Because a lot of people use Necrotic Orb, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Anyway, the Undaunted skill line. As you level up your Undaunted, you're going to be granted access to new skills and abilities. The skills are as follows. There's Blood Altar, which applies minor lifesteal to enemies. Heals you and allies, providing healing synergy to group members. Trapping Webs applies a snare and poison damage to to you and your enemies and allows for a synergy from your allies. Inner Fire... Deals magic damage and taunts the enemy to attack. Good for tanks. Also provides a synergy to your allies that deals additional damage to nearby enemies. Bone shield. Oh, that sounds so necromancy. Oh, yeah. Provides a damage shield that reflects melee damage back to enemies. Also provides a synergy that allies can shield themselves as well. And then there's necrotic orb. This one is called for in some of the builds that I've seen. Deals magic damage to nearby enemies and provides a synergy to your ally that deals damage to enemies and restores magicka or stamina to the ally who activates it. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Passives. Undaunted Command. This restores a percentage of your max health, stamina, and magicka. Always needed. And then there's Undaunted Metal. Metal as an M-E-T-T-L, not M-E-D-A-L. Or the other one. Um, increases a, a percentage of max health, stamina, and magicka per type of equipped armor. So like if you had five pieces of light, it might increase your magicka. Um, okay, achievements. Six different achievements associated with the Undaunted faction specifically. Joining the Undaunted gets you the achievement Recruit of the Undaunted. You can earn Undaunted Skill Master by reaching rank 5 in the Undaunted Skill Line. This one's on me, which we talked about above. Buy drinks for your Undaunted Companions at each gathering. Risk and Challenge. Complete the first of Bulgrul's Undaunted Challenges. So basically, you got to go run a delve and you get that one. Gold and Bragging Rights. Complete 10 of Bulgrul's Undaunted Challenges. 10 delves. And then a Crown of Your Own Trousers which sounds incredibly porn to me. Complete 30 of Bulgruel's Untaunted Challenges. I was like, what, dude? A crown of your own trousers. 
Wow. Somebody's making funnies at Zoss. Yeah. Escalating right, quickly. Right freaking there. Okay. Um, at level 45, Undaunted Pledges become available for your character. So that means you can, you can run them with your friends at level 45. By visiting the Undaunted Enclave in any capital city, you will have a chat with a few NPCs, and then you sign the Tome of the Undaunted. The Tome reads, We, the Undersigned, declare our intention to take the Pledge of the Undaunted. Be we long-standing members of the Guild or newly bloodied blades, we will dare to do what others will not. We will delve beneath Nern. We will seek out knowledge and treasure where it lies unseen. We will stand against the darkness and we will return undaunted. You know, that's that right there, that book. It's like a rite of passage for me. Anytime I level a new tune, that's the one place when I sign that, that I always take a screenshot every single time, whatever character, it doesn't matter. I love that. That's one of my favorite things. Yep. And in four more levels, my magic awardee gets to do undaunted pledges. Yeah. That's happening tonight. I'm telling you right now, it's happening right after this show. Oh. So finish it the F up, Jibs. Oh, okay. Oh, you're, oh, you're done. All right. I'm all done. Okay. Hope well, you guys like that. It was more of an ESO 101 than it was a lore. <laughs> all right. So believe it or not, this is lore lesson 49. We are one shy of 50 <laughs> lore lessons, which I'm kind of proud of. I think that's I think that's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool feat. Now it's no 200 shows like our friends from Tales of Tamriel are going to be celebrating their next episode. So go take a listen. They're doing some special stuff for their 200th episode on Tales of Tamriel. I listened to their uh, 199th today, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's super close!" So lo, um, um, lo and behold, they are having a celebration over there at Tales of Tamriel. So go and support them when you can. We are going to talk about today. We had a while back. We had um, a little competition going on and some things that people could win. And we had several members of the Lore Seekers Guild and our community win. Uh, find out what kind of lore lesson you want to do. They give me a topic for a lore lesson. And I go ahead and write the lore lesson on it. So Hyperpixie, who is in chat with us, and she's a streamer herself. She suggested that we did the Schools of Magic, and that's exactly what I'm covering tonight. And I tried to go a little bit deeper than just what the different Schools of Magic are, but where it comes from and how it's used in the origins of magic in the Elder Scrolls. So without further ado, Magic or Magicka, which is what it's called in the ancient alien tongue, is the term that is used to describe the use of this raw power, this raw energy for a variety of different purposes and in a variety of different manners. Magicka is known to flow from the immortal plane of Aetherius. And you'll remember Aetherius is the origin of all magic and the arcane arts. So it flows from the plane of Aetherius to Mundus via the sun and the stars. So Magicka is basically made from the very spirit and energy of all living things and it can be accessed in, in several different ways. So in a way, Magicka is very much like the Force. Or, or Midichlorians. To give a little reference from a different IP. 
Hmm. So anyway, hmm. the origins of Magicka are very, very interesting. Legend holds that during the Dawn era, Magnus, who was a prominent Etada, or one of the original gods, he was a very large part in designing Mundus. Now, Mundus is the plane of existence that encompasses Nern and its moons. So that's that's our playground, basically, is mm-hmm. Mundus. Um, once he created Mundus, Magnus very quickly departed back to Aetherius, which was his realm, without haste. And in doing so, he tore a hole in Oblivion, which is the Daedric realm. So he blasted back to Aetherius as fast as he could. In doing so, he cut a hole in Oblivion. So the tear in this veil is what allows Magicka to flow from Aetherius into Nern. Now at the same time, when he ripped that large hole in Oblivion, other gods who were helping him design Mundus followed him back to Aetherius. And when they when they went back with haste, without haste, they tore much smaller holes in the veil, which are what we see on Mundus as the stars in the sky. So Magicka also flows from Aetherius through the stars in the sky down to Mundus. So that is how from Aetherius Magicka flows and is able to be accessed and harnessed on Nern. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. I was like, man, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. So the first fun fact for this lore lesson. These holes created in the veil between Oblivion and Mundus are the reason why the stars under which a person is born has such a profound influence on a person's fortune and fate. And this absolutely ties in to Kajidi lore. Um, these are also the reason why materials that fall from the heavens, like pieces of Aetherius, that fall from the heavens, have such magical properties. Hmm. The earliest known use of Magicka was recorded by the Aelids in the First Era. So just as we were talking about, these fallen fragments that fell from Aetherius were salvaged by the Aelids and utilized because they had such powerful arcane properties. Users of the ma- of magic during these early times were very, very solitary. Nobody quite knew what was going on, what this wizardry was that they were that they were working with. But it wasn't until the construction of the Arcane University in the second era, now this is the era that we live in in Elder Scrolls Online, the construction of the Arcane University in our era, the second era, it wasn't until that happened that magical research and learning in Tamriel became a standardized art form. So in the time right now that we are living and playing in Elder Scrolls Online, magic is still relatively new to the universe. The following are some of the examples of the earliest forms of Magicka. So we're talking Dawn, we're talking basically first era here. Um, Mm -hmm. But some of it kind of leaked, you know, kind of leaked over from the Dawn era. So the first one is a form of Magicka utilized by the sword singers, who is, as you know, we've covered them before. They're an ancient order of Yokudan warriors. And this is called Shahai Shen Sheru. 
Now, these warriors were so astonishing in battle in their movements and um, the skills that they were able to execute in their battle style. They were viewed by some to be not just warrior, but also mage. So they were kind of, you know, kind of like a, um, like a spell sword in a way. Right, right. Uh, the next type of early forms, early ancient-ish form of magicka was the thum. And there's probably nobody in this room that does not know what the thum is. The thum is known also as the storm voice. And this form of magic was utilized by the Nords, or if you're Jibs, the Vikings, to form shouts. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? You leave Ragnar out of this. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the thum was utilized uh, was a form of magic utilized by the Nord, the Nords to form shouts, the equivalent of spells of immense power that originated from the language of the dragons. Are we going mm. to see more of this in elsewhere? I don't, I don't think so. We'll talk about I don't think so either. But you never know. You never quite know. I'm seeing a lot of Fusrodan chat, and that makes me smile. <laughs> So the next one, of course, this is probably, undoubtedly, definitely is my favorite, the Beast Tongue. This was this was an early form of magic utilized by the Wood Elves. This greater power allowed them to command woodland creatures, which was available in all the games. But what was the other thing that the Wood Elves became very, very good at? Eating other races? That and... The Wild Hunt. Mm. So you will, um, you'll, you'll remember that um, the Wood Elves have the ability to shape shift. It's oh, kind of like yeah. a bee. Like when a bee's yeah. like re- when a bee's mm-hmm. ready to sting you, it's ready to give up its own life. Yeah, that's what happens with the Bosmer in very trying times, or in the very midst of a battle, or to turn the tide of a battle. The Wood Elves all have the innate ability to launch a wild hunt basically which turns them into incredible beasts which basically pillage everything and kill everything and eat everything in front of them and then they all kill each other in a giant sex orgy this just escalated (laughs) yes we covered this on uh, uh, one of our latest lore lessons and you know you just don't remember it until you bring it up (laughs) just it stings a little every time but Every yeah, time. <laughs> it is a thing, and the Elder Scrolls is not for kids. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> There's some gnarly crap that takes place in this game. <laughs> so anyway, um, another one, which you guys might find this one interesting, and we'll harken back a little bit to Somerset and some of those lore lessons that we did. One of the earliest forms of Magicka that was utilized was utilized by the Sea Elves, the Maurmer. And this one was called Snake Magic. This was a power that allowed them to tame sea serpents on their island for use as war beasts and steeds. So those are just four of the most earliest types of utilizations of Magicka in the Elder Scrolls universe. Next fun fact. It is not wholly known what truly contributes to a person's Magicka reserves in Tamriel. Many believe that there are several different influences within a person and their surroundings that affect their magicka reserves. However, several man and myrrh are naturally known to be gifted in the arcane arts. And I think that comes out 
in a lot of our racial passives based on um, the ancient lore of Elder mm-hmm. Scrolls races. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we get into the meat and potatoes of this lore lesson as we talk about the actual schools of magic themselves, and I've saved some really cool ones for the end. But we're going to start with um, a few of the several varying disciplines of um, how magic is practiced. And some have been widely accepted in Tamriel. Some have not been (laughs) widely accepted in Tamriel. But each school has a flavor of its own and a different way of casting spells. And then each pertains to a particular purpose. Mm -hmm. So some of these will, will ring true with all these words, words, words. Some of this actually rings true in a lot of the games that you've played. You're like, oh, yeah, I totally remember that. Yeah, and I was able to do that, and I was able to do that. Well, all the schools of magic have all been interwoven into the lore and the gameplay. So the first school, Conjuration. This, yeah, buddy. This school of magic calls upon otherworldly entities through telepathic means. These spells can assist the caster by summoning Daedric or Undead Guardians weapons and armor so a lot of these are going to raise some parallels with the spells that we're able to cast in elder scrolls online so you might not be a magic user but every single one of us has the ability to teleport right Mm -hmm. so some of this stuff i mean when we get down to some of the different um, schools of magic teleportation is part of some of them so yeah. even though you're a stamina character you still have a magic reserve it might not be a huge pool but your character can still practice any one of these it's really cool so the next one is illusion these spells affect light and the mind of its target think nightblade here oh, think yeah. some of the nightblade skills where you mm-hmm. can mimic your own character and then go yeah. someplace else Mm -hmm. Uh, illusion spells can command demoralize paralyze silence charm calm grant invisibility night vision and illumination go you're gonna say something oh sorry uh i I, this is probably one of my favorite schools of magic as illusion for whatever reason ever since back uh, i think it was oblivion where it was really dumb predominant you saw it often, particularly by the mages that you would fight um, between that and a mix of conjuration. This is this is probably one of the more less understood schools of magic. Right. And if you, like, in, this brings me back to Skyrim, where um, some of my playthroughs I played with a Nightblade-type character with a lot of very, very high stealth mm-hmm. coupled with illusion skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A sneaky mage. That's good stuff right with there. With stabby man. stabby and a really highly uh, trained bow. That's good stuff. It's unbeatable. Awesome. Awesome build. Okay, the next school of magic is alteration. This school of magic aims to change the physical and magical properties of the target. Alteration can harm a target by increasing the weight of an object something is carrying. Making it too heavy for them to carry and injure themselves. It can grant an elemental or physical shield. Sounds an awful lot like a lot of a lot of skills in the ESO. Mm-hmm. Or harm a target. Um, uh, oh, sorry. By granting an elemental or physical shield and allowing the user to breathe underwater. 
walk on top of water or open locks without issue. Sounds like you need an alteration spell because <laughs> of your outstanding chest opening skills. Yeah. My chest opening skills are actually pretty on par nowadays. I opened a master chest today. Don't know if you know that, but you looted from it. So you're a D. Oh my god, you're the best. You're the best ever. <laughs> you cheated somehow. Destruction! <laughs> Destruction spells damage the target's health by elemental or magical attacks. Draining attributes, draining skills, health, or magicka reserves. I hate that. Destruction spells can weaken or fatigue a target to the effects of the elements. Poisons and magic corrode armor and weapons of the target. Mm. One of my very favorite schools, Restoration Magic. Mm -hmm. This school of magic augments the target by restoring its attributes such as health, stamina, magicka, grants resistances, cures disease, cures poisons or paralysis. Restoration Magic can also be used to harm the target by absorbing its health, magicka, stamina, attributes, and skills. If you think that you can actually use a Restoration Staff in an offensive manner, you're kind of channeling Restoration to harm somebody. Thaumaturge. Hmm. This school of magic can manipulate the laws of nature on a temporary basis. For example, Levitation, Ooh, Etherealness, yeah. mm -hmm. Detection, mm -hmm. Pacification. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I could use that on you for just a minute. Pacification? Yeah. Why do you want to pacify me? Water walking, teleportation <laughs> are among some of its properties. <laughs> I, think, I think the chat got it. <sighs> You're the best. You're such a good taker of jokes. You have a last name I like, like mine, and you, you receive the butt of the joke Dude, quite operational often. operational security. Yeah, well, you know. Mysticism. Mysticism is a very obscure school of magic where its spells can manipulate magicka itself. Very closely related to... Listen up, people, if you're falling asleep. Necromancy. Mysticism spells can bind the target's soul, detect life, reflect damage or spells, dispel magical effects, and trap souls. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Sounds like a skill line in ESO. Many mm -hmm. scholars debate the morality of this school as magic, but none, none as bad as necromancy, which we will be talking about. <laughs> Fun fact. The arcane arts, most particularly some of the ones that we are about to talk about, have not always been met with warmth and acceptance in Tamriel. The study of Magicka has proven to be all-consuming in very many cases, take the Mages Guild, making the users of magical craft a threat to themselves and others, particularly in the case of raising the dead. As an example, as an outside, outside example, other than necromancy, the Sigic Order, the oldest known magical organization in Tamriel, is actually considered an outlaw order by the Thalmor of the Aldmeri Dominion. Go figure that one. Hmm. The Knifers <laughs> the knifers don't agree with something, so they outlaw it. 
Good for them. <laughs> Way to be proactive. Yeah, it's all about and douchey. Than everybody else. <laughs> Once you realize your race is worthless, then we can use you. Oh my god! Okay, so you need to put context to that. Okay, all right. So okay, <laughs> let, let me let me preface that by saying Jeez. an actual NPC that is a uh, high elf says that. Yes. Right outside of the college in Oregon. Cash and I offer chairs. <laughs> if you have done um, the Oridon Jester's Festival quests when you are running to the college. <laughs> That's the one. When you just get off the bridge and you're right at the beginning of the garden going into the college, stop for a second and listen to that Altmer absolutely own the three <laughs> other races that are kneeling in front of her. It is terrible. Yep. Yeah. Like super racism. <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> Turn up to on. 11. <laughs> so in a school of its own lies our favorite and most anticipated school of magic. Necromancy. This is a very widely debated school of magic in its own right. Thought of to be a subset of the Conjuration school of magic, necromancy involves the summoning of spirits and utilizing the powers of oblivion to manipulate the souls of mortals, reanimate corpses of the departed. So yes, as a necromancer, if we haven't figured it out yet, we're raising the dead. By binding the soul of a physical form, which is usually extensively prepared by the necromancer. In other words, the physical form is a corpse of some type. Mm -hmm. Usually not older than three days old, because they don't tend to hold together as well. Um, so by the binding of this soul to this physical form, quote-unquote life, can be poured back into the vessel, reanimating it for use by its summoner. And we covered this when we when we covered necromancy uh, quite a few lore lessons ago, but yeah. the effectiveness and efficacy of a vessel for necromancy, for reanimation, is directly attributed to the intelligence level of said person departed mm -hmm. in life. Right. Right. So if you're trying to reanimate the corpse of a real dumbass, you can expect an even dumber <laughs> dead reanimated corpse. Word of the day, don't re don't reanimate cash. <gasps> My god. Yeah, nutshot. <laughs> right to the heart. Nah, <laughs> eh, whatever. I never claimed to be smart. So All right. <sighs> Generally considered immoral and illegal, necromancy is not very well taken in Tamriel. In particular, in Alakir. In any place that the ancient Yakudin, who are now known as Red Guards, dwell. They have an innate hatred for necromancy because they believe desecration of a dead body, a grave is incredibly insulting and they actively combat it everywhere they go. Mm -hmm. As opposed to our friends, the Khajiit, the Khajiit, yep. who will actually sell you dead corpses <laughs> in 
some of their towns. Family of five on sale for 50% off. Yeah. So if you want to practice necromancy, just go to elsewhere and they'll sell you a corpse. Isn't it? Isn't it awesome? It makes so much sense that we're in elsewhere and the necros getting introduced. It's it's overwhelming. It mm-hmm. is like sense senses overwhelmed. So okay, necromancy uh, it, it it is absolutely considered immoral and illegal. Many groups, most of which are quite disreputable, have utilized necromancy as a tool of war throughout history. And then here we go, the King Raper. Molag Ball, the father of vampires, mm-hmm. is known to be of particular influence in the use of necromantic arts. As a matter of fact, vampirism itself is considered to be a form of necromancy. Yes, mm. yes, yes. Okay, a couple other uh, schools of magic that we're going to... Uh, actually, I won't even... They're not schools of magic, but a couple of other um, disciplines in Tamriel that are utilized. You utilize them as a player. Also use some form of magicka to enhance. So the first one being enchanting. This is the imbuing of objects with magical properties through the use of a soul gem and is very widely utilized in all of Tamriel. Uh, Most of your gear is probably enchanted some effect. The effects of an enchanted item can augment skills and attributes of the user it is said that Raven Dureni, if you remember, mm-hmm. um, of the early Dureni, um, I think it was, yeah, the Dureni family, basically. Very, very popular family um, in High Rock. Created the art of enchantment in the first era. Hmm. The next, and one of my very favorites, is alchemy. The art of mixing, boiling, distilling substances, natural and non-natural, to extract their chemical and magical properties for the use of creating potions and poisons is very widely used in Tamriel. Um, Some of the most rare ingredients are very, very valuable to an alchemist, and they can produce the most potent of concoctions, and that's why they're so valuable. Um, And then another Dureni by the name of Asliel Dureni kind of fronted as a simple farmer back during the earliest days of the Durani clan. This was first era, but mm-hmm. was known to have formulated the school of alchemy into an actual art during that time period. Hmm. So the Durani's very, very popular people. Yeah. Yep. Didn't they do the Black Rose prison? The, the Durani's? Was that a Durani that built it in like one day? The Durani, um, they're the ones that took over the... Um, the Dureni Tower. And that's a tower oh, okay. that you can see way up off a of high rock. Yeah. Um, that tower was, it's an ancient tower that was known to have been used um, by the Adra. Yeah. When they were trying to decide the fate of Lorcan. Way, way, way back. And that's a freaking wormhole that we can't get into in this yeah. lesson. No. But we did cover it when we covered the high rock, or the Bretons of high rock. I feel like I ran across a, uh, uh, what's their last name again? I'm sorry. Dureni. Dureni, yeah. In Morrowind, the old school you games. I know I've seen that definitely name. Definitely did. You definitely. Yeah. They're in, they're in yeah. Elder Scrolls Online. You'll run into Durenis. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Okay. Very, very, very influential family. Hmm. So anyway, that uh, that does it for our lore lesson on the Schools of Magic. I hope you guys uh, did enjoy it. There are a lot yeah. of parallels when you read through each of those schools 
two things that we get to do in Elder Scrolls Online. They're just kind of hidden in mm -hmm. some. You don't really realize. Believe it or not, my friends, this is a milestone for the Lore Seekers podcast. This is lore lesson number 50. Woo! 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 Lore lesson number lore 50. 50. Lore 50. Hashtag lore 50. Come on, chat. Let me see. That is a lot of freaking writing, and I'm actually very proud. You should very be. Proud. I'm proud of you. You have been kicking ass, mm, kicking butt for 50 lore lessons. Yeah. I know. It's, yeah, it's actually good. kind of fun. Now, so here is something that I didn't think was going to happen, but now it, it actually has happened. So we were giving away these vouchers for our listeners to let us know what they want to see for a lore lesson. We had a few little rules, like obviously we can't have covered it before. There has to be sufficient amount of lore for us to be able to cover. Anyway, um, four or five of these got given out, and they absolutely nailed the topics, like very, very good topics. So this topic comes to us from Witcher Girl, and of course, with a name like that, she's very interested in witches, Hagravens, and Covens. So I want to open this up once again to anyone out there that has a lore topic that we have not covered that you are interested in hearing. Write us, please, loreseekerspodcast at gmail.com and just write lore lesson topic and let us know something that we have not covered, something that has sufficient lore out there for us to be able to cover, and we will cover it. Because I'm not kidding you, having set topics for the last four to five weeks was really a stress taken off of me. And I loved covering these things that I wouldn't have thought of. So let's do this. Bring it on out. But anyway, tonight we talk about witches, hagravens, and covens, which is a very interesting topic. The birth of witches in Elder Scrolls is a twisted tale originating from the lands of High Rock. Never would have known that. The story really unfolds during the Merithic era from forbidden love between the races of man and myrrh in a time of struggle between the two. What do I mean? A female human and a male elf fell in love and gave birth to a female half-elf. Half elf. Now, knowing the struggles that the little girl was going to face because both races were at odds... The parents pleaded to the higher powers of Mundus to show compassion and to give strength to the child. So with the birth of the child, they not only got strength, but they proved their love for one another and their hopes to foster peace between the races of men and myrrh. Didn't quite go that way. But what did happen was answered in uh, a little bit of lore that I'm going to read to you. So when this happened, when the plea took place, the leaves of the trees swished as Ifray answered, your love shall forever be engraved in my bones. And the wind blew as Kinnereth hummed, your love may sing and I will hear. The setting sun stretched his rays as Magnus yawned, your love be blessed by my light to shine in the dark. The twilight shadows creeped as Azura promised, your love shall see more than what others see. 
The night shrouded the world in silence as nocturnal whispered, Your love shall be able to deceive. And the little moon shone as Mara smiled, Your love shall share my compassion, so evil shall not reach her. So their pleas were indeed heard, but the young female would live to grow to be the first witch. Mm. Yes, so... There's always a twist. <laughs> There's always a twist in Elder yeah. Scrolls lore, and that's oh, yeah. what I love about Elder Scrolls lore. Oh, yeah. She was gifted with the ability to manipulate the forces of Mundus and Oblivion. In learning witchcraft, she was born into the craft. Generations of females would also be born into the craft, and eventually they would gather together in clans that were to become known as the very first covens. So when this first witch was born of all of these different influences from Mundus and from the different deities that hovered above Mundus, she became the first witch and every offspring from her generation after generation became a witch. Hmm. So the witches' covens, native to the lands of High Rock, where they originated, they later spread to other territories and then eventually the whole of Tamriel. They were shrouded in secrecy and discretion. Many witches' covens were hunted and killed. There was a lot of mistrust surrounding witches' covens. Although many were the source of havoc and mayhem in a region, many witches became respected and sought after because they knew how to cure diseases, most notably vampirism and lycanthropy and you'll know both vampirism is obviously vampires uh -huh. and lycanthropy as we have covered in previous lore lessons is werewolves right most witches would actually charge large amounts of gold for their service because let's face it they lived in covens in the middle of the woods and didn't have much so if they had a skill that others coveted why not make money the genealogy of witches as females was sometimes portrayed because sometimes a male was born. Huh. I think Khajiit enters the room. Huh. Come on, buddy. So witchcraft being a very specific type of magic is similar, uh, most similar to like the old ways of the Sigic Order. That's how witchcraft was. It was also taught to males that were born into the coven. So most practitioners of witchcraft would disguise themselves as women, the men. Oh. They were basically cross-dressing male witches. Drag queen covens. I love it. All right. Sounds like a Broadway show. Don't take that as I cross-dress because I don't. I'm dude. I'm dude all the way through. Damn. Is that why you keep a shaved head so you can put your wigs on easier? Oh, my God. That so deserves a nut kick. <laughs> no, that's not why. I'm balding. <laughs> I'm incredibly balding. Me too. That's why I shaved my head. You did. Uh, me too. Speaking of. <laughs> me too. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> so anyways, these dude witches earn the title of witch man or male witch. Go figure. All right. First fun fact of the lore lesson. Witches rely on their connections to spirits and magical creatures through conjuration magic. Yes, we talked about the schools of magic last week. Most witches source their power directly to their respective Daedric Prince. Many witches 
choose either nocturnal or her scene as their source of power and worship. Oh, this is so damn dark. I love mm. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most witch covens follow very selective codes and very, very strict rules that are imposed by their own internal hierarchy. However, some witches prefer a life of solidarity and independence, which brings me to the topic of that creepy witch. <laughs> Forget where she was. Super creepy witch in a hut somewhere out in the world of Tamriel that full on hits on you. Oh, like, dude. It's disgusting. Mm. Have, you, have you done that quest? I, oh. If you know in chat, let us know because <sighs> I totally have forgotten you that one. You do not come back from that. You don't, dude. Mm-hmm. I was like, seriously, mm-hmm. like, I was a little vomity in my mouth mm-hmm. after that one. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. No means no. Damn, lady. Mm. I just ain't into that. Mm. So, anyway. Okay, so um, some of the witches prefer the, solid, prefer the solidarity and independence, but many with that philosophy gather into lawless, anarchic covens of their own. And that's where some of the mayhem comes from, from witches' covens, and that's where there's a lot of, of mistrust. Many witches, having that independence, have a driving lust for power that leads to their inability to resist the temptations of oblivion, and many times ends up their own demise. Mm. Although Nocturnal has been known to bless a worthy witch with blessings and gifts, for example, the Raven form, which we're going to talk about very soon, the Daedric Prince of Darkness has also been known to punish and chastise. I mean, it is Nocturnal. So this is how a witch becomes a Hagraven. Oh my gosh, this is getting dark, dude. I love this. Holy this crap. This is gnarly. Hagravens. What the hell are Hagravens? And you've undoubtedly run into them uh-huh. in any Elder Scrolls game. They are freaking everywhere. But a Hagraven is a witch who falls out of the favor of Nocturnal and is cursed to, a, to the life of being a Hagraven or a Harpy. That'd be awful. Yes. It would be. I mean, you fit right in. Your wig would look great. Guy. The prince herself, of Nocturnal basically, is known to appear as a hag if light is shed upon her. She's absolutely gorgeous if you take the light off. You played Skyrim, come on. Hmm. Um, So she's surrounded by servant ravens. Witches craving access to powerful magic may also undergo a ritual, trading in their humanity to transform into hag ravens. The cunning and repulsive Hagravens are a horrific cross between an old crone and a bird, and they are known to be extremely hostile to outsiders, and they retain their ability to, to communicate with others. So they can spill a, they can still a speaker, but they're just super freaking gnarly because they've traded in their humanity for these powers. That's crazy. Prone to strong abilities with magic, hag ravens can be dangerous in, in ranged combat because most of them are ranged spellcasters. And then witches who have angered Nocturnal in a broken seal of silence, for instance, can be permanently transformed into the haggard form of a hag raven or a winged trickster harpy. So most witches that have befallen this fate are seen as shamed in the region of High Rock. And then the Reachmen, which are also known as the Forsworn, we've also covered them in the Lord Lesson, they are known to coven or to covet 
the coven covet, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. to covet one who covets the hag ravens, what the reachmen do. Huh. Okay, now this part was very interesting to me because it turns out that witches know a lot of ancient knowledge. They're essentially lore masters. No kidding. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So some witches possess the ability to cast curses and hexes on other beings. Some maledictions can last for long periods of time, while some of them are only temporary. And the effects of curses can vary in their results. So for an example of one such curse, a whole village of people became unable to say anything other than, hmm, precisely. That's all they could say. That would get annoying real freaking quick. In another example, a young orc was adorned with goat horns on his head that he had to continually have sawn off. So, Hellboy. Pretty much. Oh. Minus the bad answer. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, witches, has an, witches have an exhaustive knowledge of ancient lore mm-hmm. and have the ability to summon various Daedric princes for their own uses as they see fit. I thought that was quite interesting as well. They have a deep knowledge of herbalism and the use of alchemy in the cure of disease. Their knowledge in the area is so detailed, even the Mages Guild, the snooty, rooty, tooting Mages Guild, is very reliant on their services from time to time. So because of the power and deep knowledge of witches, many witches' covens are confronted with distrust and suspicion. People just do not trust what they don't, or they do not trust what they don't understand. Now, the power is absolutely undeniable with witches' covens. So many end up seeking out their expertise and skill in order to gain advantages not found anywhere else in the land of Tamriel. Fun fact. Most witches are worshippers of the Daedric Prince Nocturnal and are melded to the idea that they may be blessed with the secrets of the dark if they remain ever faithful. Mm. A lot of them don't necessarily get their wish, even though they're very faithful. But Nocturnal is very, very choosy mm. in who decides to favor. They're so, like, you can... I think it's mainly because after playing through Somerset, like you just get a real look at the way the Daedra interact with each other and, you know, people in Nern. So, like, man, there's always this underlying thing that's going to happen. Like, you, you're coming there for one thing, but you don't know that you're going to be getting a completely different thing in the process. Exactly. And that's Daedra. I love that. I have to make note of two comments in chat right now. Uh, the first is Cash is a witch. <laughs> so that's not uh, a thing. And then the second one is Can we send Cash a wig? I, for the record, I approve that. I approve of both of those comments because, you know, this is a fun environment. I mean, we're in the trust tree here with the nest. Um, Doesn't on, the other the hand, on the other hand, I like being bald. So, it's true. I mean, I've learned to accept it. You know, people—they're so hurtful. It can be so hurtful. Let's talk about the weird. You want to get right, weird? A perfect freaking segue. Let's get that. weird. We went from bald, <laughs> flash, cash wigs, cash witch wigs, 
into let's talk weird. Let's get weird. <laughs> One of the most famous covens of witches is known as the Glenmoral Coven. Mm. It's a very famous witches coven of weird nature witches and the worshippers of the Daedric Prince Hercene. Now, this is a one of the very basic quest lines that you'll run through in ESO. The coven can be found in Bankarai, most notable for its ability to cure lycanthropy, which is werewolves and vampirism. Mm-hmm. Once having a presence in High Rock, Hammerfell, and Solstheim, Cyrodiil and Skyrim, these witches, many of whom are vampires themselves, are known to walk amongst the people without them knowing. Uh, they can polymorph into enormous ravens or even wolves. Some of the witches live amongst the populations in the cities without ever being seen. Wow. Many in the order in attempt to maximize their power have become hag ravens, but obviously hag ravens cannot disguise themselves, so they pretty much stick to the sticks. Fun fact. The Glen Moral Weird Coven's willingness to cure lycanthropy has put them at odds with the Reachmen. Now, the Reachmen, which are Brenda, uh, Breton descendants living in the wild, and uh, they've kind of claimed portions of the Western Reach. They revere all aspects of her scene and view lycanthropy as a blessing. So they don't agree with the Glen Moral Weird Coven in being able to and actually following through with curing lycanthropy. Huh. So, yeah. The weirises and the weird. So not to be confused with hag ravens, the weirises of Tamriel have a very different focus. Explain this will kind of help to explain a little bit. There is a lore book entitled Weirises, the Name Daughters by Glargurglip. Glargargill. Glargargill. He's an orc. He's a freaking orc, okay? Glargargill, the speaking oak. So in the text, the song of Geoffrey and the Weird Women. It reads, In Elden time, elven time, Geoffrey did come. And naming creatures where he did run, as always chaotic, and names were unknown. His gift was a name for each beast, plant, and stone. Then all knew their places except man and myrrh, who plundered and ravaged wherever they were. I name you the earth bones, Geoffrey decreed, lords of the forest, rock root and seed. This heritage nurture henceforth be its guards and designate worthies to act as its wards. Therefore did weird women watch o'er the green from tundra to forest from peak to ravine, reminding all creatures, be it tiger or worm, of the name of their nature, their function and form. Would-be corruptors who'd canker the green shall face weirest warding wherever they'd seen. So tread woods with caution, respect Jeffrey's way, Yes, weird women watching abduct you away. So, suffice it to say, based on our lore book, that Weirises are nature witches tasked with the protection of nature and its creations. They are not Hagravens. They're much different. One such coven of Weirises appearing in ESO is the Beldama Weird, a priesthood of female nature witches sworn to protect the Elnafe, which we know as the Earthbones, mm-hmm. 
They claim to be descended from the Elmafei, which were the first spirits to actually physically walk the surface of Tamriel. They're oh. bound to the weird tree and they remain to protect the land from darkness. That's what these weirdesses focuses. Most weirdesses belong to a coven as uh, these do, as the Beldama weird does, where others in some rare cases may choose to live solitary lives in the wilderness. And we do encounter some of these in Elder Scrolls Online. I believe when you're doing the prologue quest for Somerset, there is a Weirus who is a solitary Weirus that you run into, and I, I, her name will be. The Weird Tree is a gargantuan tree found in the wilderness of High Rock. This is another quest line. Tended to by the Beldana, Beldama Coven, the Weird Tree is rumored to provide the Weiruses with strange power. In fact, talked about the Earth Bones. They are the fated descendants of Adra, who actually physically walked Tamriel along with the ancestors of Men and Myrrh. They're highly revered. The Weird, the laws of nature set down by Yfrey, became the Earth Bones along with other original spirits. The original spirits were known as the Et Ada. Et Ada. Huh. Due to their lifestyle, Weiruses are generally feared by people inhabiting the regions they may protect. And these are Weiruses, not Hagravens. So this is maybe a little out of place, the way people feel about Weiruses, just because they don't truly understand them. Many tales are told to make children afraid to enter the woods out of fear that they may be captured or killed by Weiruses, which yeah, in some cases, some covens may actually do so. Um, because some of these Weirus covens worship the Daedra, the bad Daedra anyway, not like Mara and some of the, the better ones. And many covens are strictly nonviolent and only concern themselves with protection of the forest. Man, that is gnarly. Yeah, it's really, really good lore mm -hmm. in this one. So while exploring the landscape of Elder Scrolls, it does not take long to uncover some form of which Weirus or Hagraven and some kind of you know, a, a natural coven. Uh, they're super mysterious, very, very interesting faction to explore in Elder Scrolls and on Nern. And, um, you know, just don't go willy-nilly picking flowers because you never know when you'll end up in a cauldron of boiling water. Hansel and Gretel. One thing that I actually did find when I was researching this is I found a... Uh, role-playing guild, and I forget the name. I should have, I should have put the name down. But uh, it's a role-playing guild that strictly role-play female weiruses. Wow. I know, and that, like I just absorbed, devoured the lore that they had on their page. I'm like, this is really good. So some of their stuff is in our lore lesson today. But um, That's crazy. This is probably one of the more intriguing and interesting ones because you run into witches and weiruses, but you don't think much about who they are and where they come from. Yeah. Turns out there's a crap ton of history on Tur witches and weiruses. No kidding. Turns out they're pretty gnarly. Um, yeah. Man, I tell you what, this is one of the first lore lessons. This is a really, really cool one, especially being, you know, the 50th lore lesson. This is one of the first ones that's made me, like, really want to chapter would be too much, but some kind of expansion that focused on witches. 
to kind of bring I, them more into the spotlight. I'm with you a million percent. But you know what I want to see, and Chad is mentioning it right now, is that it seems very warden-like because of their connection to the forest. Oh. And if there is one, one of my main gripes about our lore in ESO, because I know that wardens were introduced as part of ESO's lore, but there is no origination lore. There's no origin story. How does a warden become a warden? Like that is my chosen class for like another month. For like <laughs> <laughs> 40 days. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, everybody knows. If you listen to this show, you know that I'm, I'm a super freaking warden fan. But there's no lore right. behind it. I want nothing more than to just devour warden lore and cover it on our podcast. And there's nothing. I mean, there really is nothing. The closest thing to warden lore is the history of the spinner, which is the um, basically a, a Bosmer uh, lore priest. It's basically what they are. They speak in riddles. They tell the history in the riddles. A lot of them are incredibly... Um, solitary in the woods um, but they're known to be able to foretell the future and you know they're like basically nature bards but they don't sing it they speak it in rhymes and piss everybody off <laughs> that's what spinners are and I'm yeah. like that this totally plays into the lore of a warden yeah. but there's nothing in stone about the warden yeah so, kind of surprising please. really Okay, so um, I'm really pretty excited about this one. And um, this was a reply to our call for more topics for lore because it really does make it easy on me every week when I don't have to scour the interwebs for um, things to do topics on. And we really do want to hear the things that you want to learn more about. So this week we are doing a lore lesson that was suggested by Victorious Viking from the Lore Seekers Guild. Thank you very much, my friend. And sir, we're doing lore lesson number 51 on Maik the Liar. And I aim to blow your freaking mind about Maik in this particular one. Um, there's lots of really interesting theories, and we're going to cover the bigger ones. First, some quotes from Maik. Greetings. Maik knows many things. What is your interest? You seek knowledge. Maik has much. Some of it verified by actual facts. The next one. I have seen dragons. Perhaps you will see a dragon? I won't say where I saw one. Perhaps I did not. Or, my personal favorite, you wish to become a lich? It's very easy, my friend. Simply find the heart of a lich, combine it with the tongue of a dragon, and cook it with the flesh of a well-ridden horse. This combination is certain to make you undead. (laughs) (laughs) Or there is also Uh. one about Nord beards. Nords are so serious about beards. So many beards. Maik thinks they wish they had glorious manes like Kajit. So if you've braved the wilds of Tamriel, in any respect, 
you have certainly run into the elusive, yes, yet very, very informative to a certain extent, Mayik the Liar. He has been a staple in Elder Scrolls Online and definitely a notorious source of false information in Morrowind, Oblivion, Skyrim, and also our beloved Elder Scrolls Online. In those games is where he was introduced. Now, he was first introduced as an Easter egg. But Mike the Liar has served as a way for the developers to provide commentary about the Elder Scrolls series. And I have some examples. First, we're going to talk about what he looks like. Mike the Liar is very unique looking for a Khajiit. He has facial features and markings of a tiger, a bobcat, and a leopard combined. He usually is dressed in robes with a long hood draped across his shoulders. He speaks in the third person. And Maik loves to share his opinion on a very wide variety of topics, from the goings-on in Tamriel to hidden messages from the developers of the game regarding hot topics in the series. For example, there was a reference that Maik did for endless discussions by players about whether or not children should be included in the game as NPCs. And Maik says, Maik believes the children are our future, but he doesn't want them ruining all of our fun. He actually, I don't remember what game it was, but he actually said that in one of these games, alluding to the developer's comments about the arguments that were going on in the forums. Wasn't it Oblivion? Sounds great. All right, cool. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't, I'm sure I could reference it, but I'm not sure which one it came from. Um, now, here's an interesting one. And this is where some of the theories start to emerge about Maik. So the age of Maik the Liar is not truly known. It hasn't been confirmed. In Skyrim, one of his lines clears up any questions about his reoccurrence in numerous games with vastly different timelines. And he says, Maik's father was also called Maik, as was Maik's father's father. At least, that is what his father said. So that at least gives you three to four generations of Maik, giving support to the fact that Maik in each game may be different than the other. So why do, why do they feel the need to do that? Well, when you put the timeline of the appearances of Maik in all the games into perspective, he first appears in the Elder Scrolls in ESO. Although it's the latest game, ESO's timeline is much more early than a lot of the other timelines in Elder Scrolls games. So this means across the span of all the games where Maik has showed up, if it was the same Maik throughout the whole series, then Maik the Liar would be over a thousand years old, which is abnormally long for any lifespan of a Khajiit. So here's the first fun fact about the Khajiit, and it has to do with their lifespan. Khajiit are considered pseudo-mer. I did not know this. They are considered descendants of elves, meaning that they originate from the same ancestors as the Bosmer. For this reason, it is very likely that Khajiit can live as long as other elven kind around roughly 200 to 300 years. Wow. Mind blown. Yep. Quote. 
I'm not done blowing your freaking mind. I'm telling you, this was a wormhole. And this is what I love about Elder Scrolls lore. To further support the fact that there are several Maiks throughout Tamriel's history, a public dungeon in Davin's Watch, which we can go to and explore, yeah, that's in Stonefalls, by the name of Crowswood, has a Maik Easter egg. There is an inscribed flute within the Crowswood that reads, A gift from Maik to his son, Maik. Which further implies that Maik may not be the same one as the previous, however related to the previous. Okay. Now, could this all be a ruse? Could it all be a lie? Could it actually be the same Maik game after game? Perhaps Maik is actually over a thousand years old. There is a lot of speculation in the Elder Scrolls world of lore that Maik the Liar struck a deal with the Daedric Prince for his immortality. Some believe that Maik the Liar has actually achieved the state of Kim. Now, Kim, when you see it in the lore, is spelt C-H-I-M, but it's actually pronounced Kim. I'm going to talk more about Kim coming up pretty soon. But perhaps Clavic is vile. Maybe Hermias Mora. Maybe the wacky Sheagorath had something to do with the reason that Maik has lived for over a thousand years. Perhaps these tales of Maik being his father's son from one generation to the next are nothing but a ruse to the player. Now, the next fun fact. We're going to talk about Kim. Kim, C-H-I-M, is a state in which one can break free of all known laws and corruptions of oblivion. So it means you don't have to follow the rules anymore. The rules of anything. You are your own entity. In other words, it's godhood. One in this state, the state of Kim, is free to manipulate the Arbus. The Arbus is the universe of Elder Scrolls itself, which encompasses Mundus, Oblivion, the Void, and Aetherius. All these things encompassed are the Arbus. So in this state of Kim, one is free to manipulate the Arbus as they please. Now, two very famous personalities, this will help put it into perspective, two very famous personalities in Elder Scrolls on, or the Elder Scrolls universe itself were known to have achieved this state of Kim, this godhood, and two of those were Vivek and Talos. So that kind of explains to you the grandeur of achieving Kim. I'm going to go into why some believe that Maik the Liar has actually achieved Kim. Maik can't remember his childhood. Perhaps he never had one. Another famous quote from Maik. This is a curious statement from Maik. And this, this one happens in Skyrim. If you reference Vivek when he ascended to godhood, he was said to have wiped any memory of himself as a child and that once he had achieved godhood, he had just always been a god. So perhaps this statement made by Maik is unrelated. Perhaps it's just him being silly. Or maybe it alludes to the fact that he has actually achieved that godhood and has zero memory of his former life. Another fact alluding to Maik's god status is his deep overall knowledge of history and lore in Tamriel. He knows a ton. 
Knowledge in these many topics over several thousands of years may also hint that Maik was actually present during some of the most influential times in history. This also is an additional step needed to ascend to godhood. And I have a clip right here for you. Maik knows much and tells some. Maik knows many things others do not. Okay, wormhole. This is where you can truly dive into a wormhole. And I watched several videos and read several articles about this very thing. There is a theory that Maik the Liar is actually Lorcan himself, cursed by the gods to wander the world. Now remember that Lorcan <laughs> had a very large part in creating the world that we play in. Um, here is a quote from the monomyth, which is a lore book from Skyrim about the gods and creation. After the world is materialized, Lorcan is separated from his divine center, sometimes involuntarily, and wanders the creation of Etada. That is exactly what Maik does. He's seemingly separated from his divine center, and he undoubtedly wanders Tamriel. Uh, Very interesting. Yeah, buddy. I have more for you, though. There's a lot of evidence here, and it's actually really freaking cool. Do tell. The Sigic Endeavor. This is a method in which one can transcend the mortal boundaries and achieve the coveted state of Kim. So in order to achieve Kim, one must go through this Sigic Endeavor, which also lends to the absolute power of the Sigic Order and their practice. When one is achieving Kim, they are known to break free from all laws and corruptions of the universe, as we talked about, and gain the ability to manipulate reality as they please. The whole point of achieving Kim is to obtain knowledge of the universe from a third-person perspective, such as an observer looking in and seeing all. More evidence suggests that Maik the Liar shows many signs that he has achieved Kim. For example, transcending time and being present for over a thousand years. Maik also possesses that vast amount of knowledge that we talked about of both history and the world of Tamriel, but he also seems to be able to relate to the gameplay and the players themselves, having that outside-in perspective. Mm. Here's another quote. Maik prefers to adventure alone. Others just get in the way. And they talk, 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 talk. This may refer to the long-standing complaint that Bethesda didn't want to add multiplayer. Maik knew about it. Here's another example. Maik knows much, tells some. Maik knows many things others do not. That is a massive Easter egg right there. If you're looking into the theory that Maik is Lorcan. This may refer to how he's just an Easter egg added to respond to questions from the Bethesda forums, but is it something more? I love it. Okay. <laughs> Dude, it's so good. I, I freaking love it. I mean, what a grand perspective of Mike now. So whether or not you decide that this is a conspiracy or not, you cannot deny that the history and mystery behind Mike the Liar is incredible. He is he is a crazily unique character in in the world and is a source of entertainment for all of us and speculation now hopefully make you ask some questions about who he is and where he comes from. 
Um, could he actually be the god that some say he is, or is he simply part of the lineage of a Khajiit with one aimless purpose, to mystify us with unending anecdotes and misinformation? Mike wishes you well. Mm. Yeah. Interesting one. Huh? Yeah. I, uh... <laughs> I, I have a whole new perspective and like desire to not only see my in game but I just I know it I feel like it kind of makes sense when it you know it, it it doesn't make sense but it does you know it's like I as a character he doesn't make sense you know what I mean in the way he talks but like I know n- now everything just kind of like comes full circle this is like princess Leia right now whispering in Han's ear I know I, I know I know. Good job. Actually, actually it, was, it, was, it was the other way around. <laughs> that was Han, that was Han whispering here. Oh yeah, I know. So anyway, true that. Good job. Thanks, man. I, I I really I started to get into that one a little bit, and I'm like, God, man, I don't know if there's going to be too too much lore on him. And then I just yeah. started watching YouTube video after YouTube video, and I go, Oh, this is some rich crap right here. <laughs> I'm going to no blow kidding. minds. So. All right, friends, with our fifth anniversary celebration of Elder Scrolls Online well underway, we felt it would be appropriate to cover our friends, the five companions. We've already talked about old Abner Tharn, but what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about each member to kind of honor each member of the five companions. No, we're not going to talk about the vestige because that's you. You're already honored every day in game. So there's that. But this week, we're going to cover the life and the legacy of Varen Equilarios. He's kind of a homeless-looking dude, but it's okay. He had a really cool life before. So don't judge the homeless. They probably have had amazing lives, and then they became homeless. So it's no different with the prophet. <laughs> anyway. I don't think Jibs is. He's not even laughing at me, so you guys can laugh with me. Anyway, we're going to cover Varen Aquilarios today. And we're also going to cover our very favorite, Lyris Titanborn. If you don't know who she is, she's the Nord Lady that is standing over you at all times. Let's talk about Varen Aquilarios, though. He's got a pretty interesting story. He was born in the second era, year 536. Varen Equilarios is the son of a Colovian duke. He became first noticed when he led a rebellion against Leovic the Reachman of the, Le- or the uh, Reachman dynasty for legalizing Daedric worship across the empire. The Colovians and Varen Equilarios did not agree with the legalization of Daedric worship across the empire. So... The population became outraged, and that prompted Varen Aquilarios to take action. One of Varen's earliest accomplishments was the building of Varen's Wall, which is a stone wall spanning his home on the Gold Coast. Varen wanted his home and the population protected should Leovic's forces decide to invade once the rebellion started. So here's a fun fact. Baron Aquilarios based his rebellion against the Reachmen in the city of Bruma and called upon Abner Tharn for assistance 
in ridding the landscape of the Daedric threat and their enablers, the Reachman dynasty. As you know, Abner Tharn would later become one of the five companions alongside Varen Aquilarios. In the second era, year 586, just eight short years before the events of Elder Scrolls Online, Varen Aquilarios and his army would reach the Imperial City, storm the White Gold Tower, and defeat Leovic and his forces. Aquilarios drove his sword into Leovic's heart at the foot of the Ruby Throne and took the title of Emperor for himself. That's dirty. Very dirty. If you've played the White Gold Tower, some of this might sound very familiar. Varen then took Clivia Tharn, the wife of Leovic, the dude he just killed, as his bride. So Clivia Tharn became his wife. That's a voice you do not go to sleep peacefully with at night. The scroll is mine! Yeah, yep. that one. That is from White Gold Tower. Am I coming home to that? Honey! Good Ugh. lord. Sounds like a bad I'm record. We're like, yeah, I'm coming. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I don't want him. <laughs> so anyway, Varen Aquilarios took uh, Clivia Tharn and, as his wife, and this was done due to Abner Tharn's assistance and his loyalty during the rebellion. He basically said, I shall take your sister. So it was kind of a Payback to Abner. Be like, hey, buddy, Knuckles, I got you. Hmm. Anyone those things. Another fun fact. Due to the mass amount of bodies produced by the fighting at the White Gold Tower, the market district of the Imperial City was converted into the Memorial District and filled with many, many graves. This can be seen in the dungeon, White Gold Tower. Uh, Emperor Aquilarius was known to be a good man and a good and just leader, and he strived to do right by his people. It wasn't until later that he truly effed up. He was constantly haunted by the fact that he was not of dragon's blood and not a true dragonborn. Now, this was a trait that was held by all emperors of Cyrodiil, and he did not have dragon's blood. So because of that, he felt he was not a legitimate ruler and he was constantly looking for ways to remedy this. Oh, well, he found a way. In order to find the Amulet of Kings, Aquilarios founded the Five Companions. The Amulet of Kings would play a very, very special role in this. Now, from this point forward, I am going to give you a spoiler alert. The main quest line of Elder Scrolls Online will kind of be covered in this next portion. I know we've talked about it before, but this is very specific to uh, Varen Aquilarios. So if you have not, if you're newer to the game and you have not played through the main quest line, you may choose to not listen to Skip the rest of the show until you, hear, until you hear the music playing. Yeah, don't put a timeline on me. Don't you do that. You know what? Skip ahead three minutes. <laughs> I love you, hate you, buddy. I love you, hate you. Okay, so anyway, spoiler alert, done. All right. So in the process of finding the Amulet of Kings, Varen Aquilarios and the rest of the companions were betrayed by Manamarco the frickin' worm. Huh. They entrusted him as one of their own. 
The Necromancer. Oh, God, that just gives me chills talking mm. about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, give me chills. Mm. The Necromancer Man of Marco had deceived Aquilarios by telling him that he could become a true dragonborn if they slightly modified a ritual using the Amulet of Kings. That's why they went after the Amulet of Kings. That's what the whole Five Companions was about, finding it. By modifying the ritual, Akatosh would be convinced to gift Varen Aquilarios with the blood of a dragon, making him legitimate as a ruler. But the ritual backfired because Manamarco had already corrupted the Amulet of Kings. Dirty. Super dirty. So Varen had unknowingly broken the divine agreement between Akatosh and Alessia, and this agreement was set in place to protect Nern from the corruptive forces of Oblivion. The veil was shattered. The circle is complete. So the veil was shattered and resulted in something called the Soul Burst. The Soul Burst was a powerful wave of magical energy and blasted outward from the Imperial City, and Emperor Aquilarios was lost in the explosion. Aftershocks of magic spread across Nern, and the veil between the planet of Nern and Oblivion was now open. And this is where Molag Ball, the Daedric Prince, took advantage of it and secretly began to infiltrate Nern on a global scale. The veil was shattered. So all of a sudden you have all these things from Oblivion coming in. Molag Ball, who was secretly working with the Necromancer Man of Marco, led the Daedric Charge and began to murder the citizens of Nern, including your character, huh. by stealing their souls to fuel the plane meld. His ultimate goal? To pull Nern into his Daedric realm of Cold Harbor. That is the basis of your story, and that's why the Prophet is such a giant Mm-hmm. I digress. That's why Varen Aquilarios is such a giant portion of your personal story. Now, let's talk about the transition of Varen Aquilarios. After the soul burst, Varen was lost. His memory was wiped, and he was found by moth priests wandering outside of their abbey. So he was taken in by the priests. Aquilarios was entrusted and began to study the Elder Scrolls and really regained much of his memory back in this process. But because of his consistent studying of the scrolls, he became blind and frail, which is a known side effect of excessive exposure to the ancient text. So like when the commercials for the Elder Scrolls come up and it's like 10 or 15 seconds of explanation of what the Elder Scrolls is and the rest of the commercial for like a whole minute tells you the side effects. That's what they tell you. <laughs> if you take this medication, you will go blind. You're going to die. And that's what, and that's what happened to Aquilarius. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the reading of the scrolls and why that actually happens. The reading of the Elder Scrolls is known to make the, pro- the reader progressively lose their sight. The Temple of the Ancestor Moths, located in the Draw Mountains of Chadenal, is the home of the Moth Priests, who are the only ones that are allowed to study the scrolls. They are mostly blind. They live a life of leisure. They live a life of seclusion. 
and they cultivate the lives of ancestor moths, harvesting their silk and spinning it into bolts of cloth. Now, Jibs, I specifically remember you talking about the ancestor moths in a previous lore lesson and about how they are used in certain rituals. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking you to recall that. Thank you very much. You probably purged that. I have. But it is a very definitely slept. the process. Yeah, the process of how these Elder Scrolls are read mm-hmm. involves the ancestor moths, and oh, it's, yeah. it's very, very yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So, a little fun fact about the uh, ancestor moth: the order of the ancestor moth is one of many cults on Nern. The members of the order, called the moth priests, believe it is their sacred duty to study and translate the Elder Scrolls themselves to assist the sitting emperor of Tamriel. Mm. Then might that be why they assisted Varen Aquilarios? Mm. Exactly, because they knew who he was. Because they can foresee Correct. the future. Yes. Yeah. So I thought, like, well, that's why they helped him. They're such good guys. They're so kind. They're so barbecue together? Kind. I know. Wait, are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> so the priests also search the landscape of Tamriel to find new hidden scrolls. The scrolls are housed at the library of the White Gold Tower once they find them. Now they're blind. How the F do they find them? I don't know. I was like, what? How do they find them? Anyway. Maybe it's a story they, for another one, doesn't it? We'll just keep that uh, a mystery. <laughs> it's, a, it's a mystery. So Varen Aquilarios very rapidly aged due to his reading of the scrolls, but he also became considerably wise in the process. He became known as the prophet. He gained an awareness of past and future events. Although he was very, very frail in appearance, he had to rely upon his staff to remain aware of his surroundings. So it's like... Blind man, Crescent Street, using right. his staff. The prophet is known to speak in riddles and is at first very, very secretive about his origins to the vestige. That's player. So there's that. Baron Aquilarius eventually began to prophesize across the land, which was kind of a dumb move because he got the attention of Man of Marco. He's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> you still alive? I thought I knocked you the F out. <laughs> Uh, Varen Aquilarius was subsequently arrested on the grounds of rumor mongering and treason. Go figure. It's like big old set of nuts on Man Marco. Uh, Varen was then transferred into the custody of Molag Ball, the raper, which sounds terror like a terrible place to be. He imprisoned Varen Aquilarius in the Wailing Prison, which um, is in Molag Ball's realm of Cold Harbor. Now, yes, you do get to play through all of this. I just like to connect all the dots for you people who are trying to just speed through the quest. You may not speed through it. No, no. Go slow. That's Varen Aquilarios. He is very, very, very important in this story. And he's, he's made some mistakes. I mean, give the guy a little break, you know, made some mistakes and wasn't true dragonborn, but hey, it is what it is. Okay. Now talk about our girl. Mm. She's a huge, she's Lyra's Titan born. Female Nord Warrior. <laughs> Keep it in the circus! Female <laughs> Nord Warrior. She is born of giant's blood. Let's talk a little bit about her life. She is a friend and ally of the Prophet and a member of the Five Companions. You will learn in your story that Titan's born father, Gelder, 
Galder, here you go, better, was a man descended from giants himself, but due to Lyris's abnormally large size as a newborn, he killed her mom. I was getting ready to say, birth. do you imagine giving birth to that? Yeah, mom couldn't imagine giving birth, and yeah, we'll leave it at that. Mm. <laughs> Poor woman. Mm. Yeah, so reminds me of Game of Thrones with Tyrion, but oh my. Just keep on moving. No spoilers. So sensing her father's disdain, but still feeling responsible, Lyris eventually left home to fight for Emperor Varen Aquilarios in the Imperial Legion. And they became very close friends. She was ridiculed. I mean, she's, she was massive. She was ridiculed and bullied by fellow soldiers, but she was steadfast as a warrior in both mind, body, and spirit, which led to her leadership skills. And that's why she became noticed by Varen Aquilarios and why they became very close friends. And eventually she was asked to become one of the five companions. So eventually, as she rose through the ranks and became a very, very trusted advisor, um, she would assist in the forming of the five companions alongside Abertharn, the dragon guard leader, Sai Sahan, and the battle mage, Mana Marco. And then they would set out in in between 580 uh, second era 580 and 582 that is when they set out to find the amulet of kings it took them two years to find it little bit of a fun fact here there is definitely most definitely 100 indubitably some hanky panky going on in between the sheets between sai sahan and laris whoa <laughs> i'm just saying Something going on. Hmm. Okay. She towers over him, too, which is so funny. Oh, my damn, too. Sisa Han's definitely a little spoon. That. <laughs> just, I'm just picturing that. I'm going to stop. I'm going to continue. In ESL, Lyris Titanborn is first encountered by the player, which is you, the vestige in Molag Ball's realm of Cold Harbor. She explains why the player's in the Wailing Prison and helps the player escape. You stop that. I am in character. <laughs> so as the first three weeks of the ESO's uh, five-year anniversary event come to a close... You've had an opportunity to get the motifs for both the Prophet and Lyra's Titanborn. If you missed it, don't worry. You can either buy or trade the motifs from other players, or you can take part in the last week of the celebration in which you will have another opportunity to earn all of the motifs during that last week. Um, and then very soon, not going to say when, but very soon we will cover the rest of the five companions besides Abner, because we've already covered Abner Tharn when the prequel quest was given to us. So we're not really going to... Um, oh, man, that was good. Yeah, buddy, that was a good that one. That was a good and one. If I, if I had more whiskey in me, I would probably have peed my pants. <laughs> <laughs> because that visual is... <laughs> it's formidable. Oh. But I, I love Lyris. And, I and do hey, too. Look, I do too, man. Look, people, I'm, I'm six foot three IRL, so... I can handle the height. Six foot three with knife ears. With knife ears, that's correct. He's a walking Aldmer. Yeah. Baldmer. Oh, 
All right. Well, that was totally just got right by you. I'm a bald. Yeah, no, I got you. It was stupid, so I ignored it. Or I'm gonna... <laughs> Dude, you're effing hurtful. Oh. You're giggly. Oh, I'm man. So you know, I, I was laughing. Folks, thanks for joining us on this episode of Lore Seekers. The episode's going to be a little bit different this week because our good friend Jibs caught the Kanahattan flu. So he is laid up on antibiotics and trying to get better. He is getting better by the minute. But this week it was a little bit too much for, for us to try and put together a full show. So instead, we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to be live streaming our first lore lesson. And if you're live in the chat, then welcome and thank you for being here. And if you're getting this as a podcast download for the week, then thank you for joining us. Today we're going to be covering the five-year war. This is a very interesting time in Elder Scrolls. And actually, the five-year war ends up happening later than our timeline in the Elder Scrolls Online. So let's get into it. What began as a small border dispute between the two provinces of Elsewhere and Valenwood quickly escalated into a major conflict. In the early part of the Third Era, this took place. Of course, each side has a differing opinion of who started the conflict and actually when it transpired. But there was no doubt that both sides were at bloody odds. The Bosmer claim it began in the Third Era, year 394, as a result of Kachidi bandits attacking wood caravans headed to the province of Valenwood. Basically what happened is the Khajiit were sending teams of people in to take the wood from the trees of Valenwood. And we all know what the Bosmer feel about wood being taken from their home. They're completely against it. Most of the Wood Elves follow something called the Green Pact. And basically the Green Pact says that the Bosmer will have the protection of the Divines, Ifray to be exact, as long as they do not harm the forest and they do their part to protect the forest. And they did. Also, anybody that comes into the forest and attacks it the way that the Khajiit were doing by stealing the wood was not very well taken from the Bosmer. So the Bosmer claimed that it began about third era, year 394, when those caravans started coming in and stealing wood from Valenwood. But the Khajiit have a different story. They say that the war began a year later when the Bosmer, because of what happened with the wood, ruthlessly attacked the elsewhere capital city of Torval as retaliation for the bandit raids. Despite its origins, the conflict would rage on for nearly five years, actually four years and nine months, but because of its close proximity to five years, the conflict earned the title the Five-Year War. At the culmination of the war, the Khajiiti soldiers of elsewhere ultimately defeated the Bosmer and took control of a strip of territory along the banks of the Zylo River, expanding the reach of elsewhere. 
Now let's talk about some pivotal battles of the Five-Year War. Many battles took place during the span of the Five-Year War, and it really shaped the Bard's tales of the conflict for the history books. The first, which we've already mentioned, is the slaughter of Torval. In the Third Era, year 395, the Wood Elves of Valenwood launched an attack on the Khajiiti capital of Torval and mercilessly killed over 1,000 citizens. 1,000 Khajiit lost their lives. Now, they were eventually driven off by reinforcements from a nearby Khajiiti tribe who heard the call and rendered aid. But the Khajiit considered this attack to be the powder keg that began the war. The next battle was known as the Battle of Zelenin. Prior to this battle, the Khajiit had employed several Nords as war advisors. Probably a pretty good choice. And the Nords are pretty dialed in when it comes to war. The issue was that the Nords adamantly suggested that Khajiit soldiers wear heavy armor into battle. Many of them look like just the screen that you're looking at right now, Khajiit in heavy armor, which they were not used to. The Khajiit did not have much skill with heavy armor. They were used to light or medium. So they were heavily restricted in their movements and they subsequently lost the battle. Now you can imagine a very cumbersome Khajiit against a very agile and deft Bosmer. The Bosmer were able to exploit the hindered and clumsy Khajiit find their weaknesses, and they proved victorious in the battle. As a result, the Khajiiti leadership decided to exclusively employ the use of medium armor instead and unemploy the Nord advisors, giving both protection and mobility to the soldiers. The next battle was known as the Heart of Anakina. This battle, occurring not long after the Khajiiti defeat at Zelenin, was considered to be a pivotal turning point in the Five-Year War. Having dismissed the services of the Nords after receiving the bad advice on war armor that they were to utilize, the Khajiiti soldiers finally raced into battle with their more traditional medium armor, which they felt much more comfortable in. Here's our first fun fact. After the Khajiiti victory at the heart of Anakina, a Khajiiti tapestry maker by the name of Cherim created a famous tapestry depicting the conflict. The famous tapestry was so detailed that the faces of 120 Bosmer archers could be differentiated from one another in the tapestry, each showing fear at the approach of the Khajiiti army. With depictions of battle cats looming on the hills ready to pounce, Cherim caught nearly every detail imaginable in his tapestry because he himself was there as a Khajiiti foot soldier. Cherim went on to own four separate tapestry factories located throughout elsewhere, and many of his very famous original works fetched stellar prices. If you want to learn more about Cherim's creations, there is a lore book. It's called Interviews with Tapestrists, Volume 18, Cherim's Heart of Akina, 
by Livilus Paris, who's a professor at the Imperial University. The next battle is the battle at Fort Sphinxmoth. Some of you might remember from our storyline that Jibs and I went through the quest line at Fort Sphinxmoth in Reaper's March some time ago. It's located near the city of Dune in northern elsewhere, but this battle occurred not far from the fort. It wasn't at the fort itself, it was close to the fort. The Khajiiti army, although severely outnumbered, bested the attacking Bosmer troops once again by the use of very unconventional warfare. Now, what kind of warfare were they using? Well, if you jump into the wormholes of the internet when you're looking for lore, you can find many things, and I was able to find just what this unconventional warfare was. In the lore book, by the name of Mixed Unit Tactics, by Codus Calanus. The fort lookout, the person who was overseeing the fort at the time, was actually able to witness the battle. And the way that he describes it, his observations of the battle tactics of both Khajiit and Bosmer for forces is pretty interesting in this book. As he describes it, the Khajiit cleverly sent teams of tree cutters to the outskirts of Valenwood's forest prior to the beginning of the battle. Once the Bosmeri troops caught wind, of, caught wind of their trees in the forest being felled, the Bosmer commanders dispatched units of archers to respond to the area, thus splitting the Bosmer fighting force. So the Khajiit were smart. They actually sent teams into the trees in Valenwood over the border and started to cut the trees down. Once the Bosmer found out what was happening, the commander had no choice but to split his army. Pretty interesting. Now, with his forces split, the Bosmer tree defenders perched themselves high in the trees. And there were some losses on the Khajiit side. The first volleys of Bosmer arrows killed a bunch of them. But the Khajiit soon took refuge, as planned, under large wooden shields and fallen trees on the ground where the archers would not reach them. Eventually, the Bosmer archers were drawn to the ground, just as the Khajiit had planned. They left their shooting perches high in the trees, descended to the ground level to engage the Khajiit. Upon their approach to the bunkered Khajiit, a Khajiit soldier signaled an attack by playing on a native Khajiiti instrument by plucking metal bars. This alerted teams of Khajiit who were hiding. These were the Ohms and the Ohms Rot, uh, those type of Khajiit. It alerted them to emerge from their covered holes in the ground and they attacked the archers from behind, killing them all. There were some that remained in the trees, and they were attacked simultaneously by a group of the more agile tree-dwelling Khajiit, known as the Dagi and the Dagi Rot. Now, these were a little bit more uh, magic-focused Khajiit, and they were able to use illusion magic to hide. And they kept moving right through the trees, and they attacked the remaining Bosmer in the trees. 
pretty smart. So the Khajiit are pretty darn good on the battlefield. And in this particular battle, that is what their unconventional warfare was all about. Here's another fun fact. During this conflict, the tree-hopping conflict, the author of Mixed Unit Tactics also recalled seeing small, ordinary felines amongst the larger Khajiit. Now, as you know, if you followed our former lore lessons, these cats are Khajiit, and they are known as the Alfiq. We will be seeing them in the upcoming release of Elsewhere. They were described by the author of Mixed Unit Tactics as spellcasters, and also by Bosmeri soldiers. They called them spellcasters because they were both alike very surprised that there were small cats casting spells. Except the author himself could not quite believe that an ordinary house cat could, ca could cast a magical spell. The next battle was the Sack of Athay. In the Third Era, year 397, a truce was made between the Bosmer and the Khajiit. The Khajiit, although they agreed to the truce, dismissed the truce and betrayed the Bosmer. They crossed the Xylo River and they attacked the Bosmer on their own land, on their own borders. The Khajiit took aim at the village of Athay, where they burned the harbor and left very few survivors. They continued on and destroyed the nearby village of Grenos. Speaking of Khajiit. The Vendisi Wild Hunt is the next battle. And when I say Wild Hunt, it might trigger something in some of your memories about the Bosmer. And we will certainly talk about what happens. Because it's pretty gnarly. <laughs> the Third Area, 397, a little bit after the Sack of the Thay, the Bosmer were desperate. Due to the unexpected breaking of the truce and the subsequent sacking of multiple settlements in Valenwood, the Bosmer had taken refuge at the ancient hamlet of Vindisi. In a last-ditch effort, the Bosmer summoned a wild hunt that would completely destroy the attacking Khajiit. As uncontrollable as a wild hunt may be, it turned on itself at the completion after the Khajiit were defeated. And once it turned on itself, it ended in a violent, cannibalistic orgy. I don't write this stuff, my friends, and I said WTF too. Let's talk a little bit about the wild hunt in the next fun fact. The wild hunt is a magical trait innate to all Bosmer. It is born of a collective ritual performed by Bosmer, causing them to shapeshift into a horde of feral, supernatural beasts. The beasts will slay and devour everything in their path as they shapeshift from one beast to another. Once all of their targets are destroyed, the horde turns upon itself, ending in a twisted, murderous, flesh-eating sex party. I say again, WTF. Okay, that was dark. So we're going to end our lore lesson on a funny note. 
during the midst of a five year of the five year war a book was in the making i know you've seen the book it's out there the name of the book is a dance in fire and it's written by wahin jarth allow me to set the stage for you there's a lot of reading in this book so let me summarize this part for you in chapter 3 a clerk was adventuring in Valenwood during the Five-Year War, and he became caught up in the conflict with his companion, Decimus Scotty. They met up and were routed by a Kajidi archer unit right outside of the settlement of Athay, which we just, if you remember, we just talked about Athay being attacked and raised by the Kajit. So Wahin and Decimus ended up running from the Kajit and escaped down the river where the following ensued. And I quote, Ahead of him was a rocky island with a bonfire. He did not know if there were if he did not know if he was intruding on a party of Bosmeri or Kajit, only that he could swim no more. With straining, aching muscles, he pulled himself onto the rocks. They were Bosmer refugees, he gathered, even before they told him. Roasting over the fire was the remains of of one of the giant cats that had been stalking them through the jungle on the opposite shore. Sench tiger, said one of the young warriors ravenously. It's no animal. It's as smart as any Cathay Rot or Ohms and any other bleeding Khajiit. Pity this one drowned. I would have likely killed it. You'll like the meat, though. Sweet. From all the sugar these asses eat. Unquote. I thought that was a pretty good one to end on because it talks a little bit about the moon sugar that the uh, Khajiit eat. But I learned a lot about the Five-Year War in this lore lesson. Um, I'd heard about it. We had covered a little bit about it. But it's very interesting, the history that the Khajiit have with the Bosmer. I hope you've enjoyed this lore lesson on the Five-Year War. As you know, these lore lessons are always posted on our website at loreseekerspodcast.com in text format if you want to read them. And we continue with a lore lesson every single episode. Next week, we will have a very packed, very special episode when Jibs is better. And we will see you then. Thank you very much and have a great week. Safe travels, friends. <laughs>